It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome to the mop up for October 26, 2020. Melania Trump will be with us shortly. I'm David Feldman. It's 6 p.m. in Manhattan, cloudy, rainy, 59 degrees with a coronavirus front coming in from the south. So if you're going outside, don't go outside. The S&P 500 fell nearly 2% today. That's the stock market's biggest drop in more than a month. Analysts say it's due to a sudden shift in paying attention to what's going on in the world. Republicans succeeded in sending Justice Amy Comey Barrett to the Supreme Court exactly one week before they send the presidential election there. In order to push through her confirmation on Sunday night, the Senate pulled an all-nighter and got absolutely no sleep. This was Senator Lindsey Graham's second all-nighter in a week. Friday night, he got to bed at six in the morning after shame watching a Love Island marathon on Hulu. Barrett is scheduled to head over to the White House later tonight to be sworn in at a super spreader ceremony that is expected to kill up to 500 people. During his 60 Minutes interview on Sunday, Vice President Joe Biden confused President George W. Bush with Donald J. Trump, which reminds me of that old joke, what's the difference between George W. Bush and Donald Trump? Well, one's a fear-mongering fascist, and the other's a fear-mongering fascist. Boy, Joe Biden confusing Donald Trump with George W. Bush. Kind of like the time George W. Bush confused Saddam Hussein for Osama bin Laden. 
And a million and a half Iraqis died because of that. Latest polls are showing that the state of Texas may actually lean blue next week with Joe Biden narrowly leading Donald Trump. Meanwhile, Governor Abbott is making it almost as hard to vote in Texas as it is to get an abortion. What, what's wrong with Texas? You can't vote and you can't get an abortion. Houston, we have a problem with boxes. And I have a problem with saying the first thing that comes to my mind. Sorry about that. But when you think about it, for Republicans, you know, they want voting to be just like sex. Controlled by white men who have a serious, serious problem wanting to keep it hard. Well, what's an election without the coastal elites making me want to stay home? You know, I know... I know their hearts are in the right place. It's their brains I have a problem with. For example, Cher. Now, I love Cher, but she's just released a new song entitled Happiness is, a, is Just a Thing Called Joe. Happiness is Just a Thing Called Joe. You know, like I said, I, I love Cher and I'm voting for Biden. But the first word that comes to mind when I think of Joe Biden isn't happiness. Cher, you missed a golden opportunity to, to write something that will inspire the American voter by, by writing something that treats the American voter as adults. Why not rework one of your old standards, Cher? Like, I've got huge concerns about Joe Biden because he wants to continue fracking and won't support Medicare for all. But once again, I've got a gun to my head and I have to vote for the lesser of two evils babe. Jesus Christ, having to choose between Joe Biden and Donald Trump is so stomach churning. Right now, I'd rather vote for Congressman Sonny Bono after he ran into that tree. Chile voted to rewrite its Pinochet era, Pinochet era constitution. Pinochet-era constitution. Chile voted to rewrite its Pinochet-era constitution. Those ungrateful bastards. America dictated that constitution to you guys. Plus, we gave you Pinochet. And now you're doing a page one rewrite on us? You can't even bring us in on a consult as a consulting producer? What, because we're too old? God, I hate this business. Well, Chili, I hope you enjoy your project going straight to streaming, you pandering hacks. What happened? Did the algorithm tell you that millennials were no longer buying free market neoliberal capitalism? Still chasing that much coveted, I'm worried about climate change and income inequality demo? I hope you and Quibi are very happy together, Chili. By the way, how could Quibi go under with Meg Whitman at the helm? And the pantheon of entertainment giants, everybody knows it's Steven Spielberg, Louis B. Mayer, and Meg Whitman. It was Katzenberg's fault. Senator Susan Collins of Maine is down 12 points, according to the latest polls, in a last-ditch attempt to woo voters and prove her centrist bona fides. This dyed-in-the-wool moderate promised to reach across the aisle next Tuesday and vote for her opponent, Sarah Gideon. 
Delta announced it's placing hundreds of passengers on a no-fly list for refusing to wear a mask. What's the hurry, Delta? The, the pandemic is only seven months old. Great. Good work, Delta. We're already on the third wave, and you're only cracking down now. Why was that list delayed seven months? Was it flying Delta? Actually, a seven-month delay isn't so bad for Delta. They still have me on standby for my flight out of Newark to attend the coronation of King Tut. A Florida man allegedly stole a bulldozer and used it to knock down Joe Biden signs and a wooden fence. Come on, Florida man. You're better than that. You didn't even have an alligator with you? Take some pride in your work, Florida man. You're slipping. You used to be so good. Now look at you, just the shell of a Florida man you once were. Fox News announced massive layoffs. A silver lining, though, they promised that they will not fire any of their research staff, investigative reporters, or anyone with a J school degree. Believe me, they tried, but they couldn't find any. And finally, some good news. Felicity Huffman has completed her sentence for her part in the recent Varsity Blues college admission scandal. You know, with all the news today, people protesting the police and the so-called prison industrial complex, this news gives me hope that the criminal justice system can work if you're a wealthy white woman with an expensive lawyer. Felicity Huffman says the experience gave her a deeper understanding for how damaging incarceration is with communities of color Felicity said, quote, I now see the role that white privilege has played in my life, and I'm going to commit what little time I have on this planet to educating myself on racial injustice. Moving forward, my name will now be Nabila X because Felicity is my slave name. Well, well, well. Let us go to Washington, D.C., where Melania Trump is not standing by. I think we have a problem. Let me check in with her. Do we have Melania? Yeah, we have a problem, David. I think you need to bump her up. As uh, I thought uh, I did. Well, this is what we will do. We will take a quick break and bring Melania Trump in and we will go to Washington, D.C. and talk to the first lady. Here she is. Oh, is she there? Melania Trump? This is exciting. Melania? Are you there? You have to unmute yourself. This is very exciting. You know, we do this show live and Melania Trump is joining us from Washington, D.C. Hello, Melania. Hello, Davey. Boy, that cough from the COVID is really bad. How are you feeling, Melania? Uh, Debbie, not so good. Well, what's the matter, honey? I mean, First Lady. Well, Debbie, for those of you who do not know me, it is I, First Lady Melania Trump, and not one of those cheap slot imposters, fake Melanias. Oh, I, I, I heard that 
they're claiming that there was a, a fake Melania. What the fuck already? Give me a fucking break. She looks nothing like me. No, she didn't. It was it was obviously not Melania. Obviously. Yes, you're you're way too real. Then, uh, well, how are you feeling, Melania? Uh, yeah. A little gassy, Davey, yeah. a little bit gassy, and my lungs are still filled with fluid. It's coming out of me all over the place. You, could, could you, you know what you need to do? You need to clear your throat. Could, do you mind coughing? <laughs> I, I can see why you needed a fake Melania to show up at the debate Thursday. Oh. You are really sick from this COVID. You would not believe it. But fortunately, last night, I had a big, busy time welcoming all of the, the fucking uncaged children's trick-or-treaters and uh, handing out the coronavirus to them. Oh, you gave out the coronavirus to the little trick-or-treaters? That's sweet. Yes. At the uh, White the, House. Yeah. The fucking anal, the anal Halloweenerschnitzel uh, uh, festivities at the White House yeah. with our supreme leader, my husband, super spreader-in-chief, <laughs> Tonel. Donald. Donald. Yes. Tonel. Yeah, his name is Donald. I am so sick of this shit. Let's do it with me, please. Duh. Tonel. Yeah, duh. Duh. Ah. 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 Mm. Mm. Donald, okay. Donald. Donald, yes, your husband, Donald, the super spreader in chief. And there was a big Halloween party with the kids in cages? No, these are the uncaged children. The fucking little whiny bastards. I see, I see. With their trick-or-treat costumes. Right, right. And did they all get... The corona, coronary? We all give them the coronavirus. We oh. hand it out to them, you know. Yeah. This, this coffee does not spread itself. We have to give it to them. Yes, yes. And I heard you didn't give it to all the kids. You had a problem with some of the kids, right? Only the ones without the masks. Yes. You, you forbid the kids from wearing masks on Halloween. That is right. That seems, I mean, I don't, I, you know, you are the first lady and I love having you on the show, but I, I just think it's a little unfair. Kids love to wear masks on Halloween. Who gives a fuck about these Halloweener schnitzel sheets? Mm. Well, are you nervous? Uh, you know, Mike Pence, uh, four of his associates, people in his office. Who gives a fuck about Mike Pence? You don't care about Mike Pence. I do not give a shit about it, mother stupid motherfucker. I see. I see. And what about the election? It's it's a week away. You must be. Are you? The election. The 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 election. I have not seen election in very long time. Well, every two years we have one in America. Every two years. We're lucky if you see election every two years. Well, oh. most yeah, most people don't vote. Give me a fucking break. Every four years is when most people have 
to participate in an election in America. Whatever. I don't give a shit anymore. Are you nervous about your husband's chances for the election? Fuck this shit already. I'm ready to move back to New York. You you want to come back to New York? Yes, Davey. So you, you're not worried? Is this why you're not really helping? A lot of people think you, you're sick, and that's why you're not campaigning. With- I am not sick. Yeah. I have a little fluid in my lungs. Yeah, why don't you cough, <laughs> cough that out for us? Why don't you give us a big, big... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's the remdesivir. That, that, that works. So we have nothing to worry about with the COVID nineteen. Oh, I feel better right? now. I'm much better. So now. there's nothing to worry about. It's just, it's just as bad as the flu, right? I really do not care. Do you? No, I, Give I, me a fucking break. I, you know, I read about COVID nineteen all the time, and they try to scare us. But I'm talking with you, and you have, you know, mild symptoms. <laughs> Little, you know, little cough. <laughs> so why is everybody overreacting with this virus, First Lady? I Malone? do not know, but I have to do it, right? You have to do what? I have to do this sheet. I do not have a choice. You don't have a choice. No. Right. Give me a fucking break. And are you looking forward to the other holidays coming up in the White House? Well, you know how I feel about Christmas. Who gives a fuck about this Christmas, crystal knock, Christmas, Krautner shit? So you're going to light the tree and you always talk about inviting your parents over to the family quarters for Christmas. And, and dissecting Perhaps. a and dissecting a corpse. I remember you were telling us last time that it's a a family tradition back in Slovenia. Of Slo- course, it is tradition that you back and your in Slovenia we we celebrate with the corpse. Yes, you you, you dissect a corpse. Your uncle Slobodan would set Slobodan? fire to. He would. What yes. would he set fire to to celebrate Christmas every year? What does he set fire to? I do not remember what I told you last. I am a, a, I'm being treated. What? A children's hospital, you said. Oh, yes, the children's hospital. Yes, we light up the town with the children's hospital fires. Right, for Christmas. Of course. And, and, and then you sit around and dissect a corpse and drink eggnog. That's a Slovenian tradition or just your family's tradition? It's a tradition. Uh, we also do, uh, we have a tradition of sin eating. Sin eating? Yes. And does Bill Barr take part in that? Uh, Bill Barr, what a disgusting pig. He's been eating a lot of sin, a buns. That's a yes. joke. Do you, do you, am I funny, Milani? Do you... Do you, do you... <laughs> Hold on, Debbie. I feel another one coming. Oh. 
that was a big one. Yeah, I that, feel better now. That's a long yes, cough. Davey, of course you are funny. You are funny as a mass grave. Ah, thank you. Coming from you, that's quite a compliment. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Did you like my monologue? Your monologue. My monologue. Your monologue. My monologue. Ah, uh, Davey, blow it out your ass. Oh, okay. It sounds like you're having a good time, and the COVID hasn't. Aff- this that's good. Just cough out. You got to get those lungs. For the life of me, I don't understand why the liberal press is making COVID nineteen out to be something that it obviously is not. You are you the annoying pi- little man with your fake hair, faker than fake Melania. Yeah. Well, they're hair plugs. Yeah. Fake Melania, just like real Melania. We both have fake orgasms. Ah, okay. Yes. All right. Good luck. Will we see you Thursday, Friday? I hope you can come back on the show, Melania. You'll be feeling, you're, you're feeling so much better. I have to do it, right? Well, you have you have no choice, do you? Would you like to see my teeth now? I show you my teeth. No, thank you, Melania. But thank you for joining us, First Lady. What the fuck? Shit already. Give me a fucking break. Okay, can you say hello to your family for me? Hello, mommy. Hello, papi. Okay. Anybody else that you can think uh, of um, that you would want to say hello to? Yes, let me think. Hold on, my head is foggy. Oh, yes, Uncle Slobodan. Uncle Slobodan, but uh, is there somebody else that you kind of care about? Perhaps, let me think. Um, you have your ma- Auntie Slobodan. Auntie Slobodan. Cousin Slobodan. Cousin Slobodan. But is there, um, my sister Slobodan. Your sister Slobodan, yeah. Um, you're, you're leaving somebody out. You've got uh, somebody you care deeply about. That I'm not sure who you are referring to. Oh, yes, Adolf Hitler. Oh, well, we don't really want to talk about that in, in public now, do we? But, of course, okay. Why the fuck not? All right, well, thank you, Joseph no, Stalin. No, thank you. No, I don't think we want to bring that up now. Melania Trump is the first lady. Benito Mussolini? No, thank you. Melania Trump is first lady of the United States. And we... And... Obviously, COVID-19 is a bad flu. And the liberal press has once again... Not these liberals. Give me a fucking break. They've, they've turned a perfectly innocent virus into a monster. You are... You are... You are the picture of health. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm so gassy. I'm so gassy tonight. I do not know what hit me. Okay. Okay. Anything you'd like to end with? Any message for the American people? Any advice as the winter approaches? Of course, Davey. Clean it with bleach. Clean what with bleach? Clean it everything with bleach. Okay. And shut the fuck up. Thank you. Don't get sick. Be best. And seek to the hell to the Hitler. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you, Melania Good Trump. Good everyone. Okay, bye, Melania. We love you. It's such an honor to have you on the show. Is Jim Earl there? Jim? We did such a great job. You did such Hello? a... Hi there, Jim. Is Mel- Melania's gone. She's amazing. She's really she's amazing, isn't she? I don't know. I don't know if it's the real Melania or not. There's so many different versions I appearing think, in the news. Well, you I never th- know who you're going to... I think she sounds great. Well, she's uh, yeah, she's clearing her throat, which is a good thing. You yeah, gotta, you got to do clear that. Throat. Yeah, you got to sleep on your stomach so the lungs don't fill up with fluids. That's right. You have to sleep on a pivot. You have to yeah. sleep on a pyramid of pillows. So, are you yeah. optimistic about next week's election? Sorry. <laughs> I think that's Melania. Ask that question again, will you? I think Melania's got something stuck in her throat. Are you optimistic about next two? Have you voted? Oh. Have you voted? Yes, I did. I voted a long time ago, yeah. Did you vote at least for Sarah Gideon? Were you registered to vote? In Maine. Okay, so who did you vote for? I voted my conscience. Oh. And who would that be? Lisa Savage. For? For Senator. And not Sarah Gideon. I put her down low. Oh, it's ranked choice voting. That's right. It's ranked for choice voting. So it is conceivable that you may end up voting for Joe Biden. Inconceivable. You didn't even put him on the list? It's choices. And I did not vote for that person. No. And I did not vote for Kamala Harris. No. Uh-uh. And <laughs> what are you going to do election night if you discover that Joe Biden lost by one vote? How's that going to make you feel? I'm going to feel so powerful and lorded over everybody <laughs> and the rest of the world. You're not nervous? I will. I will be the one responsible for all of your pain and I'll be happy with it because it will be the one time in my life when my vote actually meant something. Are you nervous? Aren't you nervous that the right wing is going to take to the streets? Aren't you worried about the alt-right, the white nationalists, the Boogaloo boys, the proud boys? Doesn't that no, scare you? No, it doesn't. Because we have, they're a minority. And you're not frightened uh, by minorities. Well, <laughs> that's just the late 60s. But, uh, no, you're no, not. They're a minority. They're the minority, and they're a vocal minority. And, uh, you know, but I think we have enough um, police apparatus. And uh, military-grade weaponry on the on the streets in the hands of some sound pol- police. Mm-hmm. That you know, well, you're gonna you're gonna badmouth the cops now, saying that they they can't do their jobs. Well, that's true. You're They're right. They're the brave brave men in blue who are going to protect us from these fascists, violent fascists on the streets. Okay, and I have faith in them because we pay them a lot. 
Barack Obama supplied them with uh, what a hundred billion dollars worth of military grade weaponry. Okay, so they're Min- prepared. Minnesota reports three COVID nineteen outbreaks right now that are related to people showing up to Donald Trump's campaign events in September. That is pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, hey, don't go to a wedding up here in Maine. Why is that? Because it'll be a super spreader, too. It's very dangerous. And what about the honeymoon? That's uh, like usual. It's not as. Yeah, it'll be a super. (laughs) It'll be a super spreader. Have you ever lived in in a state or a city that you were happy with? Um, Berkeley, but that was frustrating. That's where Berkeley. Kamala lived. Um, yeah, she did, didn't she? Boy, she's a wretched, creepy person, isn't she? Did you see her 60 Minutes interview? Prostituted. What was that? Prostituted. Yeah, she's a, no, she's a, uh, she's an prostitute, not prostituter. No, no, she's a prosecutor, Jim. Show some respect for our next vice president. Melania, First Lady Melania, who is, who is going to be our next vice president? What is her name? A prostituta Kamalova Mitis. <laughs> I, 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 her name is Kamala. Kamalova. No, no. Kamalova? No, that's not her name. Her name is. You see, you're saying it wrong, Dave. Even Joe Biden doesn't, you know, saying say Kamala. He says Kamala. Kamala. What is wrong with her annoying laugh? She's always laughing like everything's so funny, and she laughs like hyena. <laughs> Ooh, sounds like you're a little threatened by by Melania. You don't like you don't like Kamala. <laughs> That's well, that is what of, I think of her. You cough all over. You know, yeah, she's got a lot to laugh about. That is so funny. Vetoing her boss, vetoing Medicare for all and the Green New Deal and all that is not banning fracking. But his hands are tied. He wants to ban fracking, but his hands are tied. No, well, your hands aren't tied. That's ridiculous. You know, you, our, our home state, your home state's New York. I yeah. read an article in the L.A. Times about what our home state, my home state, California, run by a model Democratic Party and super with super majorities. They have the most dangerous super fund site in, in all of the United States and probably in the largest uh Dump in the Palos Verdes, off off in the ocean, in near Catalina, you know, Island, Catalina Island, the largest gathering. Oh yeah, Jim Belushi's hot tub. That too. We're talking about when <laughs> right, the story when Yakov Smirnov left a few kids off in the uh, sauna, but that's a different story. That's interesting because back in Russia, the kids would leave a few saunas off at the go ahead and that the kids would stare at you 
Yes. Yes. The DDT, they're like the largest uh, manufacturing plant of DDT for 50 years or so. And they're doing nothing about it. And of course, nobody's paying for it except people getting cancer and is poisoning the West Coast, the Pacific. And of course, this goes all around the world and the underwater, uh, the krill and the microscopic organisms and the fish, they eat it and it just it's killing everything. And they're not cleaning it up. Nobody's talking about it. Because Gavin Newsom doesn't want to do anything about it. It's inconvenient. So you he doesn't don't want like, to do anything about it. He, you don't like Gavin Newsom. He's a piece of shit who, who uh, trashed single payer in California. And uh, he's just another corporate tool with a, a lot of slick back hair. Yeah. These people are all sickening. He is prostitutor's ex-boyfriend, yeah? And you're not worried about the breakdown in civility in this country. In Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Trump supporters clash with Black Lives Matter protesters as electioneers. That doesn't scare you? You don't think the whole system is breaking down? I think the system broke down a long, long time ago. The worst, what we're seeing is the natural uh, results of that. We're seeing Donald Trump is the natural result, result of the system breaking down. As Barack Obama said in a rare fit of, of rationality, he admitted that Trump is just the symptom of a greater problem. And that problem is Barack Obama. Obama and Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Etc. Etc. There's not. There's nothing about Joe Biden. Oh, you've already voted, so it's too late. Yeah, yeah. I wrote in uh, Bernie Sanders. Even friend. though he asked you to vote for. No, oh, fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> fuck that f- fucking old white man sellout piece of shit. I'm sorry. He did a lot of good. The most no. successful. Populist leftist candidate more successful than Eugene Debs. No. Eugene Debs? Sure. No. He's a mild mannered, he's a Clark Kent version of of, of FDR. He's just a mild new dealer, Bernie Sanders. If you want to change anything, you can't do it from within an organism that hates everything you stand for and has fought against everything you fought for all your career. How are you going to do that within the Democratic Party? It's, it's ridiculous. And then you go support and back the guy and risk your life. To back I, I don't I don't know. Who, I mean, who, has, who is who is regularly smearing you. To the public. You know, as a socialist, hey, be, I beat that guy. That we beat that. We don't. We don't want Medicare for all. We don't want the Green New Deal, whatever that is. This is bullshit. It's just a huge fucking lie. He's worse than Hillary was. And I'm not saying that we should have voted for Hillary, but he's worse than Hillary. All right, I, I find your optimism thrilling. I think, well, look, you know, for the first time in uh, 
in my lifetime, most of my friends know that there are such things as, as city council meetings and city council elections and local elections. That's optimistic. That's the bright side of this. I vote in down uh, ballot elections when they earn my votes. And I didn't vote for uh, Joe Biden. He did not earn my vote. And Kamala Harris is a cop, a prosecutor, and she's disgusting. Is that true, Melania? Is that true? She is prostituted. <laughs> she, she's a. Okay. <laughs> Mark Breslin is here. When did you get here? Were you. How you doing? Were you a little. Okay, good. We'll come back and talk to Melania and Jim later. Jim Earl. I hope this gas goes away. Oh, Melania. Uh, <coughs> this co- I, you're absolutely right. This It's just a mild chest cold. That's all it is. A little gas in your chest. <coughs> COVID-19, just a little gas in your lungs. That's it. One last cough before we bring in Mark Breslin. <coughs> Yeah, that's it. Let it out. And 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 see, it's not so bad, COVID. Thank you. Stop it. Okay, and tell everybody your final message. I love your your sign off. Thank you, everybody. Be best. Clean it with bleach. That's right. Don't get sick. And Heil Hitler. (laughs) Thank you, Melania Trump. Jim, freaking offensive. What? Did you allow this? What? It's the first lady of the United States. I know, but, you know. All right. Thank you, Jim. Great job Saturday night. See you in court. (laughs) Jim Earl. Let's go to Toronto, where Mark Breslin is standing by. He's the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. Perhaps the world. Did I keep you waiting? No, I, I got here a little a little late. Don't oh, worry. okay. All right. Because I was looking for you, and I didn't see, and I thought maybe I screwed up. So No, no, no screw up. So how are you? How are things in Toronto? Is everybody nervous about next week? Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, really. Um, I, I don't want to talk about politics at all today. Okay. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about uh, TV. I want to talk about the comedy store. I want to know whether you're watching the doc. You know, I never really played the comedy store and I didn't have to to talk about that, too. Okay, so So, you go first. All right. So it's Mike Binder um, and uh, it's it's five episodes. I've seen the first four. I think it's uh, he's done a really great job on it. Um, He's gotten he hits all the beats okay look i'll ask you this when you were in los angeles were you an improv guy or a comedy store guy improv guy and why bud friedman loved me and ross mark loved me and mark lano loved me okay did you have anything against the comedy store or did you just wind up on on the improv stage so they 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 saw what you did and the quality of what you did before anybody else did yeah and I okay. felt like a kind of at the time there 
nobody said don't go do the improv, uh, the comedy club, but there was a bit of a. I, I don't know. No, unless you were unless you were a big star, you did one club or you did the other. Right. Um, so here's what here's what I found. I always preferred the comedy store to the improv. Not that I wouldn't go to the improv, but I always preferred the comedy store. And here's why. I always thought Mitzi Shore was nuts. Nuts. Really nuts. And I'll tell you a story in a minute that will show you how nuts she was to me. Um, she was never nice to me. But I liked the store. Because here's what Mitzi had that Bud did not have. The improv was like television. Um, good television. But the comedy store was like great theater. And you would go to the comedy store and there would be these crazed characters. There would be the Kinnisons. There would be the Jim Carrey's. There would be all these people who were over the top um, and out of this world. And it, when you went to the improv, it all felt like somebody was practicing for their next shot on some show. That's why I preferred the improv. I thought I got it. I, I got it. Of course, I, I understand completely. But as a, um, a person in the business who didn't depend on on being seen by producers or anything. Cause I know much fewer, many far fewer producers seem to go to the store. By the time I was there, I was hanging out there in the late eighties when I was doing the Joan Rivers show. There weren't a lot of people who were in my position um, who were there. They were all at the improv. The improv was much more professional, but Mitzi Shore for whatever pluses or minuses she had was to me like the Gertrude Stein of comedy. Um, she would embrace the other. She would embrace people who were way out there. And because of that, you saw brilliant people followed by some numb nuts juggler because she thought the numb nuts juggler was funny. So that's why I preferred the store. I also like the, um, I think the original room was an amazing concoction. Uh, the main room is, was just a big room. But I love the original room and I saw amazing stuff there. And it was just the right size and just the right orientation to be able to do what you wanted to do. I'm sorry you weren't watching the doc because I would have asked specific questions. Well, you can it. ask me specific questions. I would love to talk to you about it. Just so we're clear here, I started in San Francisco and there was an analog to the division between the comedy store and the improv. There was the other cafe and the Holy City Zoo. And the Holy City Zoo was the equivalent of the comedy store. And right. the other cafe was equivalent to the improv. And I was a Holy City Zoo comic in San Francisco. So when I went down to L.A., I didn't want to be at another Holy City Zoo. I wanted something that was a little more refined, like the other cafe I, I felt it would be better for my career. Plus, I couldn't really, Mitzi didn't like me. Yeah, I mean, that's what it all boiled down to. Yeah. It was a, it was a one-woman show, and if you like, she liked it great, and if she didn't, well, that was the end of it. Right. I wasn't um, as crazy. I, I don't think she thought I was uh, crazy enough. Well, she didn't know you well enough. <laughs> and if she were able to actually sit there undrugged for, you know, a half an hour and appreciate the subtlety of what you were doing, which was always uh, very subversive, then she would have liked you. But she was too crazy. Listen, I'll tell you this story about her. Um, so I got the job 
uh, working for Joan Rivers, uh, booking the show, uh, one of the comics on the show in 1986. Um, I've been down to Los Angeles a lot before then, but I never really met Mitzi until that time. And I called her up and I said, let's have, let's have lunch. So she was extremely hostile towards me and told me that she had talked to Joan and said she should fire me. She should fire me right away because um, my, I had a hidden agenda, was to, which was to open up um, a comedy club of my own, which was not my agenda. My agenda was I'd already done that. So I was trying to break into TV, um, which was m- more interesting for me. Um, I told that to Mitzi. And she said, I'm going to call Joan again, and I'm going to tell her to fire you. She's sitting there having lunch with me and telling me this. So I said to her, Mitzi, if you do, understand I, like you, I'm in the club business. And I know a lot of people, and I will burn down your fucking club if you do that. (laughs) I mean it. David, I said it. I said, you know, it's just you and me here, and no, there are no witnesses. But when that club burns to the ground, you'll know it was me. So if I were you, I'd keep your mouth shut. I'm the oh, one of the few people in the industry who actually comes to your club to give work to your comics. So don't tell me that you're going to tell, tell her to fire, fire me. I'm the best friend you have right now. Wow. That was the end of it. And did you ever talk to her again? Were, were, nope. But did you go to the comedy store after that? Yes. I told her I would. I told her she had a superior club and a superior product, but the compliment didn't go very far. And I always helped Polly. I always liked Polly. I thought he rose above what he was yeah. dealt. I thought yeah. he I think he's a miracle. I do. I think to grow up the way he did and for yes. him to have a career and and to survive all of that. And not to put a needle in his arm. Yeah. Repeatedly. Like, yeah, that's that's kind of amazing. So um, anyway, it's it's an exciting it's an exciting watch for me uh, because I know everybody in it. And again, I think Mike Binder's done a good job. He's rescued a couple of people from obscurity. One being Tim Thomerson, who I don't remember because he was before my time, and another one being a guy named Brian Holtzman, who I had never seen before. You've got to see episode four. Episode four, which it which just aired, at the very end of it they focus on this guy who's late middle-aged and is a madman, is a wild man, is a kinison, and I've never seen or heard of him. Hmm. Okay. When I watched it, I went, I wish I were, I wish my clubs were open. I, I would, I would book him. Did they talk about, is it Steve Lubetkin? Yeah. Um, that was in there. That was in there. That was, I think in episode two, they talked about the strike. The strike was kind of, um, the center point, the focus of that of that episode. Is that why Steve Lebetkin jumped? Because of the strike, he couldn't get on anymore at the... Yeah, that's right. Well, that's what they say. I mean, you know, people who kill themselves kill themselves for deeper reasons than, you know, what the precipitant is. Uh, right. But uh, he was probably mentally ill to begin with. Right. But, but yeah, he was he was on... He was one of the people who crossed the... Who didn't cross the picket line, but wasn't... Uh, a great comic. He was only an okay comic, so she didn't really feel any loyalty to him, so she didn't need him anymore. Right. And he didn't get spots. Right. It is savage comedy. Stand-up comedy is savage. 
to, to, yeah. to get through it. There's so many hidden minds that you have to step over just to get onto the stage. Just, you know, yeah, the, the easiest I, I part is performing. I, I would say that that's not as true today because there are so many paths to the, um, to the top. And they're very clear about that. Binder's clear about that in the role of podcasts, which you should find interesting. Yeah, what did now, he say? Well, he says that podcasts have changed the game in a lot of ways. It used to be that these clubs, Yuck Yucks, the Comedy Store, the Improv, were the front door. And you had to use those clubs as a front door to get in, to find an audience, to get booked on shows. And that's not exclusively true anymore. That there are a lot of other ways to do it, and one of the best ways to do it are, are podcasts. And um, I'm amazed sometimes because I don't really listen to podcasts. Amazed at the numbers that somebody like Joe Rogan can do. And there's a big piece on Joe. Joe Rogan pretty much dominates the fourth episode. Um, but not just that. I mean, there are podcasts that are that are done by comics that aren't comedy podcasts. There's some a couple of women who do a podcast on murders. That's mm-hmm. like true life crime, and they can sell out two thousand seats in a city, and that blows my mind. But it's not stand up. And you know, they're they're no, doing. No, something. you're right. It's not stand up. But but we're defining comedy differently now anyway. And it is very rare to find a George Carlin anymore or to find a David Feldman who are not interested in acting or, you know, doing videos or doing all kinds of other things. And that's that's one of the major things that's changed. Everybody who I meet now, all these young comics, they, they don't want to just do stand-up. Stand-up is a means to an end, or stand-up is one of the things in their arsenal, but they also love uh, acting, perf- uh, writing, uh, doing uh, TikTok videos. I mean, you name it, they're doing it. And all of that gets them an audience. It gets them an audience. And I, I, again, everything changes. Nothing is the same. You can't step in. You can't dip your toe into the same river twice. Unless it's frozen. Thank you, Confucius. Thank you, Confucius. Well, I was going to say, unless it's frozen. Right. That's what or Confucius. your Jesus. Or your Jesus. I think he just knew where the stones were. <laughs> <laughs> Things change. Nothing, nothing stays the same. Jerry Seinfeld said 20 years ago during the last explosion, there are five million comics but just like it was 30 years ago, there are only 11 funny people. Well, yeah, I, I would say there are. No, I, I wouldn't quite agree with that, but I would say that there are only 11 iconically funny people that are moving the needle of what culture means in comedy forward. But there's a lot of funny people out there. They're just not, um, they're not going to change the world. But st- so how is stand up different today? If you so block out podcasting, block out somebody who does uh, like a sketch comedy podcast that gets a following and now they're playing clubs, but they're not doing stand up. They're bringing in their fans and their it's a love fest. I'm talking about the guy or gal who stands up on a stage alone with just the microphone and the audience mono mono a mono. 
What like is mono? Actually, it's uh, <laughs> what is it? Kind of like a, it's kind of like a mild version of COVID. But um, uh, what is? I, I mean, I what is different? I still love these people now more than ever because now it's kind of harder than than ever to do it. There's a glut of people doing stand up, and paradoxically, um, not a lot of people doing stand up that are so important in what they're doing. They lack the gravitas to really make a, a difference. You know, it's like that. There was that scene I remember in SCTV where Rick Moranis walks out of a um, a piece of dinner theater and he's he's picking his teeth with a toothpick and he goes, "Good piece of steak for twelve bucks." <laughs> and in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of stand up is is like that. It's a good piece of steak for twelve bucks. I. I'd be curious to see what happens because the, we're repeating. History doesn't repeat itself. And I have some more banal aphorisms. To, I like them. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Ten years ago at this time, I remember this. Uh, I, uh, on Saturday night, Eddie Pepitone, Jim Earl, and I did a show on Zoom. And it was ten years ago that we were teamed up to do a podcast and we haven't done it in 10 years. And the last time we were doing it, the economy was tanked. We were just coming out of the financial crisis. And there wasn't the comedy explosion yet. There was a comedy explosion that was just about to start around 2011, 2012. What I saw during the last comedy explosion was an explosion of people who wanted to be comedians and then the cream of the crop selling out Madison Square Garden, but not as big, uh, not as much opportunity for journeyman comics. That's what I saw. It, it was, it, it grew into something very big for the 1% of the comedy community. And yes. then it was a buyer's market. There was just this glut of comics. Now we're in a similar situation, if not worse, because it's there worse. is. It's worse and because of COVID. There's no place to play that can, that will pay you anyway. Right. Um, and that's not going to change for a while. But um, I how long? Think, how long? I don't know. And nobody knows. Well, give me give me a, vary from place to place. Give me an estimate, seriously, because I've been thinking about this because I was saying. Uh, I think we've got another year to go. Yeah. I think we've got another year to go. I mean, it'll loosen up a bit in some places and it'll close up a bit in some places, but I think we've got a year to go. So what and you said about the journeyman comics and the 1%, I think is absolutely true. I think part of it is because um, there's, you know, it's like a Malthusian nightmare. Uh, and you know about Malthus, right? And they, uh, Arithma arithmetically versus geometric. Geometrically. So, well, so the number of comics increases geometrically, but the number of opportunities only increase arithmetically. And that gap gets bigger and bigger all the time because people aren't just playing comedy clubs. I mean, comedy clubs had a wonderful had a wonderful advantage in that it culled the market really fast. And if you weren't any good right away, you didn't play the comedy store or the improv. 
there was nowhere else to play. But now every coffee house has a comedy night. Every bar has a comedy night. So all these people are slowly slogging out an act. And then they graduate from these places and they've got nowhere to go because there just aren't enough places to play that are professional. So I think what's happening in the arts is we are becoming a culture of hobbyists in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And, you know, you, you do your stand-up comedy and you make $15,000 a year out of it, but that's okay because you've got an IT business on the side and it's all become a side hustle. Right. This is a metaphor with what's happening, I think, for the economy in general right. um, and not a healthy thing. But it's hard to tell somebody, well, you know, you're not going to be the best comic uh, ever, so don't do it at all. Right. So this is what's happening now. Right. What I do, I cannot tell you the number of times I go to New Jersey, visit my mother. There's a friend there who says, oh, you're a comedian. Well, do you know? And I'd say, Maybe, but I can assure you, everybody is a comedian. Yeah. Everybody is a comedian. I remember 20 years ago, everybody had a screenplay in their drawer Mm -hmm. that they were working on. They were working on this screenplay. These screenplays never got made, but they were working on their screenplay. Now, everybody has 10 minutes. My barber has 10 minutes. If he had to, he could get up and do 10 minutes. Uh, you know, my accountant has 10 minutes. Everybody has 10 minutes. The same way people, everybody had a screenplay. More is not necessarily better. But it is good for comedy in that I don't think baseball would be as popular if it weren't for Little League. I think you need to coach Little League and play Little League to understand how great Dieter is. Sure, but here's the difference. When you're in Little League, you're not under any illusion that you're in the majors. Right. But these, a lot of these comics who are in the equivalent of Little League, because they know how to, you know, orchestrate a website and some social media, think that, you know, they're the, they're the, next, they're the next big thing. And one of the sad things I think about the Internet and social media is that it has removed the idea of the outsider artist. Nobody's an outsider artist anymore because everybody's got eight fans. Mm-hmm. And as long as you have eight fans, you feel like you're doing a great job and that you're important. It gives you a sense of self-importance, but it's completely detached from, hey, don't look at me like that. I'm no, I'm just wondering what it would be like to have eight fans. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing my Jack Benny. Okay. Imagine having the, eight fans. I just didn't know what the look meant. No, was, so um, anyway, everybody has eight fans, so everybody thinks that they're a pro, and they're not. Let me try it this way. Hang on. Okay. Eight fans. Eight fans. Wow. <laughs> I'd give anything so, for Hey, but so anyway, that, that's that's really interesting. Right I, you know what? I'd love to continue the conversation about the comedy store next week with you because I did will you see. Watch the, will you I'll watch, watch it? it, of course. Yeah. Okay. And I want to watch Borat. I haven't seen uh, that. What a disappointment! I I, I love Sasha Baron. I love. So do I. I love. So do I. He's the best, and he's the best thing in uh, the Trial of the Chicago Seven, which is a which is the best thing I've seen on TV this year. Mm-hmm. And he's the best thing in it. And I was so looking forward to Borat 2 because Borat 1 was one of those few films that actually made me rip-roaringly laugh in the theater. 
But David, have you seen it? No. The last 10 minutes are great, but everything else feels retread, like a retread of the same jokes in the first one. I'm going to repeat a story I've told five times on this show over 10 years, 11 years. Okay. I went to see Borat with my ex-wife when it first came out. And about 20 minutes into it, I said, I, I cannot laugh this hard. I, the, I, yeah. the, he's killing me. He yeah, is. He is absolutely. This is the funniest thing. I. I may have to leave. I'm. The, I am. I have never laughed that hard. Um, before you go, Ben Smith, who used to run BuzzFeed, now covers media for the New York Times. He has an interesting piece Sunday in the New York Times, talking about the return of the gatekeepers. He says that. The Trump administration tried to get the Wall Street Journal to print some crazy story about Hunter Biden's laptop and the Wall Street Journal wouldn't print it because it was garbage. And that what we're learning is that there's an echo chamber on the right where it goes from Breitbart to the Washington Examiner to the Daily Wire to Tucker Carlson, but they need one of the major newspapers to pick up the story, whatever garbage they're spreading, to give it legitimacy. One of the things that's being exposed now is that the right wing sets an agenda that the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal and all the networks, especially CNN and MSNBC, make a meal out of. But it comes from Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon and Breitbart and the uh, Daily Examiner. When the when the Wall Street Journal wouldn't print this story that those guys were trying to get going the story about Hunter Biden pretty much died. And he's saying that we may be returning to old media gatekeepers, that the that the world is desperate now for somebody to differentiate between fact and fiction, good and bad. I think that's true. I think the fact that you can become a comedian because you have a hot podcast or you go on YouTube and you get a million followers, uh, while you may be talented, sometimes having to go through a gatekeeper, sometimes, sometimes it makes you better. Yeah. Um, as long as the gatekeeper um, is the right gatekeeper. And to use your the comedy analogy, um, Jim McCauley from The Tonight Show was a terrible gatekeeper. He kept people out. Well, women, had, certainly women. Certainly women, but I just think he just had terrible taste. Um, and he was terrified of his boss. You can't be a good journalist if you're, uh, if you're terrified of your editor. Well, let's be honest. It was Johnny Carson who, as much as how great, you know, Johnny Carson was great. But he well, was. Well, it's the Howie Mandel. I like the Howie Mandel story, though. You know the Howie Mandel story. 
How, Jim McCauley said to Howie Mandel, you will never work. Not only are you not ready for the show, you will never be ready for the show. Johnny hates that kind of comedy, Howie. He hates it. Then Joan Rivers um, sees Howie at a, at a concert and is coincidentally doing the, hosting the show. And, she, and the guest hosts had a lot of say on who they, they could pick to be on the show and said to Howie, be on my show next week on the, on the Tonight Show. Howie goes and does the Tonight Show, kills, and Johnny calls up uh, Howie's agent and says, I want this guy on my show. Why hasn't he been on my show? Right. And that's just one of many instances where Macaulay did that. Well, so, you know, you have to have um, a sophisticated gatekeeper if you're, go- if you're going to put any power in their hands. I, I think... He said referring to himself. Right. I think the fish heads, <laughs> the, the, the fit fish rots... From Johnny Carson's head down. That, well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm no fan of his as a, as, a, as a human being, that's for sure. Yeah, but he was yeah, great. But, I'm just saying, a lot of the comics, Jim McCauley was just trying to do keep his job, just like anybody else, and it was Carson. No, you shouldn't. No, I think that's a job you should not. You should be um, independent enough to risk losing your job. That's what makes a great geek, gatekeeper. Okay, we got to go to uh, Los Angeles and talk to Howie Klein. I'll talk to you next week before the election. Sounds good. And I will demand not talking about the election at all. Okay. (laughs) Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, if not the world. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, David. Time for thank you. Time for Howie Klein. Somebody just said from Howie Mandel to Howie Klein. Everybody welcome Howie Klein. We got him right here. He's on the line. Howie Klein. Howie Klein. Got a good idea who might be a winner. He tell you why he's cooking up a vegan dinner. Howie Klein. Howie Klein. He's so so smart, he got a lot of brains. He lives in San Diego where it never rains. How we climb. How we climb. What he got to say gonna blow your mind. Put your hands together for how we climb. How we climb. How we climb. Let's go to Los Angeles, where Howie Klein still has not moved. You haven't moved to San Diego yet, have you? That cool. That song is so much cooler than me. <laughs> I don't. Oh, you haven't sent me a copy. I'm going to send it to you. That's the, that's Professor Mike Steinel, and I don't have the courage to say to him, "Can you change it to Los Angeles from San Diego?" It's. I don't all- care. If you- no, he doesn't. I love it. I just love it. I know. He's the best, Professor Mike Steinel. And that's high praise coming from Howie Klein, who ran Reprise Records, Warner Records. And I've just been listening to an audio documentary about The Clash. I forgot. I don't know why I'm bringing this up. I have so much to talk to you about. But I forgot that Sandinista was not well-received. It was by me. <laughs> it was by you, but it, right, it was kind of like a step back in terms of sales, and the critics didn't like Sandinista, right? 
I don't know. I mean, I love Spend the Music. I thought it was the greatest album of its time. And, uh, play, and I was a DJ at the time, and I used to play it constantly. Uh, you know, I, I, I never, I guess no one was, was brave enough to tell me that it wasn't good. <laughs> I remember when it com- came out, thinking it was one of the greatest albums I've ever heard in my life. I remember being young and impressionable and reading that it wasn't a good album, and I went, oh, there must be something wrong with me then. And I do know that the fans in Great Britain felt that The Clash were off off their game. And then Combat Rock was considered their comeback album. Why did they break up? Why did The Clash break up? Oh, I... I I don't remember, to tell you the truth. I was probably like a personality thing. I'm just not sure. Yeah. It's hard for people to get along, isn't it? It's hard for people to... Well, especially for a really long time and all different personalities pulling in different directions and people telling people telling them things. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I, I honestly don't know why they broke up. Let's talk about Down With Tyranny. Must reading. Everybody should go to Down With Tyranny. And everybody should go to the Blue America Pack and give money. By the way, Chokeway, uh, they called the police on him. Did you read about that? Yes, I did. He and, and two other African-American candidates campaigning in a ritzy white suburban neighborhood. I, I called him and he was supposed to do the show today and I'm still waiting back. I almost cried. I was telling somebody about him. And I, and I, I I read that somebody called the police on him for campaigning. And as I was, I I, I felt that he is so special. He is uh, right. Chokeway pitch pitch forward. Yes. He's he's a great candidate. He'll make a great member of the legislature. And it's hard to imagine that it's 2021 and someone you know sees like three black guys and immediately thinks, "Oh my God, they're here to like steal my toilet paper or something." He, uh, I guess it was Saturday afternoon. Two African American Democratic candidates going through a neighborhood in Michigan knocking on doors. One of them was our friend Chokeway Pitchford, who is, how old is he, 24? 21. 21, right? He's very young, yes. And he's a Democratic candidate for Michigan State House. They called the police. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You know, I remember, uh, do, do, you, do you know the name uh, Eddie Medina? Uh, I remember I remember uh, Colonel Callie's uh, commanding officer was named Medina. Benny Medina was the was a lot of things. He was the senior vice president at Warner Brothers. He was um, the model for uh, uh, the young the prince, the young prince of Bel Air, something like that. What was the name of that show? Fresh Prince of Bel Air. That's Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, thank you. Uh, so it was his story, that was his story. He later became the manager for, you know, uh, some of the biggest pop acts in the world. So Benny was a friend of mine, and I remember one day he coming uh, to the, he, uh, the young, the prince. Hello? 
Yeah, he came, he came to the office one day and told me that he was jogging in in his neighborhood. He lived in Beverly Hills, and he he just was wearing a t shirt and shorts and his running shoes, and didn't have his wallet with him. And the police see a young black guy, you know, running in Beverly Hills, and they stopped him. And because he didn't have a uh, a wallet with him, they I don't remember if they actually took him in. Or, or, although they they may have taken him into the precinct, or maybe they just uh, you know ran some kind of a uh, of a check on him somehow, but you just humiliated him, and you know and why black guy running around running in Beverly Hills? I mean that that's what young uh, young black guys have to face every day. I mean uh, you know when they don't get uh, you know beaten or or shot, they're you know they're lucky. Yeah. Well, chokeway for 79th.org. Everybody, it, it, we got a week. Let's give him money. He's running for state representative in Michigan. Go to chokeway for 79th.org. That's C H O K W E F O R, the number seven, the number nine, T H dot org. Give him money. Cover your ears, Howie. He's endorsed okay. by Howie Klein from the Blue America PAC. That's all you need to know. If you're an American citizen or a resident, go to Chokeway for 79th.org, Chokeway Pitchford. He is... Blue, Blue America. Uh, we opened a, uh, like a, a pack that we hadn't had open all year, and we just opened it over the weekend. And, and it's called uh, Abandoned by the DCCC. So the, the, the people on this pack are all basically the people that we've had on the show, uh, they're all running for Congress. They've all won their primaries. And all of them have a good chance of winning their races. They're not like really, you know, tremendous long shots. They're people that have put in the work and the effort who have good uh, teams and are, you know, in many cases are either tied or, or, or gaining momentum. Uh, And and the DCCC has decided not to back them. In in a few of the cases, they've given them a small amount of money, but very small. When the DCCC wants to back somebody, they give them $5 million, not not $50,000. And and some of these people, the DCCC wouldn't even give $50,000 or anything, not even a nickel. Uh, So we're trying to raise money for them now and for the rest of um, the rest of the cycle. That, that, that's it. This week, it's all about these uh, abandoned by the DCCC candidates. And the DCCC will say things like, uh, well, you're really too progressive for the district. So, you know, some of these races were so close last time that the DCCC should like, just think, like, maybe they shouldn't be saying things like that. Right. Uh, but... I mean, like Nate, Nate um, we had Nate on the show, right? Nate McMurray? No. Oh, we never did? Oh, we should have. No. Uh, you know, he, I mean, he, he, he lost his race by just a, a, a few votes. And he's a, an ardent progressive campaigning on the things that working people in his district want to hear. And yet, the, even though he, only, he, he won, he lost by far a far more narrow uh, band than uh, many of the DCCC candidates who they spent millions on when they spent nothing on him. And they won't spend any money on him again this time. And he's very, very close again. But, you know, all they say is he's, he's too uh, too progressive for the district. 
All right, let's talk about Joe Biden last Thursday. Before we get to... Before we get into Joe Biden, let me just say something else. No one knows this, so this is breaking news. Okay. Joe Biden's campaign, which is, you know, which is uh, Midas, uh, just gave the DCCC $5 million. And the DCCC has lots of money also, uh, like $100 million, uh, that they can they can spend this week. And, they, and, and Biden just gave them another $5 million. And... Some of these, some of these candidates, if they just had 20 grand, if they just had 50 grand, they could bring their races home. And, you know, I'm encouraging them all to call Cherry Bustos and call, uh, Nancy Pelosi and, and give them a, uh, you know, a plan and say to them, look, all I need is this to do this and I can win this race. Uh, you know, Biden just handed them five million dollars that they didn't have budgeted. They don't, they don't have anything necessarily to do with, with that money. And, you know, they should spend it on some progressives for a change. But, and if they and don't... About some, uh, some stupid debate or something? Well, I wanted to ask you, first of all, that money, will it be spent by Tuesday? Yes. It will be spent? Yeah, it will be. Okay. Let's talk about what happened during the debate, because you have a piece... Over down with tyranny. It was on Saturday. Any blue will do. Screw that. I thought Trump did a pretty good job cornering Biden, getting him to say that he believes health insurance, if you can afford it, is a human right. (laughs) And I mean, what a son of a bitch not to not to come out in favor of at least Medicare for kids. Biden couldn't say Medicare for kids at the debate. And then he said, I support fracking. And then something slipped out of his mouth. You wrote about this. What slipped out of Biden's mouth? And it wasn't his teeth this time. His tongue. Uh, <laughs> what slipped out of his mouth? I, Saturday is so long ago. He said that the oil companies are eventually going to go out of business. And, really? he, and then he oh. had to walk that back. I saw it. I watched that part. And he said that... Uh, he actually was more aggressive than that. Uh, he said that um, the oil companies should go out of business, really. And and then an hour later, he you know got a little press gaggle together and basically said, "I didn't mean it that way," and right. and backed completely from saying what made what you know one of the things that he said that made a lot of sense. I mean, he doesn't always make a lot of sense, but he did at that moment and then backed away from it. So. And this led you to write over down with Terry a piece called Who Can Save the Democratic Party from Itself? Because, well, that was the cat of the picture, actually. Right. Yeah. And there are all these blue dogs who are taking money from the oil industry. And the That's new right. Dems. Blue dogs and new Dems. They're, they're basically... Um, financed by corporate America, by Wall Street, oil companies in some cases. You know, uh, I, I, I've gone beyond that now uh, into, uh, into a story that I can't, well, more than one candidate has told me this, but basically um, what they're telling me is that new Dems uh, incumbents are coming to them now and saying, if you want to get elected, Stop talking about not taking PAC money. Now, I don't know one voter. I've never run across a, a voter uh, 
who who would be uh, be opposed to someone saying they're not going to take PAC money. It's amazing to me, but yet you know that's what that's what members of Congress are telling some of these candidates. Don't tell people that you don't want to take PAC money. Now I think the reason that they're saying that is because when candidates say that, it makes these these people who do take PAC money look bad. That, that, that's my opinion. But um, and then the other thing that they're telling these candidates is um, don't. Let people know that you are you are associated with Bernie. Don't don't uh, don't draw attention to that. I mean, it, it, it's so to me this this attitude from these blue, blue dogs and new dems is so repulsive and so disgusting that I I don't think of them as being in the same party uh, as progressives. They're you know I call I call it the uh, the Republican wing of the Democratic Party right. and. And, and, and it's very, very powerful and gaining in power, uh, unfortunately. Right. And Nancy Pelosi has turned 80 and she's made it clear that she will be running for speaker again when, yeah. not if, the Democrats keep the House. There's no way the Democrats are losing the House, correct? No way. Well, I mean, never say never. But right. The, the, right now, the Democrats are... Um, Look like they're going to gain considerable number of seats. They're not. not they're not going to lose the house. They're going to get, become more powerful in the house. How is our friend Dr. Liam O'Mara doing down in Riverside, California? It, you know, I ask him frequently, and he says he's doing well. He's an, another one of these candidates. You know, one is primary, endorsed by the California Democratic Party. And uh, he has lots and lots of um, stuff that he can show the D Triple C about why this is a winnable race and how well he's doing. And they they refuse to speak with him about it. They don't want to know about it. They've given him nothing, and they're not interested in him or his race. Their attitude again too progressive for the district. He when he was on the show, he said that he was getting some help from the D Triple C. Maybe from the P triple C, certainly not from the D triple C. They're giving you no no help at all. What is the P triple C? The P triple C is a uh, is a is a progressive pack that that uh, helps progressive candidates the way you know in similar ways to Blue America. I see. Well, let's talk about abandoned by the D triple C. Yes, that is. That is uh, so you've got, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the kitchen. Uh, so why don't you read the, uh, the list of candidates? Can you do that? OK, this is Sunday, October 25th, 2020, from Down with Tyranny, abandoned by the DCCC. And there's a list of candidates that Howie mentions, and they include Adam Christensen. He's 27 years old. We had him on the show. He's running for Ted Yoho's seat in Florida. Liam he, just, he just turned 27 uh, last week, so he's barely 27. And Liam O'Mara uh, and yes. Shri, who is Shri Kulkarni? You no, can't. no, he's not. He's he's the opposite of these candidates. So what I was thinking, I was thinking you would do would go, be going to the um, to, to the to the page, the donation page for uh, uh, you know. If you just press on on the uh, the thermometer, you get to the donation page for abandoned by the DCCC. Those are the candidates. Now, Sri Kulkarni is a very very conservative 
um, sort of corporate-friendly Democrat. He's the worst of the worst. The DCCC just uh, has spent $6 million trying to get him elected, and he, you know, he's really bad. He's going to be a terrible member of Congress if he wins. Uh, you know, and I don't want to say, I don't want to accuse anybody of uh, being a, a, a coke fiend, so I won't. But, uh, you know, he's awful. He's just absolutely awful. Okay, I'm looking at who's been abandoned by the DCCC, and it's Adam Christensen, so you want people to give money to him. Uh, yeah, he doesn't need a lot of money to, to uh, fulfill his, uh, his program. He, he needs a little bit more money, and, uh, and, and actually we sent out a letter this weekend, and, and it is working. He's getting quite a, quite a bit of money uh, coming in. Not enough, but, uh, uh, you know, he's got a shot there. Okay. In a district that the D, that the DCCC, by the way, never contests. Their attitude is, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is a conservative area, and uh, and it's 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 not worth our uh, our efforts. And the fact of the matter is that the main county, the county with the most people in it, is Alachua County, which is which is a all blue county, and it is um, uh, it, it's where Gainesville is, and you know, to get people there. And excited about going out to vote, and and that's what Adam is doing. He's on the, he's on the ground every day with his team, trying to get people to go out to vote. And to do that could make the difference between Biden winning or losing Florida. Florida is always a very close state. If Biden wins, he's going to win by a point or two, and if Trump wins, he's going to win by a point or two. The fact that Adam is out there campaigning is going to bring more people in. Presumably, people who vote come in to vote for Adam are going to vote for Biden as well. And the DCCC just refuses to see that. Okay. Abandoned by the uh, DCCC, if you go to Down With Tyranny and hit the thermometer, It'll take you to a landing page that lists all the good Democrats, how he has introduced you to on this show. No, no, this is a specific page about just about Democrats who are abandoned by the DCCC. In other words, there are some really good Democrats. Yeah, I have it shown. It's Mike Siegel, J.D. Shulton, Liam O'Mara, Julie Oliver, John Hoadley, Audrey Denny, Adam Christensen. Those, that's the list, Correct. It's a small list, yes. Yeah, it, yeah. It's a small, targeted list. You can, you know, I think there are seven people there all together. You can give yeah. each one of them $10, or it'll cost you 70 bucks. It's worth it. But uh, Well, let's go through them. Mike Siegel. Candidates that we've endorsed, like Kara uh, Eastman and like uh, Dana Bolta, they're not on that list because the DCCC was was too embarrassed not to put them on the list for for various reasons the DTRIP did put them on their list and is helping them significantly with money so they're not people who I think need the last minute money they'd kill me for saying that but I don't think they need the last minute money the way these other candidates do okay Texas 10 Mike Siegel how could yes. how could the DCCC not support Mike Siegel too progressive for the district but he's running against a fascist, Mc- a racist fascist. Yes, Michael McCall, one of the richest members of Congress. And the, the, the people at the DCCC don't really hate him. They, you know, he's, he's okay. They, they kind of like him. 
just like they, they like Fred Upton. You know, they, they, they kind of like these guys, and they're not, they're not anxious to get rid of them. I'm not saying they're going to campaign for Michael McCall or Fred Upton, but, they, they, you know, they play, they play footsie with them. They're, they're friendly towards them. You, I'm sure you'll remember, since I think you're one of your regular callers once brought it up, she was, had a, didn't have the story exactly right, but what she said was that Biden uh, endorsed uh, Fred Upton. Now, he didn't actually endorse Fred Upton, right. but he was friendly towards Fred Upton in a way that hurt the Democrat who was running against him. He showed up for a dinner honoring him like two weeks before 2016? Yeah, they're, right. they're friendly. Yeah. That's the point yeah. that I'm making. Establishment Democrats like Biden and like the Detroit people, they, they, they don't have the same feelings that we do about some of these uh, some of these Republicans, they, you know, they're okay with them, and they're not going to go out of their way to try to help a progressive. I mean, they definitely hate progressives more than they hate these mainstream conservative Republicans. Uh, there's no question about that. They really hate. They really hate them. I mean, imagine this member of Congress calling up one of the candidates and telling her, "Do not be associated with Bernie Sanders." I mean, what the heck? And Bernie Sanders, by the way, has raised her more money than anyone else in Congress. He's done several events for her, sent out letters to his own followers for her, really trying to help her win. And here's this other uh, uh, Democrat from her own state telling her, you know, back away from uh, Bernie Sanders. He's he's uh, he's poison. Right. That's how they see it. I'm telling you, I'm not exaggerating. These conservative Democrats hate progressives. They don't want progressives to win. They would rather a mainstream Republican stay in office than help elect a progressive. A progressive is a nightmare for them. This is the same guy that was saying, don't tell people uh, that you're, you're not taking PAC money. Why would he say that to her? He's saying that to her because he takes PAC money, lots of it, tons of it. He's corrupt. He takes lots and lots of PAC money, and then, and then he's... He, and there are strings attached. When you get tax money, there are strings. And that's, that is his career. That's what he is all about. And he's telling her, basically, you know, it makes me, it makes me look bad when you're saying don't take tax money because it makes it look like there's something wrong with taking tax money. Well, there is something wrong with taking tax money, and voters know it and don't like it. Wasn't McCall responsible for African-Americans being unduly convicted for drug crimes they didn't commit? I'm sure that he had part of that. But Before he, he went to Congress? Yeah. Best known as the person who put together Trump's uh, border policy, uh, working with um, Stephen Miller. He's the one that came up with the brilliant idea of putting children in cages and uh, ripping children away from their families. That, that's his, he was the head of the, uh, of the Homeland Security Committee, um, and, and they came up with that brilliant idea. He came up with that brilliant idea. Right. He's one of the wealthiest men in Congress because he married into that wealth, correct? He is the wealthiest man in the, in the House. Right, because he, mar- he, he married money, right? He married the yes, money. He married the, uh, the heiress to iHeartRadio. Oh, fantastic. Julie I mean, Oliver had, in Texas, uh, I hear she has, a, she has a chance. Why isn't the DCCC getting behind her? Who? Julie Oliver, Texas 25. 
Julie Oliver is, 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 again, it's the same story. They say this is a conservative district and we, we don't want a uh, progressive in this district. Julie Oliver is a super progressive. Julie Oliver, take my word for it. She's in the squad the next day if she gets elected. Uh, there's two polls, that, there's only two polls that are public that are out now. She's, she's uh, exactly tied with Roger Williams in both of them. So that's where the DCCC should come in with a few million dollars and do something for her. Instead, they come in with nothing, zero. And they're spending $100 million in Montana for Bullock for Senate. Well, that's, that's a different, that's a different, that's not the DCCC. I know, the, uh, I know, but the yeah. Democrats have $100 million to spend in Montana for Bullock. There are a million people living in Montana. That's a, what does that come out to, like $500 a vote? Because not, know, not they, all million, you don't get a million votes. The money. And, they, and Bullock would win. Bullock isn't bad, by the way. I mean, he's not my idea of a Democrat, but he's not a bad one. I, I mean, most of the... Uh, most of the candidates who, who um, Schumer has picked, like him, are actually bad. They're going to do bad things, and uh, we're better off without them. But Bullock isn't, a, isn't one of them. He, he's a moderate Democrat. And when I say moderate, I mean moderate. I don't mean conservative. He's not a conservative. He's a moderate Democrat. He's a decent guy. He's done a, a pretty good job as governor. And if I lived in Montana, I would vote for him. Okay. Our, our friend... Most of uh, Schumer's candidates, I, our, I wouldn't vote for. Our friend J.D. Shulton, who's running for Steve King's old seat, he would he would be winning if Steve King, the racist, the white nationalist, had he been running for re-election, he dropped out. If he, he had, didn't drop out, he was he was kicked out. He lost his primary. Did he lose his primary? Yeah, he did. He absolutely uh, lost okay. his primary. And the guy who's running now is just, uh, you know, Steve King light. He isn't much different from Steve King. And uh, he's, uh, you know, he's in the state legislature. He's somewhat well-known. He's not as, you know, he's not as abrasive as Steve King. Uh, but J.D. is well-known throughout the district. This guy's just well-known in his own state legislative district. J.D. has been doing this for three years, and he's a real man and uh, people like him. And again, polling is within the margin of error. And now he's an interesting case because the DCCC did offer to give him money. All they said was that he has to change his message and his team. They said, we'll give you, um, we'll give you the people we want to run your campaign, and you can't be talking all this progressive stuff anymore. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And you can money and shove it up your ass and yeah. refuse refuse their money. Good Which for is, him. Good thing, exactly. Very, very few people do that, including people who I even like wouldn't do that. Right. These are great people. We've had them on the show. Mike Siegel is a great man. Great lawyer. J.D. Shulton, great man. Adam Christensen, 27, give him money. Liam O'Mara, Dr. Liam O'Mara, we've had him on the show. Great man. Great man. Julie Oliver, haven't had her on yet. Tell me who John Holdley is in Michigan 6. John Holdley is, is a state legislator uh, from that area, and he's running for Congress against Fred Upton, who we've just been right, talking about. Right. And he and he's he's basically uh, he's been he's been Upton has been attacking him because he's gay. Uh, he's upfront about being gay. He's married 
and and very you know proud of his his, his spouse, and uh, you know and, and the D Triple C says no, we we can't have that. This is a conservative district. That's not going to fly. Well, it hasn't stopped him from being elected to the state legislature and being reelected to the state legislature. But the D Triple C thinks they know better. Okay. And finally, Audrey Denny, California One. Where is California One? It's in the uh, the northeast corner of the state, where California, Nevada, and Oregon come together. It's a it's a rural district. It's very red, all plus eleven, um, and um, there's a, a non-entity a Republican uh, named Doug LaMalfa, who's the congressman now. It's a very rural district. She's a farmer. She's, uh, you know, people look at her and they think she's a model, but she's actually a farmer and also teaches agriculture at one of the state universities up there. So it's, you know, Redding, Chico, uh, you know, that area, Shasta. Right, right. And uh, again, DCCC absolutely refuses to do a thing for her, will not help her. Uh, She's a great candidate. She'd make an amazing member of Congress and they don't want to know about it. Well, how does, before you go, how optimistic are you? I'm going to ask you. I am too super, super optimistic. I am optimistic there's going to be a wave that's going, it's, it's an anti-Trump wave. It's anything but a blue wave. I mean, anyone who tells you a blue wave means they don't, they're not using their head to think. There is no blue wave. A blue wave would mean that people are voting because they love the Democrats or something the Democrats are trying to do. They're not. They're voting against Trump and against his Republican enablers. That's it. Okay, very quickly, Pete in L.A., unmute yourself, and then we, we have a, we have to wrap it up. Pete in L.A. Yeah, hi, Howie. Hey, Pete. Yes, can you hear me? Hi. Yeah, where do you live in L.A.? Um, in Sherman Oaks. Okay, I know where that is. Uh-huh. It's adjacent to Van Nuys. I, I know, and Studio City. Yeah. My question is, have you ever heard I, I got an um, I was messaged by your friend, David uh, Ethan Hershenfeld, who was talking about MVP. Like, it stands for Movement Voter Project. Have you heard of that, Howie? No. And who, and who did you say? Uh, you broke up a little bit, so I didn't see. The MV, Ethan Hershenfeld, who does this show all the time, he talked about MVP, the Movement Voter Program. Where are they located? I don't know, but there's a Zoom for them tomorrow, um, a Zoom meeting that we're all invited to, you know, and I passed it on to some of my friends, and they asked for donations. It sounded like your Blue America pack. To me, you know, it was like uh, an organization that donates to the progressive candidates or races or issues around the country. Uh, That's my understanding of what it is. Good. Well, if I if I saw a list of candidates uh, who they're um, endorsing, I would be able to tell you immediately if they were like Blue America or not. There are a lot of uh, nice sounding organizations. Uh, and then they're giving to blue dogs and new dems because they don't know the difference between one Democrat and another. In fact, I wound up uh, trying to school uh, Andrew Yang the other day. He was pushing his list of endorsed candidates, and I took a look at it, and it starts off with some really good candidates, the, some of the best uh, that were running for anything. And then as you read down, it's one holla after another. I mean, 
uh, Frackenlooper or Hickenlooper or whatever his name is, and all these conservative Democrats. Right. But you have to be really careful, um, you know, when you when you're taking advice from someone. It's, it's really better to look into it yourself, to use it as a guide, and then look at someone's record and see who they really are and what they're really for. Because once they get in, there's a very good chance they're going to be in for a very long time. I have a great question, and then you got to go. This is from Landrew. Howie, what is the early tell on who won the election? So Tuesday, what's going to signify to you that Trump or Biden won? Well, okay. That's a great question. question. It's a great question. So first of all, one of the states that comes in really early, um, that's that's really pivotal, is North Carolina. So if Biden... If, if Trump loses North Carolina, that's it. It's over for him. Obama if, won it in 2008, right? Obama won it in 2008, and Trump won it in 2016. Right. But, um, you know, if, uh, Biden doesn't have to win North Carolina. Trump does. If Biden wins or even comes close in North Carolina, it's going to be a really good night for Democrats. So that's going to be one of the earliest signals um, that we get early in the evening. Uh, and then, or, yeah. And then, of course, Florida is going to be very meaningful. If the Republicans can't, if it's not close enough for DeSantis and his cronies to steal Florida, that is another indication that, uh, Trump lost. Because there's no path to victory without Florida for, for Trump. Right. I said to Congressman Alan Grayson, he didn't respond to this. Could this be the election that is the final nail in Ohio and Florida's relevance? Could this be when we stop hearing finally about Florida and Ohio? Of course not. I don't know. Why would you say that? Florida has has 29 electoral votes. We're never going to not hear from Florida but Nevada seems pretty solid for the Democrats. Arizona, I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe we can give Florida and Ohio to Trump, and Biden still wins big. Yeah, yeah, we, we can, but we, we there's no reason to. Okay. I think that Florida is going to come right down to the, to the line. Okay. Um, we got to go. Howie Klein, looking forward to next week the night before the election. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC and read him it down with tyranny and do what he says. Do what Howie Klein says. Thank you, Howie. Use my my, uh, endorsements as a guide to do your own research. That's what Howie Klein says. Or just do what Howie Klein says. Thank you, Howie. (laughs) Oh, David. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Coming up, Ed Larson. Everybody welcome Howie Klein. We got him right here. He's on the line. Howie Klein. Howie Klein. Got a good idea who might be a winner. He tell you why he's cooking up a vegan dinner. Howie Klein. Howie Klein. So, so smart, he got a lot of brains. He lives in San Diego where it never rains. Howie Klein. Howie Klein. 
What do you got to say? Gonna blow your mind. Put your hands together for how we climb, how we climb, how we climb. There's an old saying in show business. If, <laughs> if you can't get Jeff Ross, keep going down the list until you hit the bottom and end up with Ed Larson. Please welcome comedian Ed Larson. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Gary. You know what has surprised me is my audience. I got so much fan mail for you. That I really? almost, yeah, and I almost sent some of it to you, but then I didn't want you to feel good about yourself. My audience loves you. <laughs> they do. And I said, no, no, no. I'm just using him to get to Jeff Ross. He's a stepping stone. He's a means to an end. <laughs> but my art, when is he going to be back? When is he going to be back? Wait a second. I may not need Jeff Ross. Hey, Ed Larson, in all seriousness. Is What's a, going on? Is a comedian, and his new movie is on Vimeo. Everybody should go download and pay for How America Killed My Mother. We all grieve differently. You're coming back as much as you possibly can to talk about this movie because you're right. America killed your mother. I want to talk about that briefly because we've gone over it a couple of times, and I. Yeah, want to discuss the election, sure. but very quickly, plug the movie. Of course, um, the movie's available on HowAmericaKilledMyMother.com. Uh, you can rent or purchase it on Vimeo. Um, after my mom passed away in 2016, unexpectedly from diabetes, I, um, I was very mad. I was pissed off. I didn't know what to do. Um, I was beside myself, and I, I, I knew it wasn't right. I knew it wasn't her fault. Uh, I know she made some bad decisions, but I knew it wasn't her fault. So I took her life insurance money and I made a film about everything that led to her death. And when I say America killed my mother, a lot of people just say, oh, yeah, the government, the government. It's not just the government. It's the way we live our lives as Americans. It's how we are rewarded for uh, screwing other people over. We're giving bonuses. We're getting raises for not helping people. And that needs to change. If we're ever going to progress as a society, the money's got to not got to go somewhere else other than up. It, 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 we need to spread it out. And people are dying every day. My mom's case is not unique, um, which is the most horrifying part of all this. I found out recently from ever since I've done this, the messages I've gotten from people with terrifying, awful stories that, are much worse than mine and it's just heartbreaking and i ever since i've released the movie like i've been brought to tears like every day from some random story from someone who had to say goodbye to a loved one whether it be their mother or their their daughter their child their their brother their sisters their best friends you know a uh, gofundme is not health insurance no. and you know it's so it's we need to figure something out. I mean, how many GoFundMe's have you given to because someone got cancer? Like it's you know we should be able to rally together without having to pull into our pockets directly. And uh, things are messed up right now, and they got to change. And all the way from how much medicine costs 
to predatory casinos, to predatory banks. Uh, things need to change. And it's easy. I'm not asking for much. I'm asking for banks to stop with the overdraft fees. And I'm asking for uh, casinos to stop taking checks. You know, stuff like that. Easy, first step shit. And I, it's, uh, we're really hoping that uh, some more of that will get accomplished. And, uh, you know, and I wanted to make sure this movie came out before uh, the election. Yeah. And so, because, uh, you know, my mom died when Obama was president. And so it's not the government. Uh, we I, we hate Trump for uh, for his casino predatory, for his predatory casinos and all that stuff. So uh, we've, we've hated him a long time in my family. We hated right. him when he screwed over my Uncle Joe on a roofing job instead of paying him. You know, he's a classic villain. Did Uncle you know? Joe move a little slow? <laughs> Uncle Joe is killing it. He was a roofer. And uh, when he came to hand uh, Trump the bill, he said, I'm not paying it, sue me. And, you know, that's fortunate what he did to a lot of mom and pop places who can't afford to go to court. You know, it costs them more to collect on the bill uh, than to collect on the bill. So I know people whose father got ripped off. Similar story to Uncle Joe's. Mm-hmm. And they're still voting for Trump. I mean, you can't help everybody. You can't. <laughs> it's like it's this country used to make things. We used to manufacture things. Now we manufacture ways to rip other people off. Casinos, mm-hmm. banks, these excessive fees, baggage fees. Delta is probably they're now putting 500 people on a no-fly list. I guarantee you the only way they're going to find out that they're on the list is when they check their credit card and they're charged $500 for a no you know, no-fly list processing fee. It's just all yeah. these hidden fees. I have to rent a car tomorrow mm-hmm. and oh, good luck. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and already Enterprise has sent me a $27 fee for a toll according to Enterprise, it cost me $27 to go over the George Washington Bridge the last time I rented a car. Now I have to invest an hour of my life to get on the phone with Enterprise. That's how they win. Yes. It's not worth an hour to you. $27 isn't worth an hour to you. Right. You know, you make more than that an hour. Well, don't don't get ahead of yourself there. But... You don't know who you're talking to. That's a nice lamp, you know. Those things don't buy themselves. Yes. So you find them on the street. Let's talk about your your podcasts and Absolutely. your and your stand up and the election. Oh, that sounds great. Buddy. Have you voted? Oh, before the first time we talked. Trump, right? You're still a Trump guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love him. He's great. Uh, I'm rooting for him, and uh, I hope that uh, it's the moment he gets in. Uh, I, I mean, I hate him with all my heart, Dave. What are we doing here? Do you hate? Uh, uh, do you hate <laughs> Biden with all your heart? I mean, I don't. You know, I don't. I, I don't particularly love him, but I don't like to talk about that right now. I'll talk about that in two weeks. You know, the, the way I look at Biden is, I, I love him right now, and then I want to make his life miserable on November fifth. <laughs> how do you see this playing out i mean i don't know man i just came back from new jersey and i didn't see one biden anything the entire time i was there 
I didn't see it was Trump and Blue Lives Matter flags everywhere. And I was all over the state. I was in Tom's River. I was out by Fort Dix. You know, you would think all the crap he talks about the military. They just love him so much. It makes me insane. And it's just like everyone else, like you say one kind of missed thing about the military and the, you're, you're dead forever. Trump can say whatever the fuck he wants and no one cares. And then uh, and then in Northern Jersey, he was all, I didn't see any Biden stuff there. And I saw lots of Trump stuff there, too, which is usually very blue around Newark and Elizabeth. Right. But I don't think anyone. The problem is, I don't think anyone's excited to put a Biden sticker in their front yard or a Biden sign in their front yard. We're just going to vote for him. You know, I think that's a kind of the problem here. Right. You know, Hillary had signs everywhere. You know, I haven't seen anything for Biden. I do in Los Angeles. I see it all the time. You know, do you think these signs? I mean, I'd be afraid to tell anybody who I was voting for. I, I, I would think, you know, why draw attention to it? I mean, you do five hours a day on who to vote for, Dave. But not on my car. <laughs> Why would I want people? I want people to leave me alone when I'm driving. I would be terrified to have I people. Guess so. Do you think, think the polls are accurate? Because if I were voting for Trump, somebody mm-hmm. calls me. First of all, I'm not going to answer my phone. I've never been polled. Yeah, I mean, all, it's never happened to me. I don't know who makes the polls. You know, I don't believe anything until after the court, after the Supreme Court case, after the election. That's what I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe anything. But you know, is anybody going to say because they show Biden in double digits? Who's going to tell a pollster? Yeah, I hate black people. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I'm not so keen on the Jews, women, the LGBTQ community, and the Hispanics. Write that yeah. down. And you have my phone number. Nice chatting with you. Who would <laughs> who would talk who would talk to a pollster? You'd be surprised, man. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I think a lot of people would just to get it off their chest. But I don't people, think I you know, there's that it's the Thomas Bradley effect. They call it when he was he was an African-American mayor of Los Angeles who was running, I believe, for governor of California. 80s, late 80s, I think. And he was leading in the polls because they were calling around the state of California and everybody said, uh, I'm not, I think he was running against Pete Wilson. Nobody, mm-hmm. People said, I'm voting for Bradley because they didn't want anybody to know that they were racist. Especially in California. Yeah. But you go to McKinney, Texas, you're praised for being racist. So, you know, that's all fine and good. Growing up... I never really believed I, that the people around me were racist. I always yeah. thought it was someplace else. It was down south. And I always thought they were joking. They were trying to get a rise. They were trying to get a rise out of me. Yeah. Well, it's all, it was four years ago. Every joke we ever told our lives in jest became real life serious right. and not funny anymore. Right. You know, and it was just, you know, we were all in for a rude awakening, you know, like, oh, half the people that were laughing at that joke were laughing at it because they actually believe that. Right. 
Right. Okay. Oh God. Right. <laughs> what have I been doing? What am I? Right. <laughs> How has comedy changed for you? It's changed for me in the past four years. You know, it has changed. And I used to be really dirty, really controversial comedian. Um, I would say anything. I, you know, it was, I didn't care because it was edgy and it was fun and all that stuff. But, you know, despite the fact that, you know, it's just like not allowed anymore or not, I wouldn't say not allowed, but there's consequences. And, you know, I don't care about any of that. Uh, it's old. It's old material. Write new jokes. You know, when, when I hear someone tell a woman to make them a sandwich, it was like, okay, maybe that was funny in 1950. But, you know, let's update the material. How about that? I agree with you. At the bare minimum. I agree with you. Yeah, like the N-word will never be funny again. And if you think it is, you're wrong. You don't know what comedy is. You're trying to make an audience laugh, not mad. You know, what do you think think we're doing? It's our job to make people happy. And if you're saying shit that's pissing people off, you're not doing your job correctly. And, you know, as a that's how I feel. I mean, like the guy who gets the most laughs, you know, you might not agree with him. You might think he's hacky, but, you know, he's doing his job. He's going out there and he's cheering everyone up, especially these days. You do, know, do you think laughing is a safety valve that? Absolutely. May, well, but do you think that laughing at certain types of jokes actually in some people's minds, make the problem go away. In other words, if you laugh, for example, uh, joking about some kind of tragedy that could have been prevented. Yeah. I've been, I mean, t- I've been told it's okay to make jokes about it because it's, you know, don't leave things unsaid and it's funny and that's how we heal. But... If you're laughing at something that could have been prevented, the laughter is healing and maybe the audience doesn't deserve to be healed. Maybe they don't deserve the laughs. Maybe they deserve to just think about how they sat by and did nothing about it. Do you know what the unspoken tragedy of 9-11 is? What? Never forget used to belong to the elephants. That's a funny, stupid, harmless joke. Right? I like that. (laughs) Well, see, now, to me, 9-11, here's the thing about 9-11. I do think it's because nobody owns 9-11 and it's a shared grief that we're Mm -hmm. all entitled to make jokes about it. Nobody owns yeah. 9-11. And when you do allow people to own 9-11, they use it to invade the wrong country. <laughs> they, they take it and they co-opt it for political reasons. So and I've always felt that joking about 9-11, as long as you know, you can joke about COVID because mm-hmm. we're all going through it, some more than others. But it's a shared experience. Yeah. But then we're going to find it. On the other hand, then we're going to find out that it's not a shared experience because it's different when Melania gets COVID-19 and somebody without access to remdesivir gets COVID-19. So the best jokes are the ones that make fun of the rich Republicans who survive COVID-19. It, it, I mean, it is complicated. 
Comedy is a lot more complicated than good comedy is more complicated than people realize. I have one thing that as I've gotten older, something I don't like to joke about anymore is people less fortunate than me. Right. I don't think it's funny anymore. I used to have like jokes about homeless and stuff that I really don't wish. I wish I never said. You know, right. and I, I didn't know it back then, and I know it now, and stuff like that. But uh, it, to me, now it's punching. You always punch up, always. You know, you never punch down, and uh, I think that's you know very important when it comes to comedy. And right. a lot of people do it. You know, there used to be like safety and just saying things are gay, you right. know, and stuff like that. That used to be funny. It's not funny anymore. No, now it's retarded. To, <laughs> it's retarded to say something's gay. Did I, am I, did I miss the point of what you were trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I, this is what, this is, now, of course, somebody's going to take that out of context. I was just reading about Sarah Silverman, one of her tweets getting taken out of context. Now, sometimes oh, yeah. you can say something horrible, ironically, to make a point, but it's always misunderstood and taken out of context. And Sarah Silverman had a couple of her tweets taken out of context. But I, you know, I tell certain people the funniest thing in the world is to punch down. It's much funnier in terms of gut laughs. Punching yeah. punching down is funnier than punching up. But you're not going to get paid <laughs> to punch down. You're going <laughs> to get paid <laughs> To punch up. We'll let the open micers punch down. We'll let the That's right. Who are like struggling for a dollar a sandwich and eating a roll and butter and a banana for their meals today to punch down. You know, as you start getting success, I think you should start getting that out of your act. And right. If you're going to punch down, make sure you're punching your children. Right. Dan, can you isolate that track so we, we have something on him? We can we can own him. Just pull that out. Punching down will always be funnier than punching up because you're yeah. not supposed to do it. That's why mm-hmm. it's funnier. If you're not supposed to do something, it's more fun. But anybody can punch down. Well, like, it's like a USO show. You go to a USO show, the first thing you do is you make fun of the general. You know, that's the mm-hmm. first, you know, so you get the, you get everyone on your side. Oh, you know? really? So, yeah. Oh, I thought because it was, you, ma- thought it was you, you make fun of the guys right up front. Uh, I mean, you can do that, <laughs> no, too. No. Actually, <laughs> actually... Our friend Jeff Ross, mm-hmm. if you go look at his specials, that's one of the great things about Jeff Ross is he brings everybody in and like that prison show. So much fun. And he brought people up and was able to make fun of guys in prison. And it was hard to do, but he reminded anybody who watched that is we're all part of the human condition yeah. and it, you know, you can make fun of people in prison. You can roast people in prison. They want to be roasted, you know, and what Jeff pulls off, which is spectacular is he will make fun of somebody uh, for having something that may or may not be something that, they're comfortable with, but by yeah. he does it in a way that he 
He reminds us that we're all part of the human condition. We all have something that may or may not be a taboo that, you know, a third rail. And he touches that third rail and uh, is able to do it. And and it let it it's healing. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that jail special in particular, I mean, he also yeah, he may have like made fun of the gap in the guy's teeth. But, you know, we also like we were there for three days. We've also shared their story and what they're going through. And, you know, if they had kids at home and like wanting to get better and rehabilitate, you know, we were I, I worked as a writer and a producer on that. And we were in that jail for three days before we even shot. And then the fourth day we shot the we shot the film and it was about getting to know everybody and like learning about. Yeah, but you got to know them a little. We don't want to talk about that. I don't. <laughs> I've played. Anyway, we have to go. But Dr. Harriet Fraud is here. Will you come back next week, Ed? Um, sure. If yeah, I can't get anybody better, will you come? <laughs> if everybody else cancels on me and I'm uh, I'm down to D list podcasters, would you, would you come great. on? I would love to, Dave. Glad Thank you for friend. all the respect that you always show me and punching up. And uh, <laughs> Ed and I worked on some shows together. Some of the happiest moments. Remember um, the one thing I'd love to just bring as a robot? I was just thinking about this the other day. The highly sensitive support group. Do you remember them? It was like the overly, it was like a support group for overly sensitive people. Oh, it was a remote that we did, right? It was a remote for the burn. And then we sent Jeff to go make fun of all the really sensitive people. Yes. And they like became best friends with us. They came to the studio. We didn't still. To this day, we're still in their newsletter like six years later. So it, that it's, was it's, one of the funniest writing rooms I've uh, ever been in. That was, it was like, because yeah, it, it was a college was, for me. Between yeah. you and Ferrucci and Chris Regan, I feel like I learned more in those six months than than my whole, you know, rest of my comedy career. And Jeff told me I could come in at one every day. And I'd mm -hmm. come in and I would take a nap for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd walk you home. <laughs> That's right. Everybody should go to Venmo, not Venmo, Vimeo. Vimeo, Vimeo. Vimeo or Venmo. How America Killed My Mother. <laughs> we all grieve differently. And how do you grieve? I'll, I'll, let's use this as an intro to Dr. Harriet Fraud. How do you grieve well, I grieve. I grieve out in the open. I don't hide it. I uh, I wear it on my sleeve. If I'm sad, you know, if I know that I'm not going to be fun, I won't go out, you know. But, uh, you know, if, if you ask me, I'm not going to lie. I'll tell you what's up. Okay. You, know, if you, you know, that's that's how I grieve. Fantastic. When we come back, Dr. Harriet Fraud will join us. Give my love to Jeff. Will do. And hopefully hi, I'll see you next hi, week. Dr. Fraud, by the way. It was nice to see hi. you. Hi, Ed. Thank you. All we'll right. be right back. Okay, all flight controllers going to go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program.
you sad, pathetic hump. Well, Dr. Harriet Fraud is joining us. Thank God. How are you holding up? Are you anxious about the elections? I mean, are you catastrophizing? Are your patients catastrophizing? Well, people are upset. You know, my patients tend to be sort of enlightened Trump haters. And so that therefore they're they're worried. They're worried at the chaos that he that Trump may resolve by having the Supreme Court rubber stamp his continuance and they're worried about that that would mean that fascism will have a support in the president. No people are worried just because everything is unclear because the Democrats have played by the old rules and Trump ignores them. Like with the Mueller report, really, they were, Mueller, who was from another era, was obeying the laws of decorum and government support. And Trump kicks that right to the ground. And so they've been at a big disadvantage. And people are just, they're worried because the country's in a dangerous place. Do you worry that we've become a little too respectful of the FBI? People like Mueller? I find it kind of odd to hear you almost speak, not lovingly, of Mueller, but almost respectfully of Robert Mueller, who... No, I think he's outdated, and I think what he did was destructive. But I think he did it because he has this sense of official decorum when he's talking about people who are knocking down the wall. It's, It's inappropriate. I felt that way with Obama, too. You don't go high when they go low. You go low and cut them off at the knee. Right. Is Mueller... I'm I'm surprised because I watched that Price of Loyalty hagiography to the FBI, the Comey story that Jeff Daniels did on Showtime. And it ends with Comey looking wistfully at the old FBI building. And we're supposed to well up and say remember Um, when we when these great institutions stood for something and i go yeah i do remember when the fbi stood for something yeah they stood for rounding up and and, uh intimidating communists and getting them out of their jobs and stuff there and j edgar hoover is hardly mr wonderful you know let's face that too It, it was a disgusting organization and it colludes with whatever foul play is on the agenda and so I, I don't feel very loving exactly. And I right. don't think that, I think that their role, you know, I'm, I'm old now. I mean, I've never thought their role was great. Right. Is there any value? This is a terrible question to ask, but it's, you know, I'm just thinking, this is what I've been wrestling with. If Trump loses... And goes gently into the night. I know I'm wrong. That I don't think he's going to go gently. But hope no. springs eternal. If we end up with Biden. Looking back at Trump. Is there any good that came from these past four years? I think kids in cages. Uh, you know, uh, the millions of Americans who are. Dead. Suffering, yes. Who will be dead you know, <laughs> from COVID? Right. Uh, but isn't there some silver lining? Didn't he do something for us? 
he did inspire a lot of people to organize and oppose because they saw our country slipping into fascism. And there's more organization and more labor opposition than there has been for 50 years. So in that way, he inspired an opposition. There are several unions. It's not only Sarah Nelson, the forerunner of the flight attendants, but others are saying that if he is outvoted and won't leave, they will have a general strike. The labor unions have not talked politically for a long time, and they are a force to contend with. I think Trump showing, making people go back to work under COVID shows people your labor keeps this country going, honey. So use it or withhold it. And so that I think he has inspired an opposition on a level that I haven't seen in this country for 50 years. Has there ever been a general strike in this country? I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. Biden, I'm not thrilled about, but his platform, he says he wants to repeal the part of Taft-Hartley that makes it possible for right-to-work states, as, or as we call them, anti-union states. Yeah, he wants, look, he wants Labor's vote, and it depends on how people stay organized and push what will happen when he's elected. He also has much more support from the Goldman Sachs and Silicon Valley giants than Trump. They don't like the disruption. Right. You know, they've already got their tax cut. Billionaires have netted another $584 billion since March. They're doing great. But, but he's in bad taste. They want to dump him, and he causes too much opposition. 15 million people came out in Black Lives Matter. They don't like people riled up and on the street. And that has happened under Trump's tenure in a way it had not for 50 years. Right. But I think that with Biden, we'd have a chance for a real socialist movement to form and be united opposition, which is, you know, it's there in every other developed country, and we need it here, too. Right. It was interesting. I was reading CBS polls of America, and they asked Republicans and Democrats, what do you fear most about Joe Biden and Donald Trump? The Republican fear of Joe Biden overwhelmingly was he's going to bring socialism to America. And the fear among Democrats for of Trump is authoritarianism. And I, and I thought, wow, this is not, you know, at least the past 100 years, this stuff still plays out that it's the left socialists, the right, authoritarianism, fascism versus socialism. It it just doesn't go away. It stays with us. We don't have a real socialist party. If you look at Biden's record, he sure is no socialist. We don't have that. You know, Portugal has been ruled, I guess, for the last 10 years by a unity of the Greens, the communists and the socialists together. And every other Western developed nation has a strong socialist party socialists are ruling spain right now you know that they're and so that calling biden who is a capitalist to the core a socialist is a wild exaggeration right and wrong but don't you bernie is a socialist 
Is it fair to say that we would we're doing a disservice to America by not framing the parties this way to say, and I know this makes Republicans angry, but who cares that left to their own devices, Republicans will be authoritarian and fascistic. Mm-hmm. They, 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 we, and we saw that in World War II. Yes, and left to their own devices, the Democrats should be communists. If you left the Democrats to their own devices, their natural propensity should be communist. That, and I, I, I really don't think so. I think we have two capitalist parties. I, oh, no, I know that. I know. I agree with you. What I'm saying is, but that's how that's how it should be framed. That's how both parties, they should admit it to the American people. The right left unchecked will give you fascism. The left unchecked will give you communism. This is what the center holds. That that would be a, a mature conversation that we should be having with the American people. We don't have a left. America doesn't have an organized left presence. And the Democrats are capitalism light, you know, take away everything more slowly. Right. Republicans are cheating right now and totally that there's, you know, there's a big difference. FDR had all sorts of socialists and communists in his government. And he did because... Americans were moving left. This whole fear of Antifa, that was what the World War II was about. Antifa, hello, Antifa, the country. Right. And so we don't, I think calling Biden a socialist is bizarre. He's a capitalist and a capitalist apologist and has been, but he's capitalist apologism light. Right. And he's influenced by his progressive justice wing. Right. And so... That you know, Trump wants to call them socialist because he still is in the anti-communism of the fifties. So the socialists are fellow travelers. Right. But mainly Bernie is one of the beautiful things about Bernie is he had the courage within a country that has been virulently anti-communist since the fifties to come out and say, "I am a socialist," right. and to advocate justice under a socialist banner. But Biden is not that. Right. We all should vote for Biden because he's not Trump. Now, you are one of the founding mothers of second wave feminism. Yes. One of the things you warned us about the minute COVID-19 became a pandemic, you warned that we are going to see a return to a more patriarchal society where women are oppressed. We're going to see more child abuse, more women staying home, not being able to call the police to complain about physical abuse or psychological abuse because they need a place to live. And this is happening. You you called this before it happened. You warned us that we're we're going back. Women have been set back 10 years in our struggle for closing the wage gap because since men's salaries are usually higher if somebody's going to stay home it's the lower salary person who's a woman plus women have been saddled with two jobs the household child care emotional labor actually four or five jobs and men have been saddled as providers for this household but 
and women are supposed to help be providers also. And since 42% of kids are born outside of a marriage of man and woman, you really have all these single women who are either leaving their kids alone or giving up their job. And it's a tragedy for women and children. Children because they're not educated unless they go to private school. And women because they're set back because their responsibilities, which are bizarre to assign to women anyway, to do childcare and household maintenance are overwhelming. Right. And that's just stupid. It's not a, a genetic mandate. It's a social thing. And they could, you know, we should have industrialized housework in this country where people just go around and clean like you do at very fancy condos, which come with just call Ferdinand. He'll come and clean you and arrange your this and that, you know. Well, that's really interesting because when you say industrialized house cleaning, I witnessed a crime scene getting cleaned up and they come in and they do it. Yep, they do. And I was thinking, <laughs> this is really, yeah. I was thinking, I, was thinking, I, I, I said, what, what does it take for me to get, who do I have to kill to get you yeah. to get my, to get my house clean this way? Absolutely. Look, you should, I was looking at these luxury ads because I think in order to have men and women be equal and, and connected as equals, that you really have to have industrialized housework. You have to have teams come coming through, which is what you have in the luxury apartments. They come with this service. And, and what does it look like? What, what? This, that. It looks like that on Tuesdays, you know that your house will be cleaned. That when you come home, everything will be dusted and vacuumed and the floors will be washed if they're not carpeted. And the shell, and you'll leave little notes for for the company, please attend to this, that, and the other. And it's done with dignity. It's unionized. The people who do it are, are, well, I'm not saying that the people who clean luxury apartments are treated. No, in your world, it would be done with. Look, it's a noble salary. It's a noble salary that should go with a noble job. In the hospital, if the orderly doesn't clean up, you get an infection and you die. He's just as important as the doctor who gets 500 times more than he does or she does. And so that, of course, look, the reason that cleanliness and order are not valued is they were women's unpaid labor, which they excused as some kind of genetic mandate from God, which of course is bizarre that uh, you know, it's a terrible thing and of course we should have industrialized housework. Right. Absolutely. This is really interesting to me because it's a mental health issue for many reasons. If you go into rehab if you're an alcoholic, the first thing Betty Ford, if you go to Betty Ford and you're paying three billion dollars for your stay there, the first thing they do is make you take out the garbage. And I remember when I was an alcoholic and I thought I was ever going to go to Betty Ford. But I used to joke for the money they're paying at Betty Ford, get somebody else to empty the garbage. But right. but they're teaching you. No, no, no. Tend your garden. Right. Be, take care of yourself. Be mindful of and 
not to talk too much about myself, but part of my sickness has always been I can't do the dishes in the sink. I'm a comedy writer. I have important jokes to write. What? And the, the truth is that when I clean the dishes in my sink, my mind gets cleaned. It's clear and it's order. True. It's like get your house in order. Yeah. That expression is an overwhelming thing because also it's part of respecting women's traditional labor to clean up after yourself because that's crucial labor. If you can't find anything, you're much, much slower. Right. Right. And it's, it's unhealthy. The, the older I get, the more important order becomes. And that's why I'm a fascist. No, the, the <laughs> older I get, the, the more I realize that writing is making order out of chaos. There's that's no right. difference between vacuuming the apartment and opening up my word processor and cleaning the extraneous sentences. There, I, there's, I, no, they're both related. And the thing is, that idea, clean up your act, mm -hmm. that we all have to be responsible somewhat for the environment. But I do think, you know, the industrialized house cleaning shouldn't be like, have to put away all your crap you drop on the floor. But if you put away your crap and they come in a vacuum. Right. Because... That's decent work. That's noble work. That's crucial work. It should be honored and well paid. And those are thousands of jobs. Right. Right. And, it, you know, it, it's degrading to have these hierarchies. And they're left over from humiliating women and thinking of women as worthy of cleaning up after other people and you know, I finally understand the, I'm not being funny here, the controlling a woman thing. After, I'm being, I'm not being funny. Yeah. I, I was told that Republican men want to control women's bodies. And I went, okay, that's, to me, that sounded, uh, nice, but I didn't believe it. I didn't believe that guys wanted to control when and how a woman has sex and when she can get pregnant and then what she do what she does after she gets pregnant but you know having gone through a divorce and realize I'm being I'm not and realizing that oh you cannot <laughs> like I you have no control over another person and I thought well, it'd be kind of nice to be able to control this other person. It would be kind of, I'm sorry? You never really can. No, you what can't. You can't. No. But it, it, I, I, you know, I was with the same person for 30 years. It never occurred to me that I would want to control another human being until like everything got out of control. And I thought, well, this must be what, what, Trump and the Republicans are experiencing every day of their lives. They're impotent, powerless. They know they're inferior and they only and they have such low self-esteem that they can only the only way they can get a woman near them is if they gaslight them and 
make them afraid yeah. and control them. But also, luckily, I'm incredibly are, good looking and witty and yeah, I don't have to do that. That's right. Real magnet there. But, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. I was I just choking what, on something. <laughs> what their program is actually more about is putting women in their place because the jobs that were exported by capitalism and computerized and robotized and taken from them in their usual suck up, kick down way, they blame on, blame on the fact that women get jobs. Mm-hmm. Women had poured into the labor force because men's salaries were depressed by outsourcing and capitalist profiteering. So what came first? You're, you were, you are a founding mother of second wave feminism. 74 was the end of our economy, they say. And it was also around the time that women's liberation stopped being a punchline on late night television. Which came first, outsourcing or women's liberation? Well, I think what what is very interesting, I think the government through the CIA agent that was Gloria Steinem, as well as others, could see that capitalists were outsourcing millions of well-paid, often unionized male jobs and that women would have to pour into the labor force. And so they wanted a gender-only movement and they perverted the women's liberation movement, which was about liberation in terms of class awareness and other things, to a gender-only movement. And in Operation Wurlitzer, which was an FBI, CIA operation, they also steered the civil rights movement into black power to divide the the class consciousness and the working class of America, which would threaten, you know, to be anti-capitalist, to be socialist or, you know, socialistic in any case. And I think at the same time, because housekeeping was no longer a full-time job, because it's, you know, they make a lot of money off selling you a vacuum cleaner and a floor waxer and a this and that and a that and this, they no longer needed anybody home full time cleaning the house, even though the 1950s wanted you to be able to eat off the floor, you know, right. well, whatever right. that. And so that that was happening as well. And so I think there was a lot of forces combined. But I think what happened first was the beginning of outsourcing, computerizing, robotizing and eliminating what were well-paid male jobs and pushing women into the labor force without, of course, because the CIA didn't push that, providing good maternity leaves, paternity leaves, child care, elder care, after school care, summer care, the kind of thing they have in civilized countries, you know, like France or Scandinavia or the Netherlands or something like that. But that, you know, there was a confluence of different things. And women, there was, you know, the, the house women were getting educated. Jobs were no longer needing heft and physical aggression to get done. Things were mechanized. And a perfect example is the field of, of being a pharmacist, where you used to have to carry these big, heavy bags and mix everything yourself. And it used to be little pharmacies that had to be open all the time. Now they're huge mega stores where you can work on a shift and have kids and have, and have a home life. 
the things come pre-prepared or very light so that now it's a now it's feminine feel because women can fit that in with their other jobs the whole everything changed yeah but what they wanted to do was make sure that those capitalists that outsourced, computerized, and robotized male jobs were not blamed, that people sucked up and kicked down. Right, right. And hated women and black people for stealing their jobs, which was crazy. And so daycare in America, nobody can afford it. That's right. That's right. Daycare costs a mediocre daycare, not the highest level, costs as much as a community college tuition every semester. Not too many people have that at the top since 40% don't even have $400 in case of the worst emergency. So what are we talking about? Yeah. And therefore, you know, women are pushed into the labor force along with their husbands, the way black women always were. And yet there aren't provisions for our domestic labor and childcare. Right. That puts women way behind in the labor force and also isn't good for children who no. should be in quality childcare centers with qualified people and so that they're not being put in front of TVs because they're at a cheap daycare sitting there in a wet diaper watching TV in the most crucial years of brain formation. That is a terrible thing. Right. By the and, way, everybody should Google Gloria Steinem and CIA and yes. look it up. Yes, it's inescapable. She is proud that she was a spook. She yes, has no she regrets about it. I remember Mort, you're not the first, Mort Saul, one of the first things Mort Saul, the great, the guy who invented modern stand-up, one of the first things Mort Saul said on this show was that Gloria Steinem was a CIA agent. And I laughed. And he goes, I wasn't making a joke. And I went, what? How could Gloria Steinem be a CIA agent? And they wanted to guide the women's movement away from class consciousness to gender consciousness and split men and women and ignore class and make gender and race the only issues. And they were quite successful. Class was repressed until recently... When in three months, Occupy put it back on the agenda with a 99%, 1%. Before you go, yeah. what would our economy look like if we did what de Blasio did in New York City? Which, you know, one of the, a lot of people don't like de Blasio, but he promised a preschool for everybody in, yes. in New York City. One of the most progressive things I've witnessed in my life. And what would this economy look like if mothers could drop their kids off somewhere or somebody, we had some kind of industrialized daycare and people would be paid properly to go take care of the most important thing in your life. That's right. That would the economy would be changed. That set of priorities is very different. You know, people don't realize it, but under Carter there was a movement and Head Start for Everyone was passed and Reagan vetoed it. 
when he got in. And Carter passed standards for daycare and they were dismissed under Reagan. Yeah. They, they say this is, you know, if Trump loses, it's the death knell for the Republican Party. This is the Republican Party. He's just, there's an aesthetic that the, the Lincoln Project doesn't like. That's all. Yeah, he's he really is in poor taste. And they don't like that. Right. But there's nothing they disagree with. There's no, nothing. they don't disagree with his fawning love of capitalism and trying to make money. But it, the poor taste in which he does so right. is revolting. And I think a lot of people like him or some people like him because they like that uncultured poor taste. Right. Thank you so much. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of When Capitalism Hits Home. She is also the host of, I love this title, I love telling people about you. They go, really? It's not just in your head. That's the name of your other podcast. Right. And to our new listeners, Dr. Harriet Fraud helps deal with your neuroses, your paranoia, your rage, your anger, your anxiety. She helps you understand all these as symptoms of an economic system that we are forced to survive in. And and also your family and your acculturation. But it does put the individual not in the whole picture, but in a, in a triangle in which the sides are the personal the political, the economic, and cultural. So you're not just seen as everything is your own individual stuff. Right. I grew up in Jersey. We have to wrap it up. But I grew up in Jersey. And if you have to go pick somebody up at Newark Airport, you go on the Jersey Turnpike and you go by Giant Stadium, the the Meadowlands, and you start getting depressed. And the reason you get depressed is you are breathing a miasma of toxic air from yeah. the p- petroleum, right? From the process, the refineries, and right. as you smell the methane and the carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, you start going, "Man, I'm, I'm not funny. I'm never going to make it as a stand-up. I'm the, the, why am I picking my friend up at Newark? I'm so depressed. It's the air I'm breathing, and and I and then when I got get off the Jersey Turnpike and I start breathing oxygen again. I go, hey, I'm pretty funny. Maybe I'm all right. I'm okay. And when I talk with you, it reminds you remind me that capitalism, the system is the New Jersey Turnpike. We're breathing crap and it's poisoning us. And we're thinking it's my fault. No, I'm breathing. I'm it's the environment that I'm, it's the toxicity that I'm surrounded with. Right. It's the idea that you are just a vehicle to make money for someone else instead of a person. It's very demoralizing. And everywhere you're surrounded by ads which are lying to you, it's a very bad environment for human beings. And Thank the United you. States is unal- unaltered capitalist. You know, France and Germany and England and the whole continent has a strong socialist presence. And they also had feudalism before. But we are more unadulteratedly capitalist than these other places. Right. To a detriment. Sorry to interrupt. 
Great. I, we have to wrap it up. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to play you a song by Professor Mike Steinel, and we'll use it to introduce Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you. How do people contact you, Dr. Harriet Fraud? hfraud at gmail.com or through my website, harrietfraud.com. This is Professor Mike Steinel. Nope, wrong. Uh, I, I'm playing you the wrong song. That wasn't. I'm sorry. That is not this. Here we go. Okay, this is a song that that's another song of Professor Mike Stein. This is the one I wanted you to hear. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die Fifteen bucks an hour Five days a week Fifty-two weeks a year And thirty-two thousand years I know it's a long time, honey To thirty-four thousand and twenty But when I get there, babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die All I really need Is a second job Or a third Lift myself up my boots And join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA Who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I am I'm on my way I'm on my way Professor Mike Steinel, and everybody should listen to him on Spotify. You'll feel better. You'll, you'll just feel better listening to Professor Mike Steinel. Isn't that great, Dr. Fraud? I have to unmute you, and let me unmute our very special guests. Joining us in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, is Professor Adnan Hussein, and he is the chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University, and his granddaughter is joining us. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you you had a granddaughter. <laughs> who 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 is 
who are who you're joining us with. Hi, this is I'm this Margaret. is your wife, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I'm his partner. Okay. Nice. Margaret Papano, Dr. Margaret Papano of the English Department. I'm at the English Department at Queens. Well, it's an honor to have both of you on. And this is Dr. Harriet Fraud. Wonderful. It was so wonderful to listen to you. Thanks. And I, we do have a, an announcement that um, next week on Sunday for hashtag weekly marks, we are delighted and honored that Dr. Harriet Fraud will be doing the summary. Yes, and we'll be publishing it on Sunday, and she's going to join us for a conversation about Chapter 13, Cooperation and the Division of Labor with a feminist perspective. So we'll get to hear a lot more about the uh, gendered division of labor, I think, and that'll be so fantastic. So I encourage everyone to drop in um, next week to to the uh to the discussion well that- doctor um i was listening to your discussion on women and labor it was interesting in the middle ages you find that women actually did some of the hardest and heaviest labor like hauling sand hauling stones because it was itinerant and poorly paid. So it really wasn't until later, well, because all the specialized trades were organized by men through these systems called guilds. Mm -hmm. So women were outside the system. So they actually did some of the really heavy lifting in terms of labor in the Middle Ages. I'm not surprised. Are there any examples in Western civilization of a respect for women before the 19th century? It depends what you want to call respect. Like you could say people had respect for the Virgin Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. We're talking about real people, though. Right. Well, there are doctors of the church like Hildegard of of Bingen. But she was sort of the oddball. I mean, she really wasn't a very unusual lady, Hildegard of Bingen. Yeah, and she was also a virgin, too, right? I mean, there is something about the non-sexual body women who could argue that in some ways they were men because they, you know, had a certain kind of body so that therefore they could change categories and become masculinized by being virgins in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And also by being unsullied by female sexuality, mm-hmm. which was a kind of poison thing like the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. who didn't maybe have a very nice time conceiving Jew, uh, Jesus, but you know, it's great. <laughs> Pure. Well, in the Quran, there's a discussion of Miriam who has the prophet Esau undergoing labor pains. I mean, there's documentation in the holy book about the kinds of pain and suffering that she had to go through. Well, Genesis says in sorrow shall thou bring forth children and the husband shall rule over you. And that was because she got blamed because they both took a bite of knowledge. You know, she was framed, obviously, but whatever. (laughs) So we're reversing thousands upon thousands of years of acculturation, right? That's right. And the 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 exceptions to the rule are almost like the magical Negro 
in America. That's right. Where a woman has to be almost magical in order to rise above all this. Mm -hmm. So we were talking at office hours on Friday night, and there's a gentleman, Falco, from Belgium, who's a union organizer, and he was trying to explain to us how to hold meetings where it's more inclusive. One of the things he said is men have to acknowledge that they are sexist, that they are threatened by women, they're threatened by strong women, and that their natural instinct is to interrupt and be threatened. Is that changing? And is that true? I don't think that's necessarily true at all. You know, when I when well, he's I, going through a divorce, so maybe it's <laughs> he is, so. when I began my sort of karate career and I was in my 20s, I was the only woman in a big dojo of working class men. And they gave me a lot of respect because I was serious and good at it and determined and I was respected and they, you know, but I didn't act cute or anything. I did, I really focused and I learned and I was quite fierce and they respected that. So I think that some of it is playing these roles that girls are taught to be female impersonators, which is terrible, and boys male impersonators and not to be people at all, which is sad. It's sad gender acculturation on both levels and I haven't found that um, you know men always want to dominate and when they do making fun of them works nicely right yes well let's talk about the plague speaking of men (laughs) (laughs) the the two of you did a lecture last week that I haven't had time to to uh, view, but I'm fascinated by the plague and the similarities between what went on in, was it the 13th century? Is that 14th 14th century? century? Yeah. And what's going on now? What did you both learn preparing for that lecture that you didn't know going into it? Well, I think that we discovered that there's been a lot of new work on the plague, but it's very oriented towards medical research because um, the entire genome of the plague of the virus Yersinia um, pestis has been sequenced. So now it's as though all of the historians are really focused on tracing medically what's what's going on and you know you can you can actually dig up plague victims from the 14th century and find plague you know in their in their bodies hmm. and that's been exciting for some but you know for me it's <laughs> not the most interesting <laughs> questions about the plague so it seems like that's where scholarship has been heading recently all right. Um, what did we find? I mean, you know, it, it allowed people to do more trying to globalize it and see how it has circulated, which is useful for 
epidemiological reasons and also to trace its consequences and effects. But like Margaret, I'm more interested in the consequences of it, the responses to it, how it changed society, culture and politics. Those are to me you know, the more interesting problems. And uh, those are questions that you can have different answers to and people debate and discuss that. It seems the problem with some of the sciences is that for non-scientists, there's nothing you can argue with. I mean, you have to wait for the other scientists to falsify the data or and all of that. And so that's not great for, you know, historians right. and literary people. So we like to discuss some of the other you know issues about it. And Margaret really focused on and we were actually reading well, you're, you're, but Professor Papana, you're an English professor. Yes, I am. So I would assume Chaucer. Did Chaucer deal with the plague? Well, it's, I mean, he began writing around the 1370s. I mean, plague was ongoing. I mean, that's that's another thing is that what one thing that the scientist work have has done is that it has pushed dates back so that, I don't know, now they're kind of or arguing that you can find origins in the 13th century, even though it is in the mid 14th century, that the plague really pervades the Middle East and enters Europe. Um, so this is around 1350s. Chaucer starts to write around 1376 or something, but there's successive waves, waves of plague. And um, Boccaccio, right, is a more direct writer on the plague, is Decameron, and Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is in some ways a response to the Decameron. In what um, way? Well, uh, you know, there's this structure of the storytelling collection. So Boccaccio has 10 nobles, seven noble women, and three noblemen, you know, leave Florence, which is ridden with plague and Parents are abandoning children, um, brothers are abandoning sisters, and, you know, the whole city is in chaos, so they decide to leave. Um, and they go out into the countryside, their servants come and create really lovely feasts and courtly arrangements for them. So they tell stories for two weeks, and then they, then they return. So it's a kind of storytelling structure, and that's what the Canterbury Tales is as well. It's are they thematic? Stories, or are they just random stories? Uh, well, the Decameron is there's themes for they choose a king and a queen, and they have themes for the day. So, what I think Boccaccio was trying to do was structure within chaos. Right? He believes there's a certain chaos in in the world, right? And he's going to try to structure it, but he always leaves a certain amount of play, right? You can't fully structure the world. You can't fully structure society. Yes, they can try to create a new and better society, but it can't be absolute. In some ways, he's very much responding to the absolutism of Dante's vision in the Commedia, in which, you know, he's Dante believes that I'm a prophet, right? I saw the afterlife. I saw Pope Boniface in hell. I saw all of them there in hell. And there's a system in this world and in the afterlife, and we're going to be judged. And um, we know, you know, he, he, he saw it. He, he knew the absolute. He knew God's judgment. Boccaccio says, 
we can't know. We, we can't know that. We're in the dark. It's hidden from us. We just have human relations to deal with. So, you know, in some ways... When was Dante writing? Well, his um, uh, divine... The Commedia is, um, you know, right on the cusp of the 14th century. So there was, even amidst all this horror, people were able to be creative and, and found a way to thrive and travel and well, I think that the plague um, had different consequences. I think that what I talked about last week was specifically oriented around England and the statute of laborers. So, you know, about... What is the statute of labor? A third to half the people died in England. So, you know, there's you know, massive uh, death. And so the people who ran estates and owned the land were very concerned because um, who was going to work the land when everybody was dead, right? And laborers decided that, you know, maybe they didn't really want to stay as a serf anymore and they wanted to go to towns and train as a craftsman and, you know, be free and conduct their own life. And the statute of laborers is a very early response, 1349. I mean, this is when the plague comes to England um, and uh, legislating um, against peasants being able to leave their land. Even craftsmen were not, you know, craftsmen were forced to work. Um, you know, people were not allowed to, to wow. leave. They were imprisoned. They were- wow. Find and they're supposed to be branded as well, right? With an F on their forehead for falsity if they were caught, you know, having left their lord's domain. Wow. Um, Jeff Bezos, his roots run deep. Yeah. Dr. Fraud, would you like we, uh, one of the, f when we first met, you talked about the end of feudalism. Yeah. Well, I think it's very, telling that as the as feudalism was breaking apart as an economic system the plague happened and decimated many many countries and killed a lot of people and as capitalism in america is falling apart we have the out of control pandemic being controlled being supervised by a president who is an unadulterated accumulating capitalists and uh, it is breaking down. China's economy grew 4.9% in the last several months. The United States reduced by 34, 33 point something percent. The United States is going down and China is going up and capitalism is breaking apart mm -hmm. out of its own greed and corruption. Mm -hmm. And so I think that these diseases go haywire in periods of complete dissolution. You can really see that in the United States where, you know, China had it in one province, did nine point something million tests and got it under control. 
and Cuba has almost no cases and you know that also so does New Zealand because Ardern has a total Labour Party government and they have all cooperated and they believe in it they're not asserting their own individuality by disobeying the laws to protect everyone and so I think that these there is a parallel even though I am not the expert that the other guests are there's certainly a parallel with the breakdown of feudalism in the 14th century and the breakdown of US capitalist hegemony in the 21st century well Professor Hussein Morning Marks, you're rereading Capital. Yeah, surplus surplus labor theory. If uh, well, how does this That's right? What, well, what? it affects the whole reserve army of labor. Uh, if you have uh, plague decimating the population, uh, some of the surplus population that's needed in order to control workers is removed. And that's why the state had to step in and make this draconian you know, regulation on the mobility of workers because they could go shop around for different, you know, conditions of work. And that had to be controlled. But when the state has to do these sorts of things, it's clearly a last resort. It means that the, you know, the horse is out of the barn and the larger, you know, social and economic processes are somewhat uncontrollable. And these effects, they're trying to mitigate the effects of something that is already underway. Um, and so that's why some scholars have suggested that the Black Death, even if it didn't itself end the feudal system, it's certainly, you know, even if society was already heading in that direction, it really accelerated the process and exposed the weakness of the breakdown of, of, of the feudal feudal system. And you can say that something similar like is, is happening now in the sense that the inequalities, for example, that exist that are already an extreme weakness of this system um, are, you know, challenged by um, their worsening during this time period. I mean, it's totally unsustainable. Um, you know, to have to, you know, to, to maintain a kind of system of such inequality that's actually worsening as a result of the pandemic. When you hear that Bezos, we've already talked about him, is exploiting the situation is so much enriched by this circumstance. Um, and that seems to be what happened also during the medieval period is that um, it, it uh, and also that societies, scholars have done some analysis of disease and disasters over a millennia millennia and a half essentially of history in the Mediterranean you know kind of post-Roman world history of the Mediterranean and they have decided um, that uh, the societies that seem to recover better and have more resilience and respond better were ones where there wasn't as much inequality you know where there was less inequality the society could somehow find a way and so I'm interested in the differential effects and we'll see that some societies will deal well with with COVID, um, the pandemic, and respond in, in, in an appropriate ways to preserve society. And they have an ethic of, um, you know, regarding everybody in the society as valuable and worth protecting. And those, I believe, will emerge, you know, better from this in, in situation than those where you have a small stratum of elite who are ex have been exploiting uh, the work of others and um, don't feel invested in the rest of society because they're only in it for preserving their particular 
interests. And I think that's, you know, what we see in, in, in places like Brazil, the United States and so on is India. in India, a good, a good point. And so just as we were talking um, recently about how um, there was scapegoating and targeting of the most marginal as the source of infection. And usually this ended up, you know, there were a few different kinds of possible scapegoat targets, strangers, uh, merchants, um, you know, and so on. But of course, the insider outsider community of the Jews in medieval Europe became the obvious target for this kind of scapegoating. Um, but on the other hand, you could also around in different places in the Mediterranean have a society that um, responded to this cataclysm by pulling together and seeing that everybody's prayers, you know, could be if, you know, needed here in this in this moment. So, for example, the 14th century global world traveler, really the pre-modern person who traveled the most in the entire history of the world, a man named Ibn Battuta was from Morocco, but traveled all the way to China, sub-Saharan Africa, around the Middle East to Byzantium. Uh, he uh, tells us about the plague in Damascus that, um, you know, the Muslim scholars and community went to the great mosque in the center of town, did a bunch of, of prayers and then processed out uh, of the, uh, you know, processed out of the, the, the mosque into the street. And they were joined by the Jews praying their prayers and all the Christians of the city praying their prayers with their families and their, you know, religious, um, you know, figures performing the liturgy and various prayers. And he concludes this episode by saying that unlike Cairo, it, it was less here in Damascus. Now, whether this is true or not, obviously, you know, as rational scientific people would say, well, the prayers didn't really have anything to do with it. And in fact, actually bringing a lot of people together in crowds processing probably wasn't the best way to deal with an infectious well, sure disease. Yeah, I'm sure they were. <laughs> well, what did but, they know about gathering back then? Well, I mean, they... They often knew that it would would be dangerous, um, the more scientifically oriented, but also in the medieval West they did, which is why they were fleeing one another. That's why Boccaccio says that, you know, it tore families apart because people were so petrified that they wouldn't, you know, un, you know, provide the normal caregiving. Well, is there an earthquake up there? Uh, wouldn't provide the normal caregiving um, because, uh, you know, they were so petrified and was destroying social bonds that were important in society. But Ibn Battuta concludes that we did better here in Damascus because, you know, God listened to the prayers of all of us together uh, as opposed to places where they he's implying as opposed to places where they didn't do this all together as a community. Now, whether that's scientifically and historically true, of course, we could certainly doubt that. But what is true is that a community that imagines that even people who are a little different are still part of their society and part of their community have the social arrangements and the social you know, resources to come out of this in a stronger This way. is so interesting. It's so Rather. interesting. What uh, Professor Papano, in reading the literature of the plague, what was your pluscachange? I'm mispronouncing the French, but uh, what was your pluscachange moment? What did you read where you just said nothing changes, everything People are the same. Is there a, one piece of writing that you read where you just thought humans 
are exactly the same when it comes to plagues? Well, there's so much, there's so many parallels with what's going on now. Um, I mean, I was talking about some of the draconian legislation because, um, you know, workers were trying to negotiate um, for better conditions. And, you know, you have things now like um, here, you know, some grocery workers got from all the big grocery stores. Did we see the rise of guilds back then? Is that what gave us? Oh, yeah. Guilds were a big part of the way work was organized. Because of the plague or? Um, I don't know if because of the plague. I don't know if there's a close connection between guild organization. Guild organization is not always a good thing. It can be a regressive structure. It's confiscatory. Well. It makes it's it. It's not. Yeah. I, I don't really like attempts to draw a clean line between Ooh. guild organization in the Middle Ages and labor unions today. Yeah. Um, you have to be a member of the guild to cut somebody's hair. So it's confiscatory in many ways. Yeah. And in some ways, it was really about trying to just maintain a small monopoly so that a few people could have decent livelihoods and everybody right. else. You know, had to work in itinerant jobs and wage labor and so forth. I mean, sometimes, I mean, it was it varied a lot from from town to town. But I mean, when I read about, um, you know, situations like the grocery train trains trying to take away the three dollar or successfully taking away the three dollar raise that had been given to workers during this time, saying, well, you know, it was okay for a while, but, you know, we need to take that away now because we're no longer in, you know, a dire situation. Right. And, you know, things like um, here I have a, a headline, a problem for New York businesses. Workers won't return when they can get, quote, unemployment on steroids. So, you know, right. workers just trying to negotiate um, for better conditions and, trying to create situations where, you know, they can refuse to work or try to work in ways where they feel safe, right? Is right. was regulated just as it is now. Uh, this is, I hope you come back and it's an honor to have, to be able to talk to all three of you. Before you go, I would assume, Dr. Professor Papano, you're American. Yeah, we're we're we are American, but we live here in Canada. And, and so Professor Hussein, identify. yeah. What have you noticed is different in Canada right now in the way they treat one another in terms of this plague? Because it's spreading throughout the world. I mean, it's not, we're not the only ones who have screwed up. No, but we have the most deaths of everybody. That's our right. But people want to get together. People want to go to parties and eat indoors. And we're social animals. So this thing is spreading throughout the world. What do you notice is different in Canada from America and how we talk to one another about this? Are you going to answer that? Um, well, um, I'm j- what is different about how do well, Canadians I mean, approach this problem versus Americans? I mean, I don't I mean, there are some broad 
generalizations that you can make about differences, but some of them are actually true on a, you know, everyday level. I, when I first came to Canada and I came straight from New York City, one thing that I noticed was just the courtesy that was expected and in everyday exchanges and the type of, you know, respect that you were that you accorded people and I would really wonder about why that is and I do feel as though there is a sense of a safety net here that that people that everybody has a right to a place in society that you don't have a right just because you've elbowed everybody else out and you've made it to the top and you can sustain your position but that those people who haven't done that elbowing still have a right to exist and to be there and they still need common courtesy and it's up to you to to recognize the humanity in everybody around you and i feel as though some of that has sustained canada in the way that we've you know dealt dealt with this i mean yeah there are idiots here too um but i feel as though there haven't been that many cases of people just defying rules. Yeah, of course, we're in a university town and students are getting together and having big parties. That that does happen here too. But what do you what do you think? Oh, just yeah, similarly, I, you know, I would say that it's um, this. You know, Canada is a capitalist society with a lot of stratification as well, and of course, it's got its its problems, but it. Um, you know, I think you're starting from a base of valuing people and that's expressed in the kinds of programs. I mean, well, they have health care. You know, that was a big thing is that you're, you're saying you have to take care of other people mm. um, on some basic sort of level. And that's why I think that's always been for me the biggest policy question. You know, that was the single issue when it comes to domestic policy that I think was important in this last couple of elections is you have to solve the health care problem because it just changes society on some level um, when that is no longer uh, a commodity to be bought and sold, you know, in the marketplace. But it is a right that everyone needs to be taken care of. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Thank you. Host of Capitalism Hits Home. You can go to our Discord channel on Sunday. Professor Hussein, can you uh, plug that for us? Please? Yes, uh, there will be a weekly marks uh, meeting, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, we might run it slightly differently since Dr. Fraud isn't in Discord and actually set up a Zoom meeting. Oh, good. Uh, look for details about that uh, in Discord, and we'll set up a Zoom meeting at 4.30 p.m. to talk about uh, Marx with uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud. We're really looking forward to it. And mm -hmm. Professor Margaret Papano, I hope you come back. And nice to meet you. I had an idea to do the newlywed game. Some of the professors are married <laughs> to other professors. So I thought it might be funny to play the newlywed game <laughs> and make it. Uh, but, uh, anyway, when we come back, I apologize for keeping him waiting. Professor Harvey J.K., thank you, everybody. Thank you. Harvey J.K., He's got a lot to say 
about Thomas Paine and FDR. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. So great getting to talk to Dr. Harriet Fraud and, of course, Professor Adnan Hussein and his partner, Professor Margaret Papano, about the plague. <laughs> if I, well, I can't think of a better cocktail party than to invite Dr. Harriet Fraud and Professors Papano and Adnan Hussein to my my home and and talk about uh, the bubonic plague. Nothing would bring. There's Annabelle Gerwich. Come on, I'll talk to Annabelle Gerwich. Great to see you again. You have to unmute yourself. Yes, I do. That would be a smart thing to do. Look at you. You're you're all dressed like a person, and I'm dressed like a mole person. You look great. With like like my babushka on my head <laughs> and five sweaters. Like I'm calling from a cave. <laughs> You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bump Professor Harvey J.K. No, he just he bailed out on me at the last minute. He, so I'm going to pretend I'm bumping Harvey J.K. for you. But he's going to come on Thursday. Uh, he, he, I, I'm running behind schedule today. And mm -hmm. Professor K. has a 930 show that he has to get on. And he said instead of doing 10 minutes, he'll come back 
Thursday. So before we go to Annabelle Gerwich, mm-hmm. I'm so excited to talk to you and Laura House about your, yeah. your new podcast. And can I can I give you some advice about microphone technique? Uh, yes, this is not my normal mic. If Let you do this, if you don't talk directly yes. into, unless popping your peas is going to be your signature move, that might it be, might I don't be. know. It might be. Uh, I, no, this is not my normal mic. I... Um, I am in a different room than I norm- than I podcast from. I see. Because I've got like a podcast room, a, a, an anxiety room, <laughs> a safe room, a depression room, a eat cookies room. You know, I've really stepped it up in the pandemic. So, you know. Did, did we do benefits? I'm in New York now. Didn't we do benefits at yeah. a church in the Valley? Right? Isn't Saint? There's a. You have a son, right? Yes. Right. Yes. We we did benefits together at that anti-torture church. Which anti-torture church? (laughs) We're in Los Angeles, aren't they? Oh, there's a pro-torture church. Yes. Yes. Um, You know, I don't have a son anymore. I have a non-binary person for a child. Great. They have they have shed the gender binary. They've gone beyond all that, and I'm now one of those parents of a beautiful person who's wears a lot of baggy clothes and you don't know what the fuck it's very exciting (laughs) every day is a new thing yes and i really am out of it uh i i introduced professor papano as professor hussein's wife and he said this is my partner And I just, I have to change. I am really not, I'm bad. It's just, it's, I'm so. You got to get with it. Yeah. All right, doll, hang on for one second. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on for one second, doll. And let me go to our newsroom. Do you hate me now? You have to unmute yourself. How annoying was my email to you? How annoying was it? Your, your email was not annoying Oh, to I try me. to make oh, it. Oh, I've had annoying. You could annoy me. You're going to have to work harder to <laughs> annoy me, okay? Okay, honey cakes, babies, sweetie, sweet cheeks. <laughs> well, Annabelle, we have a community yes. here that you're... We hope you're going to be a part of and they do great things and they're part of this show. And Dan Frankenberger, who makes everything happen here, is in our newsroom and he's going to do our community billboard. How are you, Dan? Did you get any sleep after our Diabetic Fury show Saturday? What happened? I tried to reach you yesterday. Were you as burnt out as I was? Well, I went to bed at two or three and I got up at seven or eight and sent out links to people who couldn't quite make it. And I laid down at noon and woke up at 730. Wow. It's like being a teenager all over again, isn't it? That's right, sweetie pie. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's well, Diabetic (laughs) Fury was so much fun. Thank you to everybody who showed up. And we're trying to do benefits every Saturday night. Here on the David Feldman Show, we're raising money for important causes. And one day, I'll actually 
cut a check and send it to the <laughs> no, <I'm> just <laughs> and we're doing another one Saturday night the COVID town squares do we have an Eventbrite page yet I'm hoping by tomorrow okay we're in, good, we're, that's uh, okay it's set up now yeah and, and we're Henry Huckamacki and the irritable immunologist back for COVID town squares number five number five number five and this is a way for everybody to get up close and personal to talk about COVID-19 with immunobiologist Henry Huckamacki, who will be on shortly, and the irritable immunologist, who we all love, who contacted me right before the COVID came to America and said, shut up, Feldman, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, What? He says, you don't know what you're talking about. Stop saying it's not going to be that bad. And I said, we get lucky. America always gets, no, we don't. And we started having the irritable immunologist who works deep in the bowels of the pharmaceutical industry. He can't reveal who he actually is. But wow, he knows his stuff. And he has... We just suck here in America. I've got friends right now who are in South Korea, and they're living lives like like people do, you know. But they have contact tracing, and they have no-go zones and red zones and green zones, and they're so organized, and people are agreeing to, you know, do, to do their part for the greater good. We don't like to do that for America. Hey, We're just... Hey, yeah. if you hate this shithole, America... <laughs> why don't you go some why don't you find another shithole country to live in my shithole love it or leave it it is a well, shithole country it I, is. I do really like my cookie room in my house <laughs> and i'm kind of attached to it and then there's the candy room uh-huh. where i just eat chocolate once a day i actually do have a cookie meal once a day i've i've decided that that's that's what that's what it takes for me is, to get through this lockdown is a you know a cookie meal right. you know right it's just, Cookies. just the way i'm gonna have to do it yeah 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 i find if you lack introspection it's fine <laughs> if you just keep moving forward and pretend everything's okay eat your feelings that helps yeah yeah you know yeah so let's talk about the community what what are they up to what is Tom Weber up to? Tom Weber is selling his art on his own website right now at TomWeberArt.com. And Weber has two Bs. And he's selling prints of the, uh, the art that he's made. It is so humbling to meet the people who show up for office hours. Yeah, it's like they're all amazing. Yeah, they're all amazing. Yeah. Um, Tom and his wife, Barb, performed on Facebook this past Saturday on the 24th, and they did an hour and a half long concert like they do most Saturdays. Uh, This one was special, though, because they reunited with their bassist. So that's a cool show that I haven't quite seen it yet because we were preparing for the Diabetic Fury show. But I'm going to go check that out. And they wanted uh, to let all the listeners know that they're pretty much taking November off. So the Tuesdays and Saturday concerts are going to be off, but they're going to be back in December. What does that mean? People can actually take time off? Then what do you do? They must be going away. Maybe the electric company is turning their power off. What does it mean to take time off? I don't understand this. 
I don't know. Well, I I took a small vacation. I packed my overnight bag and I went from my bedroom upstairs and locked myself in the guest bedroom and told my child, I'm not home for two days straight. So I went away. Do you have a box of cookies and chocolate? (laughs) Can can I, do you mind if I just, this is just me being passive aggressive, Annabelle. Yeah. If you put your cheek against the microphone like this, it's and I'm to try it, and then you can talk as loud as you want, and you don't pop your peas. Just do do I'm this. Gonna, I'm telling you, you're going to thank me. I'm just I'm just going to cry. No, I I'm I, I just do I, this. I just try this. I'm showing you how to do it. Do this. Trust me on this. That looks very odd, but Try I'm going to do it because uh, you're fucking with me. Dan and Frankenberger, who's in charge of the operation. How much uh-huh. better does she sound when she does this? It's way better. There's a difference between the, the side loading and the, the top loading. You yeah. know, I know you want to get really tech. close to the microphone do. and do like this. And you can do it like, look how close. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Oh. It's great. Now I look like I'm a I'm even older than I You look well I, I can't I Yeah. It's okay. fantastic. You Thank sound you. so no, you, you sound so great Aww. doing that. Thank you. You Thank really you. do. Aww. I haven't even given you a proper intro yet. Let's no? just finish community billboard because this stuff is important. This is all the people who make this show happen. So who who else is on the list? Diabetic Fury. We just had that a few days ago on Saturday, and the show went awesome. It was the reunion of David Feldman, Jim Earl, and Eddie Pepitone. And uh, yeah, and we raised a, a lot show. of money for a good cause. Eddie had a great time, and he's going to come back, and we'll do another one. We're so getting we better at this stuff. It's yeah, it's we're a little harder. To, it's, I forgot how hard some of this stuff is to do. Some of it's not easy. Well, try not doing what you're doing. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, with a Diabetic Fury, we wanted to mention that uh, the Twitter account for Diabetic Fury is at Diabetic Fury. Uh, Jim Earl is Jim Earl 666, and Martha is Martha Previtt. And Martha also has a Patreon account, which is at uh, patreon.com forward slash Martha Previtt. Right. And, uh, Eddie Pepitone was so awesome. We want to make sure we mention him too. He is at Eddie Pepitone, E-D-D-I-E-P-E-P-I-T-O-N-E. Right. And Bernie Ho Baby Cat just contacted me. There's a story that I was going to talk about, about how you can face jail time if you're behind on your rent in Arkansas. ProPublica has a piece. And I. it's interesting that she reminded me of this. I reached out to ProPublica because... Not only now in America do you have to worry about getting evicted for not non-pale, non-pale, non-payment or pale of rent. It's not funny. Debtor's prison. Debtor's prison. But let's continue. I see Laura House and uh, Laura. Laura in the... Laura House is in Delora. In De- that somehow that doesn't work. What else is on the uh, community billboard? I wanted to bring up Mike Steinell week after week. 
the uh, the songs he's writing is delivering for the David Feldman show. Yes. You have a, a, a series of songs that he created and you're playing a hell out of them and they're they're worthy of that play. Yes. Mike Steinell, he's got a MikeSteinell.com and if you just go to Spotify, he has a channel which is, uh, you just search for Mike Steinell and you will find it. And if you want to get something on the community billboard, please email me at DentFeldman at gmail.com and we'll get it up there. Yeah, explain why you're called Dent Feldman. It's because of the dent in your head. Yes, I have a dent in my head that I didn't know about, but apparently I do. And for some, some reason, uh, they, they think it's funny that I have a dent in my head. Well, since you did Community Billboard, I am going to play a song from Office Hours that is performed by Lance Jeffries, who is part of the COVID players who met at Office Hours. And on this song is Magnus, who lives in Sweden. And I would assume the rest of the COVID players who are Kathleen Ash, Tom Weber, John Hayes, right? And this is a song written by Benji. Right. This is a yeah. This is a great song that we uh, was a debuted on Office Hours a few yes, days ago. This is a yeah. song that we are going to listen to, and it's Laura it's House is going to love Halloween this. spirit. It's in the Halloween spirit, and then we'll be back with Annabelle Gerwich and Laura House. This is a song from the COVID players, written by Benji, who we love. Here we go. Now here's a little story that you all should know from the midnight hour at the Feldman Show. As Harvey Kay and David continued to talk, Benji reached down into his crusty sock. With a lighter from his pocket and some crumpled tin foil, he made a big smell that caused all to recoil. His eyes got glassy and he started to blink. Shut up, everybody. I'm trying to think. He did some hash. He did some monster hash. Some monster hash. From his graveyard stash. He did some hash. And then he got smashed. That monster hash. He did some monster hash. As the music and the party started to boom. In came all the creatures from the spooky chat room. Frankie C, Dan the Man, and Henry were there. While the Reverend Barry Lynn stood by in prayer. Jim Earl and Martha Previtt did their thing. As the COVID players all began to sing. Dracula rose from his coffin. And then he said, Come on everybody, let's wake the dead. He did some hash. He did some monster hash. Some monster hash. From his graveyard stash. He did some hash. And then he got smashed. That monster hash. He did some monster hash. As the evening wound down and people went for the door, they couldn't help but notice Benji there on the floor. As they all stood laughing and started to mock, Benji woke up and shouted, Where's my sock? He did some hash. He did some monster hash. Some monster hash. From his graveyard stash. He did some hash. And then he got smashed. That monster hash. He did some monster hash.
Well, 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 that is uh, the COVID players with Benji writing some great stuff. I want to introduce Laura House and Annabelle Gerwich. Laura House has been away. She's been running some show in England. You have to unmute yourself. Oh. Okay, and we have to unmute Annabelle. Let me introduce Annabelle Gerwich first. She is a New York Times bestselling author whose books include I See You Made an Effort, Wherever You Go, There They Are, and the upcoming (laughs) You're Leaving When? It'll drop in spring of 2021, she says, if there's still a world left. She hosted dinner and a movie on TBS for many years. What is that? What is happening? Huh? What is, is that a flush? What's going on? That's applause. It doesn't come out as applause. Oh, no, it, it sounds like a toilet flushing. Well, David. Okay. But, you know, whatever. I'll take it. All right. And David. you are a uh, NPR commentator. You, I was. And he does all the things. And you start opposite Bill Maher in Pizza Man. You start opposite <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield in Four Tenors. <laughs> And now you and Laura House are going to make the kind of resume I demand to uh-huh. do a fifteen-minute podcast no, with me. This is I'm big. Like, Were you in Pizza Man? If not, keep walking. You're, I, I wrote John that you're supposed to announce it as the terrible Pizza Man <laughs> and the terrible movie with Rodney Dangerfield because you know I kind of wear it as like a badge of honor. I did lots of terrible crap. You got to work just, with Rodney you know, Dangerfield. I did. I did. My God. When I, I mean, when I auditioned for him, he was in a bathrobe smoking a joint. I mean, it was classic. That's classic Rodney Dangerfield. You want nothing less. If he was wearing pants, what a disappointment. I, I was I was told this is what would happen. And if that hadn't happened, I would have been sad and yeah, would have cried. Yeah. I'm going to plug your podcast. The first night I did comedy was at Dangerfields because he's my hero. Rodney, oh, wow. Rodney is my hero. And I swear to God, this is true. I'm at Dangerfields waiting to go on. Rodney is at the height of his power, of his popularity. He stumbles out of a limousine in a bathrobe with his dick hanging out. Drunk. In a bathrobe, he walks into Dangerfields and the bartender says, get the F out of here, you a-hole. And Rodney uh, goes back and it's at Dangerfields. And I thought he can't get any respect. (laughs) I remember thinking this. What? This is unbelievable. He goes into his own club and he can't get any respect. But here's something that I respect. It is a new podcast called Tiny Victories with co-host Laura House and Annabelle Annabelle Gerwich. Annabelle Gerwich and Laura House are co-hosting a podcast. How exciting is that? It's on Maximum Fun. It's a a tiny podcast, though. That's an important thing to tell people. You mean it's less than eight hours? (laughs) It's for you. It's it's only seven hours. It's a microscopic compared to this one. But yes, it's 15 minutes, maybe 14, maybe 16. But it's around. It's ballpark. 15. That's hard to do. 
seriously, to do a short mm-hmm. podcast is hard. Why would you want to do a short podcast? Why do you want to do one that takes three days? <laughs> <laughs> That's the question. Why wouldn't you want to do a 15 minute podcast? But your your fans never leave the chat room. They're, <laughs> they're stuck. It's like they just live here now. <laughs> no, there was an idea. It was an idea about the idea was that, you know, um, first of all, uh, the tiny uh, victories idea was the idea that everything is so such a shit storm, overwhelming. Like I just didn't want to get out of bed. I was having a hard time changing from my night pajamas to my day pajamas. <laughs> These are my day pajamas. Oh, they're very and nice. I, thank you. And I just thought, oh God, I'm going to have to get through this time by finding like small pleasures. Like I'm. I just there's nothing big everything I love is gone democracy (laughs) people random sweat on a subway just any anything I love is gone and so I just have to go really tiny to find some happiness and and then I thought well you know this would be really a good idea for a podcast because who doesn't want to to feel better but not be all precious about it and then the idea was that it'd be a really tiny podcast because I have a very short attention span. I I have addled my brain Googling, where's Fauci today? And I can only sustain thoughts for less than 15 minutes. So I thought maybe somebody else would, you know, be having that too. And then I roped Laura into this. (laughs) I just like, I just dragged her in and I was just so lucky she wanted to do it too. It was the first tiny victory. Um, Can I just say um, Dave PA is a hero. I don't know if that means you're in Pennsylvania or your production assistant. I don't know what it means. A a father, an old-time father. I don't know what it means, but Dave has already subscribed. And he gave us five stars without listening. Wow. I don't want anyone to do. Like, why even... Because that's what I ask my listeners to do, because I know they're not going to give me five stars if they listen. I I would love for everyone in the chat room to just go ahead and leave a review and just only compare it to the David Feldman show, Uh even without listening. (laughs) That would be great. David Feldman's not on it. That's my tiny That's great. What a great idea. It's shorter. We got to give it that. It is. It is shorter. Laura knows I have this thing. I actually, and I, I know you're not supposed to say this, but I am obsessed with, well, you can say anything, but I, I'm obsessed with one star Amazon reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm depressed, I just go and look up one star Amazon reviews. That's fascinating. On any of it's, her 17 books that she it, it, Well, first of all. Oh, on your stuff or just stuff in general? Well, on both like first of all i'll go look at anne frank and i'll be like one star review <laughs> an attic you should see my apartment i mean people are just <laughs> just stupid but then i'll like go to my one star reviews and i'll look at what that person gave a five star review of and like wow on one of my books, I got a one star review and that same person gave a five star review to um, kitchen techniques of mafia wives. <laughs> and I thought, well, OK, <laughs> maybe that's not my Wait, audience. Sharp knives. Audience. Hey, that's yeah. a good idea for my listeners. You should mm-hmm. all 
go on iTunes and Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts, Tiny Victories, and give them five stars. But make fun of me at the same time. Just say this us, is so much better than the David Feldman show. Just, it's, I liked it better than the dent in David's head. You <laughs> that might, would be fun. Say. And then come back next week and read the reviews <laughs> on iTunes. Well, this is we'll so it, much we'll more entertaining. That'll be the next song. That, we'll that would be a great too. way. And that will help you with so the algorithm. Do, yeah. If everybody sure. goes on and and just gives you five stars and say this and the reasons why they love it and or crap on me, that would be so it's really interesting about one star reviews. I think the hardest I ever laughed, I was in a writing room once and I'm not making this up. It, bear me, hear me out. OK, was this on Vibe? Yes, the Quincy Jones vehicle. <laughs> 1996. Oh, I know. Vibe. You want yeah. me to tell you who the host was? Sinbad. Sinbad? Maybe. <laughs> I do remember. And Chris, not Chris Tucker, but another Chris who was hosting a lot at the time. Yeah, yeah. So... I have my laptop open. We're waiting for lunch and I start laughing hysterically like to I'm like I'm crying. And it's a commercial that Robin Williams is doing for St. Jude's Hospital with sick kids. <laughs> and I start laughing hysterically. Robin was still alive and I, I, I can't control myself. And these people gather. What's he looking at? And I am laughing hysterically at Robin Williams doing a commercial for St. Jude's with sick kids. And they ask and I'm laughing because somebody gave it a thumbs down it was on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and every I couldn't get I'm, I'm, I'm crying, <laughs> laughing and. There are about six people go, Feldman's lost his mind. He's laughing at a St. Jude's commercial on YouTube. I thought, who would give Robin Williams a thumb down, thumbs down? Who could look at that? Was he not wearing the red nose? <laughs> no, it was just, they were by like, the way. You just did Patch Adams and you don't even. Right. You ever hear we, Jeff we, Garland's pitch for Patch Adams? No. Jeff Garland used to pitch. He would. He said, this is how they pitched Patch Adams. You like kids? You like cancer? Have I got a movie for you? <laughs> <laughs> but St. Jude's Hospital, by the way, if you're looking to give, if you have a dollar, mm. give to St. Jude's. They do not send anybody away. It is a great, great organization that's been vetted by people who don't Who's waste... That? Who don't waste their time. I'm giving this, I'm giving your promotion. No, right no, now. I always down. tell people, if you have extra cash, give it to St. Jude's. But that was, I could, I could not stop laughing that somebody would give a YouTube commercial for St. Jude's a thumbs So down. that was like early YouTube. Like that was the first troll that you discovered when you were like, oh, people just act like dicks on the internet. Yeah. Like that was, that was the day you lost your innocence. 
There's yeah. something weird about how people have to weigh in on opinions on everything. Like even a commercial for St. Jude's. Actually, <laughs> one of the one of the tiny do that. Just, yeah, so but, but but so you we just leave we, it alone. Like just like can't you just like watch something? Do you have to tell us what you think? But everyone feels they have an, an opinion now, and so Ronald McDonald House was a little more. <laughs> clever in the way they <laughs> but we just did laura and i just one of our tiny victory shows coming up is going to uh be about uh this fucking terrible year 2020 and how you know i resisted but i got on the bandwagon of hating 2020 finally and the way that i knew that it was really a thing to hate 2020 was all the merch you know, and you get they've got mugs now that say like dumpster fire 2020. And then there's like T-shirts. And one of the T-shirts I talk about is it gives uh, the year 2020 an Amazon review, a one star review for the year. And unbelievably for the T-shirt, for the one star review for Amazon for the year 2020, people give that one star like like for the t-shirt like i don't know like the t-shirt wasn't made that well it's a 2020 t-shirt of course it's shit it's a piece of shit it's a joke shirt but people are like giving their opinions about uh, now do you only remember the bad reviews yeah, they're like tattooed in your in your brain, and then you're always working to counter that bad review. I, I don't know why it is. It well, I mean, I do know why it is. Self loathing, <laughs> the heart of things that you know it makes you. It's like a confirmation that you're someone found you out. You know, like I think that's called imposter syndrome. Imposter uh, syndrome. Yeah, I've mm-hmm. heard of. Don't that. act like you don't know it. No, I, I I studied that at the London School of Economics. It's a serious thing, imposter mm. syndrome. When I was in mm. medical school, I tried to find a cure for imposter syndrome, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I find alcohol works to a point <laughs> until you have to quit. And then, now, Dave, I have a question for you. Yes. What? Why are you speaking with a sexy into the mic voice? What's, what you, when did this start? What's what are you going talking on, about, baby? No, what's going on with you? What are you talking about? I'm, I was just trying to teach. What you are you? About. I've never. You've never spoken like this what before. Mean, what do you mean by that? When did this become the smooth jazz <laughs> podcast with <laughs> David Feldman's dented head? <laughs> well, I was trying to. Yeah, I'm trying to model microphone behavior for Annabelle. Oh, God. I am so sucking with this because I'm not, Lauren, just tell tell the people I'm not in my normal microphone. So I don't know what to do. I'm like, there's no such thing as a normal microphone. It's fluid. Every (laughs) microphone is different. Don't say normal microphone. Oh, wow. oh, right. And what pronouns should I use for this microphone? I'm well, not I, it's sure Mike or, or Mike, Michaela. It could be a <laughs> Michelle phone. It could be. Uh, oh, or it could be a macro phone. It doesn't matter what the mm. size is. I don't judge. Anyway, uh, I, I want your show to succeed. So Thank I'm just you. trying to model proper microphone technique. 
Oh, thank you. I because I, I, I think it's a great. I, I think it's a great idea. So, what are some? It's a fun idea. So, give me an example of of a, 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 a tiny victory. Of a tiny victory. Um, well, it's anything that like um, like one of mine. We haven't done the show about it yet, but I, I don't even know if we will. But like like I didn't eat pizza for breakfast one day and I was really proud of it only because I was trying to not eat certain things and then it was late in the day and breakfast got away from me and then Brian was making lunch and he made pizza and it was just right there and it was ready and I was really hungry and he's like did you want but I was like not do and it was like you know what I said I wouldn't do it and I didn't do it. But that's the and best time to eat pizza for breakfast. You know what? Don't, this is why it was such a victory because it was like, you know what? I said I wouldn't do it and I didn't do it. And like Annabelle just did a show where she discovered about cave paintings that humans aren't the awful pieces of shit that we have come to believe that they are. <laughs> that there's actually hope for humanity um, as as um, Annabelle, you what's the word? Well, uh, <laughs> as shown in cave paintings. So mine so, are all going to be about food, probably. No, I mean that was yours was about about the tiny victory of of not doing something but keeping a, a little a little compact with yourself. So a tiny victory, like we we decided, you know, Laura and I came up with sort of a uh, an idea of what makes a tiny victory, and it has to be something inconsequential to the workings of the world. Something mm-hmm. that's not going to change the world. No one's going to write about it. We're not like curing cancer, but like to be able able to resist having pizza when you wanted to have pizza it's like a little tiny victory that gets your day going so for me one of the shows that i did is about how my happy place i found my happy place everybody needs to have a happy place my happy place happens to be a six-way traffic intersection in Los Angeles. Oh, <laughs> I get so happy at this traffic intersection. Why? Because... No, David. Oh, this is a great story. This is well, a great example. Mine was dumb. No, no, no. Because <laughs> talk about reason... imposter syndrome. <laughs> no. The reason why I love this intersection. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, Laura. Where's she going? Come back, Downstairs. Laura. Uh, the reason why the intersection is my happy place is because it's this crazy intersection in Beverly Hills where there's no traffic lights. And somehow or another, people pull up and instead of road rage, because everyone has road rage in Los Angeles, people honk when they're driving down the street and they're the only car. Mm-hmm. On the and it's street. gotten a lot <laughs> worse in the past 10 years. Totally. But yeah. this one intersection, it's so dangerous and improbable. Like it's you get there and you go like, oh, my God, what the fuck? This is so scary that it makes people slow down and they have to I call it an empathy generator and they have to think about the other people. And uh, this is how pathetic my life has gotten during the pandemic sometimes i just drive there to go through the intersection because it makes me happy now that's a tiny victory because 
really this is not life altering it's not you know no one is going to write about this it's just like i found something that makes me happy and i just think that's important to hold on to the first episode is about um sometimes i like to get a little wonky uh that that episode is i mean that um intersection is it's a uh, beverly and lomita in beverly hills it's been written about it is actually famous it's kind of this crazy cra- crazy like a i make pilgrimages like i saw jesus's face in a pancake so but anyway but the the cave painting episode that's up i how did he look how 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 did Jesus look in the pancake? When you saw Jesus. Oh, uh, maple-y. Sorry, know. so let me try it. Can I show you a tiny victory? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, no, Tubin, stop. <laughs> no, David, oh, yeah. do not, don't do, do that. Do not show us your tiny victory. That is not okay. Can I, can I be on your show? Can I be like, can I be your tri yeah. host or something? This would yes, be so much I think fun. We need a, we need a mascot. Yeah. So this is a tiny victory. I pulled this. This happened in Brooklyn. A man set fire to his house, an apartment. And this made me I want to show this. The people who are listening to this as a podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel to see this because it's really inspiring. I'm showing right now a an apartment building in Brooklyn that's on fire. And there's a cat on the ledge. And with all that's going on right now, you see the kitty cat? Let me show this to you. And, and look how great people are. Can you see them? They're screaming, jump kitty, jump kitty. And he's afraid. And he jumps. And, he, and, and no one and catches him. Nobody. They try. <laughs> and look at the flames coming out of the window. I mean, the cat waited to the very last moment to, oh to jump. God. And there's the cat. <laughs> And look at how concerned everybody is for this little cat with the, and they pick him up and his butt is all burnt but he's going to be okay. What does that say to you? Isn't that great? Let me just Do you think the cat Doesn't that make you proud not to be a cat? Yes. Doesn't that make you? Doesn't that make you happy that a cat was burned? No. Doesn't that make you? That makes me happy. What if that cat has had just watched cats (laughs) and then set the apartment on fire and then jumped out? I'm going to admit, uh, you know what? I, I felt like cats was a, almost a tiny, a tiny victory. I, one of those people who went to see the movie, I heard, I heard it was really good if you got stoned and went, and I, I did. And it, it lived up to it. I was laughing so hard. I cried. It was, it was, um, as bad as uh, be, as bad good or good bad as Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, it's so bad good, but not I like mean, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls or no, the Oscar. No, seeing Idris Elba as a cat was like hallucinogenic. It was hilarious. It was really fun. It was like visiting an alternate universe, you know. And I, you know, someone wrote in the Dave M feels this is. Sappy Feldman doesn't. What are you doing reading the chat room? They're animals. Reading the comments. Both of you. These. (laughs) I'm gonna cry. If you read the chat room, you're gonna go down a rabbit hole into oblivion. They will take you. I've told you many times the chat room is the best part of your show. They 
they are bad people. <laughs> they, <laughs> they are, are great bad. People. You've they, trapped them, and they're hilarious. No, no, no. They're, they're they're bad, bad people. They come out. They, they're undermining my authority here. There's dancing and smoking. I yes. uh, it's, uh, in it's the chat room. I had a, I put here. a unisex bathroom in there. Mm-hmm. I, mm. I can't even tell you what they've done to it. It's, no good can come from that. But uh, come on, that cat. That the way humans. Stop in the middle of a fire to save a cat. That speaks volumes to we're good people. We just need leadership. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I think you've solved all of the problems. That's there. There are those with everything divided. It does seem like we do agree on like we love dogs and cats. We don't even all love the same dogs and cats, but like of political, like I was noticing today, there's a guy on my Facebook who um, we grew up together, friend of the family. He's super conservative, like I'll post things and he almost always DMs me with like, actually the blah, 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 white man, mansplaining, whatever. And I was a fireman and you should know this and we blah, blah, and very, but he'll post a cute video with his dog and i'm like well we can all agree (laughs) i'm like he loves his dog playing in the snow just like anybody else like you know what people like part of us animals bring out the best you know people like more than cats and dogs they like interspecial like things so like the donkey show in juarez Put away your tiny victory. (laughs) No, what they like is what it's really like when you see like a gorilla who's raised a kitten or like a goat, a a cow licking a kitten. I'm going to give a lot of kittens. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When it's a a goat and a rat and they're watching a movie together. No, we love that. (laughs) Right. Like for some reason, that just really gets us. That just, I feel like that's, that's one of those things it's like beyond like Unlikely oh no friends yes yes why is that why do we love that what is that oh. what is that well speaking of unlikely animal pairs oh, hang on ivanka I, and jared a bit. ivanka and jared just celebrated a wedding anniversary Oh, by getting a new uh-huh. supreme court justice yeah that's i think sometimes you just go to a nice dinner i think 10 years of marriage what is it paper or supreme court justice i don't know what it is yeah it's it's nickel copper justice paper clip uh uh, matching jail outfits rolling civil rights back Uh, yeah 10 year must be rolling civil rights back Um, mm -hmm. okay tiny victories yes ivanka lover is she a role model to uh you she is for me yes go on well you well i mean read the headline here because you talk about reading one star reviews okay uh-huh. i mean both of you have trump derangement syndrome and <laughs> you yes. do because you're busy reading one star reviews do you think ivanka and jared care ivanka trump's anniversary message to jared kushner quickly goes off the rails Twitter users aren't exactly sending them roses. Now, do you think Jared and Ivanka 
stayed up all night reading my hate tweets at them? Um, no. No, oh, I, okay. I don't it's think a level. they did. They, were, they went back to their cryogenically frozen pods. <laughs> they don't, they're not allowed to stay up all night. They get taken out of the pods and they put that put back in the pods. I just, I just have how many words for them? Uh, four words, bad for the Jews. Ivanka and Jared are bad for the Jews. And if you're Jewish, like, you know, that means it just that's like the to me, that's like the worst thing you can say, because it's like, oh, Bernie Madoff, bad for the Jews. Uh, I, I don't want to give a whole long list. It's going to make it seem like Jews are so bad all the time. That's what but they, I mean, they used to say during the Holocaust, <laughs> Hitler, he's bad for the Jews. <laughs> no, but... He's, no, he's, but, he's not good for the keep it between yourself he's bad for the Jews no but these people they're just the, they're, the they're, proud they're, boys are bad for the Jews Jews aren't bad for other Jews no they are yes they are they're making us look bad their lack of empathy their soulless lack of their their skin is pretty good <laughs> or, <laughs> everything else bad nothing good everything else bad yeah have to take a quick break uh immunobiologist henry huckamacki is with us we have a sponsor i you know i promised that we wouldn't run advertising on this show but alex jones one of my heroes is making a fortune and henry is coming up later very quickly this segment of laura house and annabelle gerwich on the david feldman show is brought to you by David, this segment is brought to you by Feldo's, the cereal that treats COVID and makes your heart race in the process. And why is that? Why does it make your heart race? It makes your heart race because Feldo's, unlike other leading competitive brands, has 40% more hydroxychloroquine. Yes, Feldo's. Guaranteed to make your heart race now with a free Scott Atlas decoder ring. That way, even you will understand what Scott Atlas is saying when he's on the news. Yes. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so much, Henry Huckamaki. That is an immunobiologist endorsing my cereal, which also cures COVID-19 and and is great for the prostate. And mm. and it's great for your kids. Forty percent less sugar, right, Henry? That's right, David. It's fun for the whole family. It's great for the whole family. <laughs> Fell those. Then what? Is that what got Trump better? Yes, we'll say that. Did they just give him a bowl of that at Walter Reed? Yes, as long as they've been gutting the FTC, I will say that. As long as the FDA no longer pays attention to Alex Jones. I will say anything about Feldo's. Thank you. And that's an immunobiologist who's endorsing Feldo's. Another visual gag that we've been adding since we developed this YouTube channel. Thank you, Frankie C., by the way. She's amazing. Frankie C. from the Molinari crime family does our graphics. And she's unbelievable. She's crime un- family. Someone who reads my books and doesn't like them likes crime family recipes in the kitchen. We should. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. No, it did not work. How long yeah. does it take you to write a book? 
a couple years. It's so stupid. Why do I do it? <laughs> it's so, What's your it's schedule so like? Well, what is your schedule like? Do you sit down every day and write? I do. I do. It's, uh, it's, uh, um, I, I didn't really think about this when I went from acting to writing, I, that it would, I wasn't realizing how hard it was going to be really the sort of the alone time and the discipline. I liked acting because I liked people knocking on my, my, uh, door in my office, you know, my, my dressing room and saying, excuse me. Do you have time to try on a cute skirt? <laughs> that that really made it for me. You know uh-huh. what I'm saying? And no one has ever knocked on my writing office door and said, "Do you have time to try on a cute skirt?" It's mm-hmm. just never happened. It's really lonely and I don't it's crazy. I don't know why I do it, but I get uh compelled by like an idea and then I just have to I'm kind of I guess I'm kind of OCD about it and then I just can't let go of it and 2 years later it's a book. And they're Sorry. published. Yeah, crazy. Crazy. Right. Right. Um, I, does, I, the, does yeah. the latest book have um, about how unhoused people were staying with you? Yeah, um, sometimes uh, I, I mean, I, I really like short form essays. And so I publish and I've uh, been very fortunate the New York Times and L.A. Times and New Yorker have all published me. And I published a story last year this that is, is this is crazy. To, like, this is wild to me. Well, I started renting out a room in my house uh, after I got divorced and I had no money and I uh, really needed to underwrite my mortgage with. When did you get uh, divorced? Uh, it's like a t- three. It's, it's, it's a long drawn out thing, but it was like three years ago. So uh, I got, I got divorced. In the divorce. I got divorced yeah. three years ago. Oh my God! Uh, Man, were you two married? So, we're, 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 oh my God! You ruined my life. <laughs> Probably. Um, so, but so I uh, was renting out rooms, and a tenant canceled. And I heard about this program, uh, a rapid rehousing program, which um, is that you are volunteer to be a host, and you house these house guests who are young people who are experiencing uh, housing insecurity. And the this organization uh, was uh, gives you a small subsidy for that. And I hadn't been that was not what I was looking to do. But I had coincidentally just done the homeless count in Los Angeles. And I had been thinking about how many unhoused people there were. What do you mean you did the homeless count? Every year in Los Angeles, like many urban cities around the country, in order to make sure that we get enough funding for the people we live here and also services for people who are experiencing housing insecurity, uh, volunteers go out on the street once a year in the middle of the night because that's when you can get a proper count of how many people are sleeping without shelter. And I've done that a couple years in a row. And... Um, So I was aware of the issue, but I really was never intending to house 
people experiencing homelessness in my home, but I found out about this program and I volunteered. And what I didn't know was that I was the seventh person in Los Angeles to participate in this trial of model uh, rapid rehousing uh, program. Now, is I it, thought was it because hundreds of people had done this, but oh, I was the seventh. Actually. Okay, seven people did it, and how did it work yeah. out? Uh, you know, it is. Did you get out. a sitcom out of it at least? <laughs> it's a great well, idea I, for a sitcom. I'm writing that show for HBO now. Oh, good. It's a true, it's a are true you, story. Are you writing it for HBO? A couple lived with her, and then one has like I, a music deal now. Well, like, it is, she, she how could it not be an HBO? Why, I, I mean, like, certainly you wouldn't have done it. If you weren't thinking of an idea no, for that, HBO. That really, I had no idea what was going to happen. It, I really, I really didn't. It was not planned. And okay. the thing is, this this is an idea which is called a housing first mall. And right, what well, you're breaking up. What is the name whatever, of the show? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Laura, watch this. I'm going to make Laura laugh. Pay attention, Laura. Get out of the chat room. Okay, Annabelle, so what's the premise of your show? A woman whose life is falling apart. No, no, no. You're supposed to tell me this heart-wrenching story of some oh, of a good deed that you line. did. Hang on. Uh -huh. This is the premise of the bit. You're going to okay. describe this okay. great thing that you did. Okay, okay. But I'm only going to fixate on the fact that you turned it into an HBO series. Okay, here I go. Oh, forget the bit now. It's, oh, no. no, 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 no. I want to do. I want to do it. I want to do it. You ready? Okay. So I, David, I took in this couple experiencing homelessness and their comfort. Did you animal. think? Is it a gay couple? Because that I think that would be really interesting. A gay couple. Laura, wouldn't you want to see a gay couple uh, that's homeless? I'll only watch it if it's a gay couple. Huh? Two young I, people. Young people. Good. They were from a town that everything has been shut down because of fracking. All culture is gone from fracking and so they came to los angeles to Great. better their lives they saved money they didn't expect to be living in their car they were do they, they have were, a sassy daughter who talks back to them that would be good <laughs> did you find lots of full frontal right <laughs> well it is hbo <laughs> i like this a lot what anyway. a good deed you did I did David. not mean That's to do a good That's not why deed. I made her tell the story, by the way. That's a weird ending. Yeah. But anyway. Was, I just couldn't believe she, like, opened up her house to, like, house people. I didn't, I just thought that was an amazing. I She's didn't even a good know that person. was a program people She's were a good doing. Person. In, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know That's how a good a person here. I am, but I did do that. And let me just tell you, once you, now this, this kind of program is happening in 11 cities across the United States. It was actually started in England what 30 years ago. What is the name of the program? This, it's called a host home program. And I, I have to say, once you do it, you feel like it's the most normal thing that you could do, which is taken. And these are, you know, young people and you, there are so many I'm being very serious here, but there are so many community college students and all, you know, a, one in five community stu college students in Los Angeles experiences homelessness. So I've really become Shit. a one stakeholder. One in five college students yeah. in LA? Wow. Yeah. 
uh, yeah. So, you know, this is a really big issue in America. And we have a lot of people who have extra empty bedrooms. So it was it turned out to be like the most normal thing that I've ever done. And she done. happens to be a writer and happened to write so. about it. It, yeah, I had no idea that was going to happen. I had really no idea. But it's still yeah. a funny bit. Yeah, and that's that's one of the stories in my in my in my um, in my new book. Um, there's another. There's just it's a whole range of stories about being. It, well, the subtitle of the book is called "Adventures in Downward Mobility," and mm-hmm. it's all kinds of ways that. Uh, people uh, find themselves uh, financially strapped, which I did not. This was written before the pandemic, so I had no idea everybody was going to be in that position. But, yeah. yeah. All right. And, David, I'm moving to Texas for winter. With Joe Rogan. Ha- Laura yes, has. with Joe Rogan. Laura um, and Joe Rogan. Know. Joe doesn't know that you're moving. Oh, he knows. Him. He gets it. Um, but I'm packing, and I wanted to show you this because I almost never have it out. Um, hey, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Tubin, don't. What is that? <laughs> what is that? This is a turkey flipping you off. Oh. And it's my father and I made it. I just, I try to not be from Texas a lot, but I fully am. So he found the turkey. <laughs> Yeah. He took care of the, but wow. you cut this out, off and then you rubber band down these fingers and it's flipping you off. And it's an old hillbilly tradition. And I wrote on blue collar TV and I got up all my nerve and I asked Jeff Foxworthy to sign it. Ah, and he did. So and it sweet. says, Laura, you are wow. a hillbilly. Wow. And I did the wood burning. That's great. Hey, can you give my best to your dad? Oh my gosh. Well, David, he passed away last September. It was pretty serious. It was a lot of heart disease. And we were with him in hospice. Even at the end until his very last day. That's pretty funny. It's I want to mention that my parents are dead too. It's still a funny bit. All of our parents are dead. So. All of our parents are dead. There's well, that. let me ask you one uh, last <laughs> question uh, about your uh, your dad. So. Mm-hmm. Heads or tails? No. What? What? What's the? What was the verdict? I mean, did did he leave you anything? What he? Yes. Yeah. Hang on. Let me. I'm looking. For, yeah, he did. Oh, tell <laughs> me your father. Him. Tell me your father passed away. Um, David, I didn't tell you that my my father passed away. <laughs> All right. Inheritance is a funny thing because you're like, oh, I'm so right, sad, I, but I love. Money. We did oh, this bit. I, my dad. Oh, but I love cash. We did this bit, Laura, about a year ago. I I did her her father passed away and I had all these rim shots and trombones and stuff like that. And I started playing it and the two of us started laughing so hard. And it, and then 
at one of the first office hours, Harvey J.K. was there and we started doing the bit and he got so angry at me. He, he didn't know. Oh, yeah, he was not having it. He was not. I don't know how to. I don't know how to capture the magic of the first time you did it. it was, it's beyond the most inappropriate thing you could do. I told you my my you know, my dad died on September 11th. Hmm. Now that was ruined for me. Oh, I, I stepped on the joke. I'm you sorry. See the, do it again. See I'm the, sorry. The, Your dad died on September 11th. Yeah. Now that day's ruined. <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding my. <laughs> All right. Tiny Victories is the name of the podcast. Annabelle Gerwich and Laura House, I hope you come back real soon. I hope all my listeners go and subscribe to Tiny Victories on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. How can this not be a great, great podcast? Everybody should go subscribe and give it and give it five reviews, five reviews, give it five, <laughs> give it five reviews, give it five stars Right. I had a little tiny victory of the time I actually enjoyed a jazz concert, even though I'm engaged mm. to a jazz musician. There's a lot of fun. It's finding the nugget of good stuff. In give, it, give it five stars and write a review why it's so give much better than, than my show. Thank you, Annabelle. It's great to see you again, Laura. Oh, please, both of you, you, please come back real soon. When we come back, we're going to have some more laughs talking about COVID-19 with immunobiologist <laughs> Henry Huckamaggi. Bye, everybody. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. Bye. Thank so much you. Fun. Thank you, Annabelle. So much Thank fun. Thank you. Joined by Henry 
Huckamacki in a second. I want to remind everybody that this Friday night at nine o'clock, we're doing our Halloween office hours. You're all invited. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. Hit the attend a live taping menu and I'll send you a link and you're in and Office Hours is always a lot of fun. We get to meet and talk, and that's where I met Henry Huckamacki. And then Saturday night, Saturday night, it's COVID Town Square's number five, where immunobiologist Henry Huckamacki and the irritable immunologist talk COVID. And hello, Henry. Hello, David. You're right. It's going to be a Halloween special on Saturday. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. Well, I want to show you something. Uh, what's wrong with this picture? We're looking at the Ninth Justice. We're looking at Amy Coney Barrett being sworn in. I would assume that's Clarence Thomas. I don't know who's swearing her in, but I think it's Clarence Thomas. And, uh, well, what's wrong with this picture is that Amy Coney Barrett is being sworn in as the ninth. And that Donald Trump is the president. And that, yes. Or, and Clarence Thomas. And Clarence Thomas is still on the Supreme Court. But yes. w- w- what are they not wearing? There's something missing in this picture. I can't, just, I can't remember what it is, but there's something, some kind of behavior that they should be modeling for everybody. And, and they just don't seem to be modeling it. Yeah, David, none of them are wearing masks. So for the people just listening to the podcast, none of these individuals are wearing masks. Now, of course, if you asked them why they're not wearing masks, uh, both Trump and Amy Coney Barrett have previously had COVID and they would both claim that therefore they are immune. Highly likely that they are. For the meantime, uh, at least for the next few months, they're both likely immune to COVID-19. However, as you said, one there's one important point here, which is that these individuals are going to be uh, either are or, well, now I guess they all are, uh, at the top of our government. They're people that should be viewed with respect based on their positions, not saying that these specific individuals uh, deserve any respect from any of us. But right. you're right. These individuals should be modeling what the public should be doing. We're currently seeing more than 80,000 cases of COVID reported daily in the United States. And one of the most effective methods that we would have for reducing the spread of COVID is mask wearing. And again, they would say, hey, I've had COVID. I can't get COVID again. So why should I wear a mask? But it's about the image that you're seeing here. The supporters of Donald Trump are going to see this picture and say, hey, COVID's not a big deal. Nobody's wearing masks, even when they're this close to each other. So I'm not going to wear masks either. It's it's pretty outrageous. And they are now finding that he literally is the Johnny Appleseed of COVID, that his campaigns, he's spreading the virus. Yeah, that's right. They're seeing spikes basically anywhere that they have indoor events. Um regardless of the size of uh, the community that it's in, basically everywhere that they have an indoor event, they see a spike almost immediately afterwards, at least to some extent. It's, it's, it's truly astounding. It truly is that this is the president of the United States and he doesn't want anybody to wear the mask. And his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, says we have given up controlling the pandemic 
we're going for the magic bullet, the, the vaccine, the therapeutics. That's going to solve it all. Because why? Because that's where the money is. There's something really cheap, isn't there, Henry? That could kill this that, thing right now. That's one side of it. The other side of it is that these people are so afraid of the economic impact of doing any sort of even limited shutdown or enforcing any sort of public health uh, initiatives. We're seeing this in other countries as well. I just put up something on my Patreon uh, about what we're seeing in France right now. It was supposed to be a really short update on what was going on in France, and it ended up being like an 11 minute long rant. So, if you're not on my Patreon, check that out. Go to patreon.com forward slash Huck 1995 and sign up for this gentleman's newsletter where he writes about public health and he writes about COVID-19 and science. We've talked about this over and over well, again. David, let me just finish my point here. Uh, what we're seeing is that these governments that have more interest in how the economy is doing than people's lives when that is what the governing philosophy is of that government we see that the people are going to get sick and the people are going to die so in lieu of having sensible public health initiatives to try to prevent the spread of it until we have a vaccine they're going to say to heck with that people go get infected eventually there's going to be a vaccine and those of you who survived you won't even need the vaccine because you're already immune as it is this is an absolutely insane strategy for how to handle a pandemic if you were banking on having a vaccine being the ultimate thing that's going to end it you still want to have people distancing from each other so that you're not having to tackle a huge public health crisis at the same time as trying to produce a vaccine and get it distributed where everybody would be able to get it but that's not what that's not what's happening here in the United States that's not what's happening in France where they're having uh, they had 52,000 cases yesterday in a country that's four and a half times smaller than the United States that would be like the equivalent of us having over 250,000 cases here today in one day. It's absolutely insane. But like I said, they're not putting in sensible public health initiatives because leaders like Trump and Macron think that keeping the economy afloat is more important than people's lives. And they have this hope in a, you know, a magical bullet. Everything can be solved by the pharmaceutical industry. You yeah, don't have to change behavior. You know, don't give up the the pizza with 40 toppings. Try Prilosec. Don't change your behavior. There's a vaccine coming. Yeah, you know, I think that on one hand, there's the hope that that's going to be the case because the people that are giving the orders either don't believe in science or don't listen to people that do believe in science. Uh, that's definitely one side of it. But the other side of it, I think that they're more using a potential vaccine as cover for their failed public health initiatives. Uh, you know, you can say that we're looking for getting a vaccine and that's what's going to end it. I think that that's naive, but I don't think that they're particularly naive in thinking that the vaccine is going to be available and distributed tomorrow to everyone. I think that they're just saying there is a vaccine coming down the pipeline so that people don't pay attention to the failures of the government as it currently stands. Right. Meadows, chief of staff, and they've pretty much 
said, certainly Scott Alice, that they're banking on herd immunity, which is mythical. Yeah, we, we don't know whether or not herd immunity is going to be even possible. Herd immunity has never really been tried uh, without vaccination. Herd immunity is something that you typically would try to achieve with vaccination rather than letting everybody get a disease that's going to kill, you know, 1% of the people that have it, especially the elderly. With the, the, the common knowledge, cold, the common cold is a coronavirus, correct? There's a bunch of different common cold viruses, but yeah, among them are coronaviruses. And we don't develop herd immunity for the common cold, even though we get it every year. That's a good point, David. So here, here's what you're saying. So like I said, there's a bunch of different common cold viruses. Rhinoviruses are the main variety, but yeah, coronaviruses are a substantial portion of common cold viruses. But here's the thing. You can have the same exact strain of a specific coronavirus go around you get infected you're immune for six months and then it comes back six months later and you're no longer immune now there's just two new papers that are out this week um, one from the uk and one from portugal that show that we're likely to have uh, immunity for at least seven months in the majority of people this is more or less in line with what we were thinking if if this is anything like sars one we would expect the immunity to last for between one and three years. This isn't quite as severe as SARS-1, and we have seen a severity-linked uh, antibody response. So the more severe the case, the higher the amount of antibodies that we're seeing. This, this happens in a lot of respiratory diseases. But basically what we're saying here is that the more sick you get, the more antibodies you're going to have to protect you against subsequent infections, right? Which would indicate that less severe cases are going to lose their their immunity faster. At least this is the supposition that we have based on present evidence. Now, if SARS-1, excuse me, which killed around 9% of the people that got it, if that immunity lasted roughly one to three years, that's based on lab trials, not on uh, observational data, because SARS only came around once in 2003. Um, But late 2002, early 2003. Um, But when we looked at people that survived from SARS, we saw a complete loss of antibodies or essentially a complete loss of antibodies within two, three years. This is about nine times less severe in terms of the case fatality rate. And with that severity linked production of antibodies, it might last less than we had in SARS-1. It could be eight months to a year rather than one to three years. We don't know yet, but the point is, is that if this is like any other coronaviruses that we know of, we're going to lose that immunity somewhere between six, seven months and two to three years, somewhere in between there. Let's look at what happened over the weekend since the last time we talked. Mike Pence, should he be out campaigning when his chief of staff has tested positive? No, David. Um, One of the things that I thought was funny, um, I don't know if this was an actual release from Mike Pence himself or if it was just some tongue in cheek um, response to the news that he was out, even though his chief of staff tested positive. But uh, according to someone that I saw, Mike Pence claimed that he is an essential worker and therefore he needs to still be out. Uh, I don't know if that was actually a direct quote from him that he's an essential worker and has to be out working but it appears that that is the okay there it is yeah 
Mike Pence. He's an essential worker. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? I'll read the headline Isn't for the he head of the, the, the task force? Isn't he the head of the coronavirus task force? Yes. This is a headline from New York Magazine. Is Trump I, downplays the third wave. Another COVID-19 outbreak strikes the White House. And the and this other one, Mike Pence defies quarantine as White House deems his campaign presence essential. So, you know, the same way that you have doctors that are treating people that have cancer in the hospital, the same way that you have doctors treating people with COVID, the same way that you have people working at the grocery stores, because if you don't have food, you die. In the same way that those people are essential, Mike Pence is absolutely essential, David. I think yes. that that's a, that's a given. It goes without saying. Well, it's, well, apparently it goes with saying because they wrote it in New York magazine. Yes, which is real news. Let me show you what is not being told to the American people by the White House. This is from the New York Times. This is a list of where the virus is surging. It's about the top 15 states where it's hitting really bad. Mm-hmm. North Dakota 753 cases per 100,000 in the past week. How bad is that? That's bad. That's really bad. David, let me let me point out something for you. So I'm going to read the top, I don't know, I'll read the top few states and, and tell me what you, you notice about them. Okay. North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wisconsin, Guam, which is, of course, a territory, um, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Nebraska, Iowa, Alaska. What do you notice about that list? Oh, they're all blue state, democratically controlled areas that have been mismanaged by the Democrats. Not, 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 not quite, but that also wasn't the point that I was getting oh, at. What, okay. what do you notice about North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wisconsin, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Nebraska, Iowa, and Alaska? Well... Has Trump been campaigning there? Also not the point that I'm getting at. And I saw I see some people saying population density. Also not the point I'm getting at. Let me point something out, David. We've had snow on the ground where I live for about a week now. Uh, those are all cold states. What do you do when you're in a cold state in the wintertime? You sequester indoors. And uh, another thing that I just put up on Patreon was a reading of an article that came out from Stat News that was halfway decent, um, talking about how the biologic side of winter conditions are going to make uh, infection and severity of COVID worse because of lower humidity, lower temperatures. These are things that help the virus persist in the air and also weaken your mucosal lining of your respiratory tract that makes you more susceptible to respiratory viruses that's why we get sick with colds in the winter time it's not because the viruses yeah are more prevalent in the winter it's because we're more susceptible to them in the winter so that's that's what stat news focused on but the other thing that they're not paying as much attention to is the fact that in these states, if you're doing anything, you have to do them indoors. If you're going to work, you have to work indoors. If you're going to school, you can't have those outdoor classes that some people were experimenting with in the summer, unless you plan on being out there in your snow boots and snow pants. You have to be indoors. And what have we known for a long, long time at this point? When you're indoors with low circulation, the virus persists in the air for a very long time. You don't have any of that UV from the sun that activates the virus. You don't have any airflow that's going to, for lack of a better term, blow the virus away. You have that virus persisting in the air 
increasing in the amount of virus in the air as infected people stay in that area longer. And again, keeping in mind, 30 to 40% of the people don't even know that they're sick because they're asymptomatic but can still spread the virus. And you have people that are trapped indoors because the economy is open, schools are open, everybody's expected to go about life as normal. And these are cold weather places where you have to be indoors in the wintertime. So yeah, it's a recipe for disaster. The cases are spiking at the time where everybody's having to be packed indoors like sardines. And we also have this biologic side that I mentioned where the mucosal lining of your respiratory tract is going to be not quite up to par and the virus will be able to persist in the air for longer than it would be under high humidity, high temperature conditions. Look at this. 212,000 cases in Wisconsin. In the last seven days, close to 26,000 cases in Wisconsin, 442 cases in Wisconsin per 100,000. That's that's serious. And and the hospitals in El Paso, Texas, they're out of ventilators. They don't understand cause and effect. They don't No, but I mean, like I said, we're not alone in that, even in France right now. So if you look in the Paris region of France, this is another thing that I mentioned on the video that I just ranted in on my Patreon. If you look in the Paris region of France, the number of hospital beds that they have available far exceeds basically anywhere in the United States. They're much more prepared for something like this. And yet, and yet, over two thirds of their ICU beds in the entire Paris region of France are currently occupied by COVID-19 patients. That's not not two thirds of the beds in ICUs are occupied right now. Over two thirds of the bed in the Paris region are occupied by COVID-19 patients alone. That means that we have less than one third of your available beds available for everything else that people would require beds for. And that's in a place that has a lot of beds to begin with. You have an area like mine here. We have almost no beds in the ICU because we have no people in the town, but yet we have uh, dozens and dozens of people testing positive for COVID every day. And we have an aging population here. We have very little hospital capacity, even in my incredibly rural area. You're right. It's cause and effect when you have policies that put people into contact with each other and you're not enforcing social distancing and mask wearing. Then you have cases. And when you have cases, you have people in the hospital. And when you have people in the hospital, you don't have as many beds. It's cause and effect. It's very simple to understand. It's not that they don't understand it. They just don't care. Okay, Fox News, they went down to Nashville and they covered the debates. They flew home on a private jet. Now, a lot of their anchors, Brett Baer, McCallum, the president of Fox News, they're all quarantining because they're testing positive. I don't wish this on anybody. I don't wish COVID-19 on anybody, he said, because people were watching him. You got that NSA? You got that? Yeah, I don't. Okay. Okay. They seem to be surviving this. Melania, Donald, Stephen Miller, Kellyanne Conway, Chris Christie. What does that tell you when you read of all these wealthy white Republicans who come down with the virus and dust themselves off and get back up. 
What does that mean? Well, David, it doesn't tell us anything, really. So, of course, we have to keep in mind that these people are getting the best hospital care anywhere in the world. That's a given. But beyond that, this isn't really out of the norm. As we know, the average person that's infected with COVID has roughly a 1% chance of dying. Most of those people are old or have comorbidities. And of course, Trump is old and he has comorbidities, but he still has well over, well over 50, 50 odds of surviving. And that's not even taken into account that he has the best quality medical care anywhere in the world. So it was highly, highly likely that he was going to survive that. Melania is a lot younger than him and to the best of our knowledge, doesn't have comorbidities. Again, the odds are firmly in her favor. Um, but even with that, I believe they said she had a persistent cough all the way up until the day of the debate. How long was that since they were infected? It was several weeks anyway. She had this right. persistent cough. And she's, she's I, I think, 50, um, something like that. I think she's 50. Yeah, and, she just turned you know, 50. She, she's not obese or anything. She doesn't have any of those typical comorbidities that we well, would Well, which see Melania are you talking about? Because there are three. <laughs> the, the newest one, the newest the daughter. One. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, e- even somebody who doesn't have these comorbidities it had a hard time with it. And we know that there's a lot of, uh, again, uh, we use the term sequela, which means things that happen afterwards. Right. What is uh, the word? Sequela. S-E-Q-U-E-L-A-E. Spell it again, please. S-E-Q-U-E-L-A-E. It's, oh, as in sequel. Yes, it's in sequel. Things and, that come and after. Prequela? Not a thing, but... Uh, no, I that's the name of my David. new... No, no, no. Prequela is... Frankie C is going to be making Prequela for us. It's, it's my ah, new... Ah, okay. It's my it gives new, you symptoms before you're infected. I, I see. I like the way you're yeah. thinking, David. Then people don't realize when they're sick. It's a yeah. good It gives you strategy. the antibodies. Prequela. <laughs> is there a drug called Prequela? Not to the best of my knowledge. We're going really to get rich. Really I'm telling you, Prequella, ask your doctor about Prequella. Yeah. So uh, what I was going to say is you see all of these people, Melania, Donald Trump, Brett Baer, uh, Chris Christie. And again, Chris Christie spent six days in the ICU. It's, he hardly got off scot-free uh, mm-hmm. even when he was infected. And a lot of these people are going to see, again, Sequella, He checked himself into afterwards. the ICU. That's what he said. Yes. He checked himself into the ICU and just happened to end up there for six days. And, and when he came out, ended up looking like a nice plum tomato. Right. Um, he had a lot of color when he came out. Let's just leave it at that. Um, but these people are going to likely experience at least some sequela, whether that's the COVID brain fog that we were talking about, whether it's the myocarditis that we've seen in a majority of the patients that they've looked at the hearts of afterwards. Again, keeping in mind that the the population that they were looking at the hearts of were a skewed population. It wasn't a general population. Look, Um, we've seen microstructural changes in the brain of a lot of COVID patients. I mean, these people are going to have things that are going on afterwards, even if by and large, they feel all right, but not every conservative is living that gets it. And I'm going to use the, the, the case of Herman Cain again. Uh, just, and if, if you haven't already check out Herman Cain's Twitter account, it brings me so much joy that Herman Cain's Twitter account is still downplaying the risk of the virus. Um, this is several months, still several months after he's, I, 
amazing. on his Twitter account is, is downplaying the virus, but he died. And, and we know that about 1% of people that get the virus are going to die. Now, you know, how, how many high profile Republicans have gotten ill? You know, you can, you can probably think of a few dozen Herman Cain died. And uh, what's the other guy, the founder of turning points, USA died. Don't remember what his name is off the top of my head. There was two of them, uh, two, two uh, founders of Turning Points USA. There's the young guy, Charlie Kirk, and then there's the old guy um, who basically put the money up for it. He died from COVID-19. Um, yeah, I mean, so that's two relatively high. Yeah, two relatively high level uh, Republicans, conservatives. And yeah, I mean, I can't think of off the top of my head, 200 high level Republicans that have been ill. I'm sure that there has been, but I can't think of them off the top of my head. So, you know, we're, we're still looking in that general ballpark somewhere, probably close to 1%. It's not telling us anything we didn't know, but the point is, is they're putting policies in place that are going to be responsible for tens or hundreds of thousands of deaths because they think, well, I survived, so I don't care. As long as you keep the economy going and I look tough, that's, that's good enough for me. And it, you know, Mr. Optimist here, it's, I thought I was Mr. Optimist, David. Oh, okay. But in all seriousness, it's not the same. The diagnosis is not the same as it was seven months ago. Yeah, I mean, it is and it isn't. So the likelihood of dying of COVID has probably changed a bit. Um, Our standards of care are significantly better now than uh, than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. But a few other things are at play here. I've mentioned it several times previously, but I'll run through it. We're having a shift in the demographic of the people that are being infected early on in the pandemic. It was almost all old people. Well, I shouldn't say almost all. The the cohort of infectees early on in the pop, uh, in the pandemic was significantly older than it was now. And we know that older people are more likely to die. It hit the nursing homes really hard early on in the pandemic. Those people were much more likely to die. Now it's really going around at campuses uh, of colleges. It's, it's mostly affecting my age people to people roughly your age, David, in between there is the the main group of people that's being infected now. And that cohort of people is less likely to die naturally from the coronavirus than people that were being infected early on where the, the age tended to skew older. But again, we do have better standards of care. Um, Oh, and the other thing I want to mention in regards to the the case fatality rate is that we're catching a lot more cases now early on when testing was limited, we were only seeing the most severe cases because the only people that really thought to test were the people that were almost dead as it was. Uh, and so it looked like a high, high, high percentage of people, you know, three, four percent of people in some areas that were being tested positive were dying. And that's just because we weren't testing all that much as testing has increased. We're catching cases earlier on and we're catching cases that are less severe uh, and more asymptomatic cases, which is going to lower the apparent case fatality rate. But Again, you're right. The standard of care has also increased. Right. And Eli Lilly, the drug maker that Chris Christie couldn't wait to thank for his cure, announced that his experimental treatment, they say that it doesn't work on patients hospitalized with COVID-19, their antibody treatment that Chris Christie was singing the praises of. 
Yeah, I haven't seen the latest on the Eli Lilly treatment. Um, the last I saw was that the results weren't great for it. Uh, I haven't seen a complete lack of evidence, but the, the, the other news that there was was last, I want to say last Tuesday or so, uh, so about a week ago from the time the podcast listeners will hear this, the trials of their monoclonal antibody, the Eli Lilly one, had actually been halted for safety concerns. And then Chris Christie extolled the virtues of uh, the Eli Lilly monoclonal antibody treatment about two days after it had been paused for safety concerns. So that was just a bit of a, a fun, uh, fun story. But yeah, I had seen that the the results weren't looking super hot for that one, but I haven't seen the latest on it. I've been focusing more on um, there was, there's been some reports of reinfections in Brazil, something like 243 uh, potential reinfections are being investigated currently in Brazil. Um, I'm going to be looking more into that on my Patreon soon, but basically these people tested positive, were sick or pretend some of them asymptomatic. Uh, then they tested negative after they cleared the virus and then they tested positive again. And they're going to be doing genetic testing of the virus from the first time versus the second time to see if it was the same strain or not. If it was the same strain, it was just likely junk left in their system. If it was different, then that would likely indicate that they were reinfected, but that's currently under investigation. Before you go, the 14 day rolling average of new cases in America is up 32%. Yes. New deaths, 12%, up 12%. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah, and the and let's just remind everyone because they'll say, okay, well, the uh, number of cases has gone up. Would you say thirty two percent? Yeah, and the number of deaths has gone up twelve percent. Did I get the yeah. numbers right? Yeah, yeah. So they're going to say, okay, well, why haven't the death uh, the death rate increase? Why hasn't that been commensurate with the case increase? There's a very I, once I tell it to you, it'll be a very obvious reason, but it doesn't often get reported because um, politicians who are currently in office who want to downplay the risk of the pandemic will say, yeah, look, you know, the case numbers are up, but the death numbers aren't going up and therefore it's not that big of a deal. One thing to remember is that the deaths due to COVID-19 tend to lag the cases by about two weeks. You don't die the same day that you test positive. You test positive generally you're feeling a little bit bad and then you start feeling really bad and then you die. That's again, in the 1% of people that do die. So expect, and of course uh, this is very dependent on the cohort of people that are testing positive. Now, if it's a really young population, that number isn't going to increase one-to-one with the case increase, but uh, I would expect that death number to also be increasing over the next couple of weeks um, to begin to catch back up in terms of the rate of increase with the case <clears throat> increase, just because that's what happens. Very quickly, this segment has been sponsored by... David, this segment has been sponsored by... And by the way, this is an immunobiologist, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. I am an immunobiologist. Uh, in training at least uh this segment has been brought to you by feldos for those of you who are just listening to the podcast i've got a box of feldos in my hand because <laughs> feldos when i want to get my morning started right i want to make sure that i'm not getting covid and 
yeah, I just need that pick me up where I need my heart to really start pumping early in the morning. I reached for a bowl of Feldo's. You can hear how much is left in this box. Mm-hmm. David, I ate the whole box. Let me tell you, it was pretty tasty. And do you have COVID? Uh, I don't have COVID. Why? That Why? That, what's, you know, in, what's in Feldo's that keeps you from getting... Well, David, you know, here's... They always talk about correlation not being causation. I'm telling you. Yes. This... The correlation here is pretty strong. I ate this box. I didn't get COVID. There's 40% more hydroxychloroquine in Feldo's than the <laughs> other leading brands of cereal. I, I think that that pretty much speaks for itself, David. You've got all of the hydroxychloroquine that you can handle. And I don't have COVID. I'm feeling fine. Sure. You know, it's got a picture of you on it. And my hairline is starting to recede. And I'm considering hair plugs. But I'm sure that that's not related to the cereal at no, all. It'll also grow hair. It also grows hair. and It grows hair. It's just, you know, you get it. In Look, I'm going to go. It's, it's winter time. You need the extra insulation. Right. Even that's a benefit. And. 40% less sugar than other 40% leaning. less sugar, exactly they replace the sugar one to one with hydroxychloroquine and this is a limited time offer you get a free Scott Atlas decoder ring inside the box so even you when Scott Atlas is talking on the TV you're thinking to yourself what on earth is going on here I need an atlas to figure out what Scott Atlas is saying Instead, you reach for your Scott Atlas decoder ring. It'll all make sense to you. It's like you have an epiphany from the, the you know, up in the sky. It just comes to you, beamed into your brain, this knowledge. You, you just, what, what more can you say, David? You know what? Screw Alex Jones. I mean it. I, we're going to be so much richer than Alex. As long as Trump controls the FDA and the FTC, we're going to make so much money selling this stuff. It's great. I'm so happy. Thank you, Frankie C, for making that. And are we and giving make sure that? To get you, make oh. sure to get your Plumax. Oh, yeah, the Plumax. We'll talk about the fecal uh, plume neutralizer. I'll, I'll pitch it over to Kathleen. She can pitch the Plumax. Okay, but before you go, for COVID Town Square's number five on Saturday, yes. Are we selling? Is one of the tickets going to... Does somebody get a box of Feldo's? Because that would look good. Is that one yeah, of the... I, I don't know about the Feldo's. I know that Plumex is an option. Oh, we're gonna, oh, oh, I'll ask Kathleen about Plumex. Ask Kathleen about it. My fecal plume neutralizer. Your fecal plume neutralizer. Exactly. Yes. For any well-appointed... As well. For any well-appointed restroom, you need a fecal plume neutralizer thank you henry huckamacki go to patreon.com forward slash huck 1995 and sign up for his newsletter and you all you all want to go to covid town squares number five this saturday night featuring henry huckamacki and the irritable immunologist 100 tickets are being sold and you guys have been on top of this pandemic since it started. Yeah, and Saturday, you know, you're going to get comedy, but you're also going to get depressed by what you tell you. So it's a nice balance on uh, Halloween of all days where, you know, you're supposed to be scared. We're going to tell you things that scare you and, and hopefully will entertain you at the same time.
do not use if you are allergic to dichlorodiethyl sulfide. Oh, this is the uh, this is for Plumex. Plumex. This is for yes. Plumex. This is irritable. These are the side effects for Plumex. Do not use if you are allergic to dichlorodiethyl sulfide or any of the ingredients in Plumex. It may cause serious infections, hepatitis B infection, allergic reactions, including a serious allergic reaction known as anaphylaxis, nervous system problems, blood problems, heart failure, immune reactions, including a lupus-like syndrome, liver problems, newer worsening psoriasis, newer worsening Crohn's disease, or ulcerative colitis, diarrhea, stomach pain, weight loss, injection site reactions, upper respiratory infections, nausea, fungal skin infections, progressive multifocal leukal encephalopathy, common cold, headache, joint pain, nausea, fever, infections of the nose and throat, tiredness, cough, bronchitis, flu, back pain, rash, itching, sinus infection, throat pain, and pain in extremities. Does not actually contain dichlorodiethyl sulfide, aka mustard gas. Also not great on hot dogs. Please do not ever put this on hot dogs or anything else intended to be consumed by humans or animals or on animals directly. Reported infections include active tuberculosis, which may present with pulmonary or extrapulmonary disease. Patients should be tested for latent tuberculosis before Plumex and during use. Treatment for latent infections should be initiated prior to Plumex use. Invasive fungal infections, including cryptococcus and pneumocystosis. Patients with invasive fungal infections may present with disseminated rather than localized disease. Bacteria, viral, including herpes zoster, and other infections due to opportunistic pathogen have been reported. Plumex. Plumex. My fecal, my fecal plume neutralizer. When we come back, Kathleen Ash, our cat and dog expert, is going to talk about diabetes in your pets. But first, office hours is Friday night at 9 p.m. I want everybody to go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. Press the attend a live taping menu and sign up for office hours. It's where listeners of the David Feldman show talk and I listen. Office hours has produced some of the greatest works known to mankind. One of the groups, the musical groups that has emerged from office hours is the COVID players, Lance Jeffries, Kathleen Ash, John Hayes and, of course, Tom Weber have recorded some of my favorite songs. This is a song written by Benji, who is one of the writers on COVID Town Squares and Diabetic Fury. This is a song recorded by the COVID players, and it's kind of about office hours. Now here's a little story that you all should know from the midnight hour at the Feldman Show. As Harvey Kay and David continued to talk, Benji reached down into his crusty sock. With a lighter from his pocket and some crumpled tin foil, he made a big smell that caused all to recoil. His eyes got glassy and he started to blink. Shut up, everybody. I'm trying to think. He did some hash. He did some monster hash. Some monster hash. From his graveyard stash. He did some hash. And then he got smashed. That monster hash. He did some monster hash. As the music and the party started to boom, in came all the creatures from the spooky chat room. Frankie C, Dan the Man, and Henry were there, while the Reverend Barry Lynn stood by in prayer. Jim Earl and Martha Previtt did their thing as the COVID players all began to sing. Dracula rose from his coffin, and then he said, Come on, everybody, let's wake the dead. He did some hash. He did some monster hash. Some monster hash. From his graveyard stash. He did some hash. And then he got smashed. That monster hash. 
He did some monster hash. As the evening wound down and people went for the door, they couldn't help but notice Benji there on the floor. As they all stood laughing and started to mock, Benji woke up and shouted, Where's my son? He did some hash. He did some monster hash. Some monster hash. From his graveyard stash. He did some hash. And then he got smashed. That monster hash. He did some monster hash. That is so great. Lance Jeffries, take a bow. Hi, David. That was great. That's the third or second time I've played this on today's show. That is, <laughs> that is just fantastic. I'm going to be playing this to death every Halloween. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Great job. Great job. Hey, Henry, Great before job, Benji and Kathleen. Yes, of course. Before we go to Kathleen, I want to remind Henry of something. I I scheduled Chokeway today. Yeah, I saw this story, David. Yeah, I saw. You know what? I saw your Twitter feed, and I immediately called Chokeway. And he was supposed to do a live taping with me at four o'clock, but something came up. But I wonder what that could have been. I don't know. But everybody should support this gentleman. David, he, read, read the headline for the podcast. Oh, listeners. you're right. I'm sorry. Cops called on black political candidates canvassing. I'm laughing. It's 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 terrible, but it, I understand just, the reason to laugh. It's cops called on black political candidates canvassing affluent Berrien County neighborhoods. Where is Berrien County? That's southwest Michigan, southwest Lower Peninsula. It's pretty close to, to Indiana. It's just it's just incredible. As far as I remember, David, yeah. which uh, you have to keep in mind, I'm about like a 12 hour drive away from there. Everybody go to Chokeway for 79th dot org. C-H-O-K-W-E-F-O-R 79 th.org chokeway for 79th.org he's endorsed by howie klein he's running for michigan state representative he is how old is he it doesn't matter but it's worth pointing out because he's not here and i'm not going to i wouldn't tell you his age if he were here but he's 21 years old yeah he's younger than me yeah and you know he's endorsed by by uh well a bunch of people including he got a, a endorsement from one of your heroes, David, Barack Obama. Really? You didn't see that? No, I didn't know that. He was one of Barack Obama's endorsements. All right. Good for him. Barack Obama. Good for Barack Obama. I mean... To be supporting such a good candidate. Exactly. Barack yeah. Obama should be proud of himself. Yeah. Yeah. It makes up for Joe Biden. This... He this and they called the cops on him for knocking on doors for campaigning. How's he doing? I, I, I had him scheduled for the show, but he had to cancel. How's his campaign going? You know, I it's hard to say because we don't have a lot of polling that happens or any polling really at all. So, I mean, it's really hard to say his district has voted Republican for quite a while. Um, but the demographics in his district, as well as the um, the the income distribution of his district would tend to favor Democrats. The issue is, is voter turnout in the areas that you would hope them to be high it tends to be quite low. And so the area has been a relatively uh, 
consistent Republican district, but hopefully Chokwe can engage some voters that wouldn't normally turn out and hopefully that'll be able to swing it because yeah, he, he was uh, quite impressive as a candidate and I'm hoping the best for him and yeah, hopefully we'll have him back soon on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's go to Los Angeles where animal and cat expert Kathleen Ash is standing by animal and cat cat and dog you're a veterinary technician is that correct kathleen that's correct yes you really are we're not making this up yes no my everybody my day job is as a veterinary technician and i treat mostly cats and dogs that's my day job well you were fantastic on diabetic fury oh we did a we did a big show saturday night to raise money for Diabetic Fury. We brought you on near the end to talk about diabetes in mm-hmm. pets. I had no idea that cats and dogs and other animals come yes. down with diabetes. And I thought, why not have Kathleen come on and talk to people who are concerned about their pets? Because mm-hmm. we don't have a segment where people get to ask questions about their cats and dogs and their physical health. You were great. And Frankie C. made this graphic for us. What are the warning signs for diabetes in your your cat or dog? Well, thanks for inviting me back again, David. Um, Hi, everybody. So... What I discussed was, um, it was, it's an introduction to the symptoms you may see if your cat or your dog might have diabetes. Now, um, about one in 80 cats has diabetes. And with dogs, the number is a bit vague, but it's, um, it's more like one in 150 last time I looked. And do they have but type 1 and type 2 diabetes like yes, humans? Yes, they, they do, and it differs. Um, I was going to get into that next time because that gets a little more complicated. Right. And sometimes uh, felines or cats are more susceptible to certain types of diabetes and dogs are different. So that goes into another little but, tunnel. But do cats and dogs contract a type 2 diabetes for mm-hmm. eating improperly and not exercise yeah cats are more susceptible to type one um and type two exists so um it's part of it is the breed there are some breeds that are susceptible to diabetes um a lot of it is diet and lifestyle so as i talk you're going to hear a lot of similarities with humans how they manage diabetes and what the symptoms are in humans as well. But, um, yes, there are people who, or veterinarians, especially holistic veterinarians, who encourage people to keep their pets off grains. So there's a lot of mainstream pet food suppliers that provide grain-free options, and um, that can be helpful. And also exercise is important. Keeping their weight down is important. Um, so there are preventative measures you can use. Um, but it's luck of the draw, like with humans as well. And it comes 
later in their lives like humans? It, it can come when they're young. Um, right. I've seen youngins get it, you know, a couple of years old. But it starts to show up later in life. So when we say senior pets, we're talking approximately seven years old. Um, and, of course, the smaller the dog, the longer the life. Um, the bigger the dog, the shorter the life. So you could do some math in there as well. But when you get, what I was saying is uh, on Saturday, I used an example of, let's say you have a pet that's about four, five, six years old, and they start showing any of these symptoms I'm about to explain to you. That's a sign that you need to go to the veterinarian. So um, the first symptom is excessive water drinking. Um, you'll be feeling the water bowls more often. You'll hear them, especially dogs, drinking, drinking, and cats as well. They're always going off to drink and eat. Um, the thing with cats and dogs, and if you own these, you know, these animals, you know cats are a little more personal, a little more private about when they're not feeling well, and dogs are a little more vocal and a little more willing to tell you if they're feeling off. So excessive water drinking is number one. And it's, in fact, a symptom of many other things as well. So if you start to see that in your pet, time to go to the clinic. As a result, number two, as a result of the excessive water drinking, you're going to have increased urination. So with dogs, you're going to take them out. They'll pee like a racehorse, and you'll think, that's odd. That's, that's not first thing in the morning pee. Or they're you know, suggesting they want to go out, whether they're scratching at the door or going through the doggy door more often. If they're peeing more often, then that's a sign something's up. With cats, you'll see the urine in the litter box and you'll see some acting out outside of the litter box. Um, they start to act out a little bit, peeing outside or on the side, or you'll see a different They're different peeing outside the box, not thinking outside the box. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, it's different. Exactly. And um, then the third one is weight loss, even though they're eating normally. So let's say your pet is eating normally. They're eating their food. They're enjoying their treats. But they look like they're losing weight. That can be a sign of diabetes. So as our pets get older, they naturally lose body mass and they get into their little senior bodies. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that weight loss that We should mention that, that Sanji here in the background is Kirby. Oh. He's a dog. How old yes. is Kirby? Kirby is 13. He's my little man and he has a collapsed trachea. So when he's snuggling in for the night or nesting in his bed, he starts to cough because he's um, exerting himself. And what kind of but dog is Kirby? He's a little, um, he's a little min pin mix. He's a rescue. We found him on the street. I found him in a pet store. There was a sign on the window that said free with any purchase. And I did a double take and there he was. And I had no plans on getting a second dog, but I couldn't help myself. Right, so that's so Kirby I, coughing in the background. That's, that's Kirby, yeah, he's a good little dude. Um, so that number three was weight loss despite regular um, eating habits. The next one, number four, is decreased appetite. So this is self-explanatory. They're just not wanting to eat. You coax them with their treats and they're not into it. You might see some lethargy along with this behavior and just as general kind of vibe of the blahs, a little behavioral 
just not interested, not feeling so hot. Right. So that's an easy thing to notice. And then the last one is number six is cloud. Oh, actually, no, this is the next one. Cloudy eyes. So um, just like with humans, animals have eyesight issues along with the diabetes. So with dogs, you're going to see that cloudy film that comes over their eyes. You know, you might think it's just cataracts, but that's not normal in a healthy, normal creature. So that could be a sign that there's diabetes, that that blue cloudy look. Um, Cats actually are partial to pink eye. So if you see... And dogorax as opposed to cataracts. Just keep going, ignore me. Okay. Okay. So cats get pink eye, and um, you'll see them, their eyes will be weeping, or the rim inside will be pink, or they're kind of blinking a little bit. So there's, there's another symptom there. That's in cats. I forgot to mention that on Saturday, but yes, pink eye. And then the last one is chronic or reoccurring infections. Um, so the example I use is allergies are prevalent and most people are familiar with allergies. Now, pets will lick and chew their paws or their, their legs and if they get those red hot spots and they're not healing, um, if the regular bath that you're giving them isn't easing their allergies, um, if they have a little cut or a little scratch on them and it's taking a while to heal, that could be a sign that something's wrong and it could possibly be diabetes. So we've got excessive water drinking, increased urination, weight loss despite normal eating habits, excuse me, decreased appetite, cloudy eyes or maybe pink eye, and then um, chronic or reoccurring infections. If you've got one or two of those things, it's time to go into the clinic, Yeah, which isn't that much fun these days because... You can't go into the clinic because of the COVID, so we're doing check-ins in the parking lot. Um, So people are a little out of sync with their regular routine, and you don't get to speak to the doctor directly. So when the tech comes out and checks you in, you want to mention these seemingly mundane things like, well, they're drinking more water, or, you know, their poop's a little funny, or she seems to have lost a little weight. You want to think about mentioning those things. So... um, there's six things to look out for, and even though they're subtle, they're important. And um, if you nip it in the bud, let's say it does turn out to be a diagnosis of diabetes, if you nip it in the bud, it is something that you can manage. And with insulin. It, correct, just like with humans. Yes, we, we give a shot, and you can do that at home, or you can have some... How much does insulin for pets... For a cat or well, dog. an EpiPen is approximately $120, and that has 100 units in it. And So that lasts um, for how long? Well, let's see here. That's a good question. Uh, let's do some math. Six units twice a day is 12 units a day. So, gosh, they, that's 10, 10 treatments, so maybe two weeks, a pen. So some two hundred dollars a month to give a cat mm-hmm. insulin. Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, uh, what was the? Uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. But it, it is it, it gets expensive. Plus, you need to buy the needles. 
So um, you need to buy all the little needles because you've got to replace them every time you do a shot. And um, you've got to reorder. And you can get pet health insurance. There are many options out there. And if you do get a pet and they're young, get the health insurance because later in life, if they do have problems, especially a chronic problem like diabetes, you're going to want to um, get that discount because, as I mentioned, Big Pharma has the same grift going on with human medicine as they do with veterinary medicine. And and, um, they try to change medicines just a tad to then pitch it as a veterinary medicine. And if you notice, you'll see, you know, medications advertised on TV for your pets. You never used to see that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, so people are, have knowledge about all sorts of medications that they wouldn't normally know about. But um, diabetes is manageable, and um, you can have a long, happy life with diabetes, and it's good to nip it in the bud. Great. Thank you, Kathleen. Ash, you'll come back. You're welcome. And- People can ask you questions about their sure. cats and dogs. Be great. Yeah, if you have if you have any questions, you can contact me at L A Pet Tech. That's L A P E T T E C H at gmail.com. And I'm in the Los Angeles area. But um, if you have any questions, you can send me a, an email and I'll do what I can for you. Great job. So it's excessive water drinking, mm-hmm. funny poo, increased urination. Oh. Mm-hmm. Weight loss, even with increased appetite, decreased appetite, cloudy eyes, especially in mm-hmm. dogs, chronic or recurring infection. Yes. Great. Thank you, and, Kathleen. Um, you're welcome. And I just want to say, um, Flumex gets me through the day. Oh, can, I have it in, can you hold that closer to the phone. camera? Yes. Plumex, the fecal plume neutralizer mm. that... As we all know, fecal plumes are one of the leading causes of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, and, uh, I take you, my pill every day, David. You take a fecal Cook. plume. I do. People are going to think you're, mm. you're... She's actually a vet tech. She's also a comedy writer. Mm. And you're writing... I'm a medical professional. You're, uh, yes. And you're actually a comedy writer, too. And you're going to be working on COVID Town Squares. Plug COVID Town Squares number five. Oh, yes. COVID Town Square is number five. It's our Halloween special. So you can imagine Benji and I are just going all out. We've already done the song. We've got the sketches together. We're going to have a lot of fun. And I hope you can join us because we're raising money for Henry because we need to get him in the loop with uh, continuing his schooling. So uh, And his research. Yes. Yes, and his research. It's very important. And we have a lot of fun. And we also take questions from children and if you have any questions for henry or the irritable immunologist you can send those to covid town squares at gmail.com and you can follow us on twitter at covid squares and also there's the play covid confidential we you get a we've got a henry and i wrote an eight piece or an eight part radio play where covid it's a crime drama and um, the way the COVID infection works within our bodies is an analogy of the crime drama that's going on. And and we debut that at the end of our show. And then we release that the following Saturday on YouTube. And that's um, COVID Confidential. Thank you, Kathleen. We'll be Thank back you, after this. Thank you. Great job. You're listening to The David Feldman Show.
What a night. Dan, are you still there? All right. We're going to say goodnight to everybody. What an interesting show. I hope you all voted. Please vote. This is the most important election of the past two years. I mean that. And that is not an exaggeration. When I say this is the most important election in the past two years, I mean that. Hey, I want to thank Kathleen Ash. Hope she comes back. Of course, Henry Huckamacki, please follow him on Twitter at Huck1995. And don't forget the uh, COVID town squares this Saturday night. Please buy a ticket. I don't ask for much from you people. And by people, I mean you. Uh, Buy a ticket. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. Hit the pay-per-view button and it'll take you to Eventbrite. You need a Zoom account and you need Eventbrite to purchase a ticket. And there'll be several tiers. Uh, I think tickets start at $15 and it's well worth it. We're only selling 100. Please purchase a ticket. Uh, it helps Henry Huckamacki do his research and keeps him uh, from... Uh... Anyway, it's a good cause. So I want to thank... Henry Huckamacki. How great were Laura House and Annabelle, Annabelle, Annabelle Gerwich? They have a new podcast and everybody should go subscribe to it. Professor Harvey J.K., we were running behind. He's going to do the show Thursday because we were running behind and he had another show that he had to get to. So great talking with Professor Adnan Hussein about the plague And thank you, Professor, for bringing Professor Margaret Papano on. She's an English professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Comic Ed Larson, his new movie is How America Killed My Mother. Please download it over at Vimeo. Howie Klein, founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack and author of Down with Tyranny. Mark Breslin, founder and president of Yuck Yucks largest comedy chain in North America. And of course, Martha Previtt doing Melania Trump, a.k.a. uh, She's also known as uh, Martha Stewart and Paula Dean, And of course, Jim Earl for filling out the show and Hannah Feldman for helping to write on today's show. The brilliant Hannah Feldman. Very funny. Office Hours. This Friday night at 9 p.m., please go to DavidFeldmanShow.com, hit attend a live taping and ask for a link. We'll send you one. And I look forward to seeing everybody Thursday when we do this again. We record live at six o'clock Eastern on YouTube Thursday, and then we drop the podcast at 3 a.m., on Friday. Thank you, everybody. Be strong and protect the weak. It's time right now 
For the David Feldman show He's talking politics And comedy too Now tell a dirty joke If you want him to He's just a lefty From way back He's a union man With an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad And he feels like fighting It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way